Tonight at 9 p.m., it's office hours where listeners of The David Feldman Show talk and I listen. If you would like to attend our July 3rd office hours, Friday night, that's tonight at 9 p.m., go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the attend a live taping menu, sign up. I'll send you a link and you're in. We'll see you tonight at office hours. And speaking of office hours, Lance Jeffries, Tom Weber, Kathleen Ash and JS all met at office hours. They decided to make some music and now they're the COVID players. Here's some music that's a result of people meeting at office hours. This is Tom Weber singing. Done ground it all down to molasses. When I come on the Brazos back in nineteen and four. There's a dead man alive in most every door. Oh. When I got to the prison, had a number for my name. Oh. Then they chained us together. We started cutting the cane. Captain, don't you treat me like you done did poor shine. You done drove that bully till you broke him from Should have been on the Brazos back in 1910. Oh, 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 oh. They were treating the women like they were treating the men. Well, there ain't no more chain on the brass. 
to molasses. Oh. It's 3 a.m. on Friday, July 3rd, 2020. I'm David Feldman. We have a lot of show, so let's get right to it. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Welcome, welcome to the broadcast. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. We're broadcasting live to tape here in Manhattan with a virtual studio audience. They're attending the show via Zoom and by phone, and they will be joining the conversation by asking our guests questions, and I hope they speak up when I open the floor to hear what's on their mind. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the Attend a Live Taping menu to sign up, and you'll get a link. And if you have Zoom, simply click on that link, and you're in. You can come and go all day, no passwords. The invitation will also provide some dial-in numbers. If you would like to attend via phone, and I see some attendees sitting on their phone. They joined us via phone. That's exciting. Here is the lineup for today's show, if all goes well, and it never does. First up, Emmy and Peabody award-winning Jim Earl. Then, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly, Russ Sercioni. He's a Democratic candidate for New Jersey's 6th Congressional District. He's taking on Pallone. This is going to be interesting. Then you've been asking me about fireworks going off. We've gotten a lot of calls. I've gotten a lot of emails. People keep hearing fireworks. Well, Professor J.L. Zagorski is one of the world's leading experts on fireworks. And I contacted him after reading his latest piece in the conversation entitled, Why Are So Many People Lighting Off Fireworks? Turns out there's an epidemic of people lighting off fireworks so we'll talk to Professor J. L. Zagorski about that. Eddie Pepitone has a new special for the masses. It's streaming on iTunes and Amazon. He stops by. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, animal behaviorist, author of Raised by Animals, joins us. Bert Ross, American hero who took on the Gambino family. He also, a lot of people don't know this, but he created the right turn on red in New Jersey. He was the energy czar in New Jersey back in the 70s, and he invented the right turn on red and quickly became a sex symbol in Englewood, New Jersey, parts of Tenafly, and a tiny sliver of Teaneck, New Jersey, as a result. Dr. Mike, Mike Pappas is back. He's an MD, a socialist, an activist. He's one of the editors of Left Voice. He's a street medic recently arrested by the NYPD, and we're going to talk about socialized medicine and why it's time to start blaming doctors. You know, I'm sick of hearing doctors talking about the insurance company and, and, and politicians. It's the doctor's fault, ultimately, in America. That's why we don't have socialized medicine. And something has to be done. You know, the, 
Doctors are as bad as the police. They take care of one another. They have a code of silence and they try to deflect the blame. It's never their fault. Medical care in America is a disgrace and it stops stops with the doctors. We don't have socialized medicine because the doctors work are willing to work in this system. And they need to stand up and say enough is enough. More people are being killed by health insurance companies than by car accidents. This is an epidemic. More people die from health insurance companies than by COVID-19. It's time for doctors to speak out against the health insurance companies. The problem is they've been co-opted by the health insurance companies. They become executives in the health insurance companies. They own stock in the health insurance companies. They are part of the problem. So we need to go to the source and start blaming doctors for the shoddy health care we get in this country. Then we talked to Professor Ben Burgess, author of Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson, activist Zach Ford. He's an LGBTQ activist. He joins us. Then Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil is on. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. He's a professor of psychoanalysis. He'll be talking Freud with us, and he'll be joined by his son, actor, comic, singer, Harvard apologist Ethan will join us. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn from Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Dave Cyrus, whose new movie is The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson, Marissa Tomei, and Bill Burr. It's directed by Judd Apatow. And maybe Bob Rubin. We have some people who are saying they'll pop in later today. We don't know. Jim Earl is an Emmy and Peabody award-winning comedy writer, and he joins us next. Jim Earl is an Emmy and Peabody Award-winning comedy writer. You've seen his work on The Daily Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, The National Lampoon, Air America. Welcome, Jim Earl. Are you up in Kennebunk today? Yes, I'm up in Kennebunk. That's uh, southern Maine. It's uh, very close to the Bush compound and lots of uh, expensive uh, hotels and touristy establishments. And are people out and about? Yes, they are. Then they're they're very mindful and mindless at the same time of uh, mask requirements. And basically, it's just, uh, you know, people with property to rent and the ho- big hotels really don't give a shit. They don't. And they just want people to come up. And, oh, are, are they stopping people from coming up? Uh, they no, they're having a four. They had a fourteen day uh, quarantine, self quarantine. You know, it's states' rights. Everybody just regulate yourself. You got smallpox? Just reg. You know, we'll trust you to stay in your your hotel room for fourteen days until mm-hmm. it all, all clears up. Yeah, and now I think they're they're opening it back up again for some strange reason. Well, okay. let's talk about uh, your neighbor George W. Oh, do they call it Compound W when he's up there? Well, it's because the compound does look like a gigantic wart. (laughs) 
on the uh, edge uh, on a, on a, on a, on a, it is a phallus. It's a peninsula and it's got a giant, giant wart on it mm-hmm. in the form of uh, Jeb Bush. <laughs> GW uh, was up here. It's, is up here now, by the way. Yeah. He's haunted by wounded soldiers. Did you know that? You mean he gets a lot of dirty letters and stuff, or he just has a conscience? I don't know what it's about. He paints wounded soldiers. I don't know what that's about. Do you? I think he's just trying to make money. Yeah, that guy never stops. He's a whirlwind. <laughs> guy, he's a go getter. Would it kill him to say? And I'm being serious. Would it kill him to say, "I was an a hole. I lied about weapons of mass destruction." I, I wanted to go into Iraq. I, I'm an idiot. I thought we could bring democracy. So I lied to you. And this is how I did it. So you know never to allow a commander in chief to do this to you again. That would mm-hmm. be the, the noble thing for, for this reprobate. But instead, he paints wounded soldiers as though that's going to get him into heaven. And that would embarrass uh, his new colleague, I guess, Joe Biden. You know, a lot of lot of uh, uh, ex Bushites from the Bush administration have started a super PAC for the Joe Biden campaign. So that's that would be a further embarrassment. You can't ever tell the truth because when you tell the truth, it, it's like it has a domino effect. Yeah. Yeah. And then everybody else has to start telling the truth or or suppress it. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of our party. We don't need you. Oh, I'm getting out of the Democratic Party. We don't need never Trumpers telling the Democrats how to win. They they are a cancer. They ruined the Republican Party. The only reason Donald Trump took over the Republican Party is because of the never Trumpers. So now they didn't leave. You know, the, the, the Bush family didn't leave the Republican Party. They were kicked out of the Republican Party. And now they're yeah. trying to find a home. They're like termites. Now they're 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 just burrowing into the Democratic Party and, and setting up a super PAC for Joe Biden. And we're supposed to like them because of that. It's the old cliche. It's all big party and you're not invited to it. So have you seen that, that old uh, post uh, of uh, uh, CIA operations director uh, John Stockwell, I think his name is. No. Uh, interviewed by uh, one of the old time uh, LA, uh, KTLA correspondents, and they're going over uh, Operation Cyclone, basically. What is Operation Cyclone? That was where the... the uh, the uh, well, America paid the Mujahideen, an Islamic fundamentalist, to uh, kill Russians in Afghanistan. Oh, right, right. But right. the Stockwell uh, went over the fact that one third of uh, the CIA is operations has to do with propaganda and lying to uh, the public and uh, setting up false stories in the media. And most of the time, the media goes along with it because they think, you know, hey, I'm part of this. I'm, I'm helping America. Mm-hmm. And so all this, you know, these you know, these fake stories about the uh, bounties, 
WMDs and the uh, Gulf of Tonkin and uh, Libya and Ellen DeGeneres being a nice person. Yeah, being a union, yes. And John Stewart supporting the union. All of this is linked together. You have a unifying theory that explains. The CIA helped spread this. But we do know that Gloria Steinem was CIA. And uh, we don't want to go down this path. Are you saying the bounty story? Are you saying the bounty story that has been the quicker picker upper by MSNBC and the New York Times, that there were bounties on American soldiers? Mr. Putin was paying them to kill our soldiers in Afghanistan. Are you saying this is a non-story? Yes. Uh, well, the two, two or three levels to this, uh, uh, you know, it was uh, it released on a Friday dump, news dump, and you know all about Friday dumps. But it was another Friday news dump, and uh, it, it had it was from the same anonymous sources and uh, no independent uh, verification of any ev- evidence or the sources and it repeated in all the uh, media around the country just the same story so there's no objective independent uh, investigative journalism into this at all it's just allegations right and what are we doing in Afghanistan and Afghanistan is up against Russia It's Mm kind of like their version of Cuba. They don't want American soldiers right on the border of Russia. I'm not saying we anybody should be attacking our soldiers in Afghanistan. I'm just asking, what are we doing there? Uh, What we're doing, we shouldn't be. Why do we have NATO? Why? Why is NATO? Why are we exercising military operations with NATO on the border of Russia constantly? You know, it's, a, it's belligerence. It's, it's provoking a nuclear power. Yeah. You know, but NATO is sacred for some strange reason. But well, we have to stand up to Russia. What do you think is a threat to America? Do we have a threat? I think, uh, I think uh, diaper rash and. I said America. Obesity. Yeah. Yeah. So earlier. I was talking about doctors. When do we start blaming doctors for not having socialized medicine in this country? Well, they're complicit, aren't they? Yeah. You know, that all they want to do is just make money or I, I don't understand. You know, every doctor I've gone to, it's been a, a wide spectrum of opinions. Either they don't know anything about it or they don't want to get political, they say, or they really have a negative opinion of single pair, but they really don't know anything about single pair or they're very, the younger doctors I've been to are in in favor of single pair. Well, they say they are, they say they are, but they're saddled with debt, student loan debt. So they're going to carry water for anybody who's going to get them above water. Yeah. It's just always not in my backyard. I want help. I want, I want my debt settled. Uh, I don't want to have to deal with insurance companies, but I don't want every, uh, everybody else to have that same advantage. Yeah. I don't want other doctors because that's giving it away for free or something. Yeah. The problem with, and I do blame doctors because ultimately you have to blame 
You got to go to the source. Medical care in America is a disgrace. Our life expectancy is going down. We're the only industrialized nation where the life expectancy is going down. We have the highest infant mortality. Uh, uh, Mothers giving birth, the morbidity rate is the highest in the industrialized world. At some point, you have to blame the doctors. Healthcare in America is a, is a disgrace. So there's a disease. There's a disease. It's called health insurance companies. The same way the Surgeon General finally speaks out against tobacco or eventually tells us to wear a mask, somebody has to speak up and say more Americans are being killed by health insurance companies than by car accidents. Okay? We have a killer. It's called Aetna, Humana. And we're taking their money as doctors. And you know what? If, if you're a doctor and you don't believe that, you're a murderer. You're it's a murderer. I, I believe uh, the insurance cartel is a, it's, it's a terror organization because people fear having to deal with it constantly. Oh, my, I got to renew my prescriptions. Oh, I don't want to have to freaking call Walgreens up now and have an argument with them over getting right. a pre-authorization for something that I've been on for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Why do I have to get another pre-authorization for something that uh, an ailment that I have that's incurable? And if I don't have that medicine, then... I will die without it. Why do I need another pre-authorization? Has diabetes been miraculously cured in the last two weeks? No, I say. Well, there you go. And and I think Americans, I think people who are listening, think of all the, I can think of five people I know who, when I'm talking to them, at least once a month, they relate the same story you just told me. I I, I can't talk to you. I'm, I'm dealing with... The, the pharmacy, I got to get my medication. Yeah. And, and they lose a day, a two, a day or two just dealing with trying to get the medication that any other citizen in any other industrialized world would have no problem getting. And, and they're depressed and they're weakened and they lose productivity. It they raises all- blood pressure, skyrockets because of this, the anxiety yeah. you have to deal with. It's, why do we it, put up with it? Why do the doctors, why do the doctors in this country allow this to happen? They know that this is going on. Mm-hmm. And, and they go, well, you know, it's just, it's, believe me, we have just as much trouble getting paid as you have getting reimbursed. My daughter got 30 letters sent to her. Sorry. <laughs> That's for something else. Oh. Uh, <laughs> She had 30 letters sent to her by an insurance company, not about paying her, but reimbursing her doctor. But they're sending her 30 letters and asking her 30 separate questions that have nothing to do with her. She was already reimbursed. Now they're torturing the doctor and they're using her to torture the doctor. Why do we put up with this? Because we're subservient, servile schlubs in this country and that's what we've come to expect and this july 4th this july 4th tomorrow's july 4th i think we ask great britain for forgiveness we made a mistake you know we moved out 
mom, dad. I think, you know, boomerang kids, kids are moving in back with their parents. We gave it 240 some odd years. Let's uh, let's move back in with Great Britain. We can't we can't do it. We tried. We can't do it. I think we got move back in with Holland because that's where the Puritans spent a number of years before they got kicked out before they, yeah. Cause you know, even Holland didn't want, they, they complained about Holland being too uh, permissive and tolerant. Right. (laughs) And so those are our ancestors, right? At least mine. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know when your people came over to this country, the Huguenots, the Huguenots? Yeah, I come from a long line of French Huguenots who uh, we were anti-papist. And uh, we're very insufferable, the Huguenots. P- Anti-papist? They didn't like pastries? <laughs> All right. Jim Earl, how do people follow you on Twitter? Uh, Jim Earl 666. Well, that's interesting. 666. What is that about? Well, I, there are a lot of other Jim Earls on Twitter, and they have numbers after them to s- distinguish them from other Jim Earls. And okay. I thought 666 would be a an easy thing to remember. Yeah. And because I love Satan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jim. We'll be right back. Let's go to New Jersey 6th Congressional District, where Russ Serencioni is standing by. He's a progressive Democrat. He's running for Congress in New Jersey 6th District and is committed to a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, ending corruption. And he takes no corporate money. He's endorsed by Andrew Yang. And welcome. How old are you? Hi, David. Yeah, great to be here. I'm 33 years old, millennial. <laughs> you're a millennial. You're 33 years old, and you're an attorney, and you work for the government. Uh, yeah, the New York State government, actually. I work in midtown Manhattan. It takes me about four hours round trip to commute. What do you do for um, New York State? Uh, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a senior attorney is the official title, but um, I do litigation, so I go into courtrooms, and uh, I make sure that everyone's held accountable to the rules of rent stabilization. And last year, I was actually really lucky to help write and and pass a, a law that protects seniors and low-income people. Uh, it protects their rights to live in mobile homes. So you're an attorney who protects people who live in homes that are protected by rent control and rent stabilization. Yes, that's a major aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we have a housing yeah. crisis in in America, certainly in New Jersey, and certainly in New York. Why do you live in New Jersey? Why do you live in the 6th Congressional District and commute into New York City? That suggests that rents are too damn high in New York for you to, to live there, right? Yes, rents are way too high. Um, we moved out to New Jersey uh, seeking, you know, the American dream. We wanted a, a house and uh, and a good schools for our son, and we couldn't afford a house in the places where we grew up. 
And I've always loved New Jersey because uh, my my ties are really deep here. And uh, well, where is the sixth district? Uh, are you familiar with like Middlesex and Monmouth counties? Yeah, the big town. The big towns are Edison, Woodbridge, uh, Perth Amboy, South Amboy, Old Bridge, where I live, uh, Sayreville. It goes all the way down the shoreline along the uh, pretty much central Jersey coast around the Raritan Bay and down to Asbury Park. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you work in New York City. And what agency do you work for? So it's the New York State Division of Homes and Community Renewal. Uh, I've actually been on sabbatical for the past uh, three or three months because I, I took time off to full-time campaign. Right. Uh, so it's it's the Department of of homes division of homes and community renewal yeah and it's set up to protect whom specifically renters or homeowners or both well really both um the agency is one of the largest uh, mortgage lending lending agencies in the country uh billions of dollars uh, in home loans that are low interest and and protect you know people's uh, the affordable housing market really uh, and also the rent stabilization laws in New York State, um, they protect about one and a half million apartments in the city. And it really, uh, it, it caps uh, rent increases every year, uh, which is determined by, you know, a, a rent guidelines board, usually between one or two percent rent increases is the maximum every year. Explain to my listeners, because a lot of them live in cities without rent control or rent stabilization. What is rent control and what is rent stabilization? Okay, so rent control came around uh, like during the World War II era in in New York City. uh, And that's when uh, that's actually the better system for affordable housing because it, it capped rents and the only increases that are really allowed are to deal with operating costs of of the premises so landlords would have to demonstrate that it's becoming more and more expensive to uh you know maintain the actual property in order to uh raise the rents that was that system was really a transition from in the 70s in the the mid 70s to rent stabilization okay so rent control as i understand it is you're shown an apartment in new york city and and there's a a municipal a new york city rent control board and they say this apartment rents for four million dollars a month. We're talking about New York City. Yeah, and this you're only, <laughs> and you're only the landlord is only allowed to raise the rent what three percent each month or two percent each month. Uh, rent rent control actually uh, pretty much caps it. Uh, the landlords have to apply for uh, apply for rent increases based on the cost of the. Uh, the, the what it costs to maintain the building. Uh, so so if you own a building in New York and it's deemed rent control, you cannot raise the rent each year with the cost of you, living unless you go through the rent control board. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's, it's that's pretty much exactly what it is. Uh, but to be honest, um, there's so few rent control departments in the city I think there's under I think there's under a hundred thousand in New York City because it's such um it, the the law was changed where once the, the last rent control tenant moves out 
it's no longer rent controlled, and now it moves into the rent stabilization system. And this is from and the 70s. And what does rent stabilization mean? So rent stabilization is basically yearly caps on rent increases, uh, the right to renewal leases, um, and the, it's it, it's a system that really was um, set up a little more favorable to landlords than the rent control system was. And uh, so... So landlords can uh, make improvements to property and get an increase based on how much it costs to do the improvement. Um, but it's, it's also a limit on the, on the increase, usually around one to 2%. Uh, I've seen 3% increases though. And, uh, but it, it does protect tenants really well. Uh, and it actually was expanded in 2019 uh, to, um, to really continue the system and make it more robust for uh, the modern housing crisis we're facing now. Yeah, didn't Cuomo take on the people with second homes in the city? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You have you have people who are buying these literally forty million dollar apartments in Manhattan. They don't even move furniture in. They just buy the apartment. They leave it empty. And it's listed as their second home, and the city loses a tax base. Are there, is it true that there are something like five empty apartments in New York City for every homeless person? I actually, I actually think it's higher than that, but yeah, there's and, a lot of invest, investment property that just sits empty. And what are our rights as squatters in, in New York? I'm being serious. If, if there's an empty apartment and nobody's living in it, what right do we have as American citizens to move in and squat? Um, I'm actually, I'm actually not sure. I, I don't think it's uh, probably don't have many rights. I think after 30 days, you might be considered a a tenant, and then you have to go. There has to be a court proceeding to evict you. Uh, so I think that's one level of protection. And so, in uh, other words, know, legally speaking, if if you know of an empty apartment and you somehow get into it and you're not paying rent, you are legally allowed to squat in there and make it your home until the owner of that apartment takes on legal proceedings, right? Takes you to court. I'm actually, this is actually a really great question. I'm going to look into it. So I'm not a hundred percent sure, but um, I, I don't think you have really a, a good case in court. Well, of course, uh, you don't have a good case in court, but, you know, either do the landlords. And at what point do we start using the courts the way the the Trumps use the courts? How do we bend the system in our favor? I know you're a lawyer. Talk to me about civil disobedience, which, you know, mends the law. You know, civil disobedience is different from what what Trump does, because when when you when you break a law using, you know, like Henry David Thoreau broke the law, he refused to pay taxes for the Mexican-American War because he didn't believe in it. When you break the law using civil disobedience, you're saying this law is unjust. I'm going to break it and I'm going to pay the consequences. Now arrest me. So you're breaking the law and then mending it by doing time in prison. So there's nothing wrong with civil disobedience as long as you're willing to spend time in jail. What are some things Americans can do? What is 
a, a reasonable form of civil disobedience, because it seems like 70 percent of us can't pay our bills. So what can we do legally? Well, civil disobedience, uh, you know, if we've learned anything from the recent mass movements and the, the mass movements of history, civil disobedience works. It really does. Uh, we have I think we have the duty to, uh, you know, pressure public officials to change unjust laws to to fight against the injustices in our society with civil disobedience, uh, especially, you know, and really what it takes is the first person to uh, light the fire right uh, uh, under everybody else. The first person to stand up to an unjust system inspires others to do so. And we've seen that uh, recently Um you know, with with Bernie Sanders' movement, uh, with with the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, did you I, support Bernie? Would would he be your first choice? Oh yes, yes. Good. I've actually voted. I, I voted for him and his delegates. Uh, I, which is the first time I'm publicly saying. But of course, Bernie Sanders is one of the inspirations for me running. Right. So I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I, I'm just curious. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, I want you to beat Pallone. When is the New Jersey primary? 7-7, seven, seven, lucky sevens, July 7th, next Tuesday. It's coming up very quickly. Yeah. And we'll talk I about Pallone in a second. This is what I don't understand. Are you a millionaire? No, but not by any. I have negative net worth. When you are, are, you taking, are you taking money from corporate PACs and corporations? I would, I would never, ever. It compromises politicians. It's political malpractice to do so. Okay. And so this is what I would like to see in a, in a politician. There are loopholes in the tax code that Exxon Mobil takes advantage of, realtors take advantage of. There are never any politicians who say, hey, you know what, folks? I found a loophole. You don't have to pay your rent if X doesn't meet Y. How come there are never any politicians who say, you know, I've been going over the tax code. And if you're an American citizen, you don't have to pay your utility bill. I just discovered this in the tax code. You don't have to pay your utility bill if X and Y don't add up to Z. Now, billionaires get that information. How come there, there are no Congress people who find out something in the law? And tell the American people, you know what? Only pay 20% of your water bill this month. They have no right to charge you for the service because they violated C-103.4 in the, in the statutes. How come nobody ever does that? Well, we don't have many attorneys for the people. We don't have many lawyers for the people. Um, you know, Would you I do that as an attorney? Because you are an attorney, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what I would say is, look, if somebody if there's a breach in like if you don't if your landlord is not giving you a, a habitable house, then you're allowed to withhold your rent uh, and, and repair it with the rent money that you're supposed to be putting out. Um, but, yeah, we should be taking advantage of these loopholes. And, and can you get elected to Congress telling people how to legally not pay their bills? Because 70 percent of us either can't pay our bills or are terrified of not paying our bills. Why aren't there lawyers on our side who, who, and politicians on our side who say, you know what, 
if I just went through the tax code, you don't have to pay this bill. You don't and just say it publicly. Why, why doesn't well, anybody do that in, in politics, in government? I think, I think that really uh, politicians that take corporate money are on that side. You know, if, if they're wearing NASCAR jackets with their sponsorships, they'd have all, uh, you know, logos right. of every single major oil company, utility company on their chests. Okay. And, so, um, so you, you under, I hate to belabor this and then we'll talk about Pallone. You've, you've seen the movie, the producers, right? Yeah. Okay. So Gene Wilder comes, he's an accountant. He goes, Oh my God, I just realized if you raise enough money and it's a failure, you get to keep all the investment money on this play. Somebody like you who knows how to read laws and the tax code, you go to Congress or, or you're working for New York State's Division of Homes, you're reading these laws and these codes, you can find loopholes for the 99%. Why, doesn't, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you find, don't you find loopholes where you say, oh my God, if there's no hot water for six days, you get a year's rent for free. Why doesn't anybody speak out and tell us this? Whereas the well, landlords, a, they get all that information. They do. They, they actually get newsletters that with drafted by tons of lawyers that tell them specifically how to, you know, get around law. But, you know, for the first thing we have to do is close those loopholes so that, uh, you know, well, no, no. what about what about making loopholes for me? I'm being serious and I'm not trying to be yeah, difficult. Yeah. What, what about what's good for the goose is even better for the gator? Why can't we have populist leftists elected who go to Congress, find the loopholes, put the loopholes in there, you know, at the 12th hour, but nobody mm -hmm. knows about, nobody reads these bills. Why don't we have Congress people slapping in little amendments to budget appropriation bills that, that create mm -hmm. loopholes for the 99%? It never, it never happens. It never happens. If there are loopholes to to uh, to protect people, I'll be I'll be advocating for those 100 percent. But what about creating the loopholes? What about creating the loopholes? What about giving them a taste of their own medicine? That's a great idea. Yeah, I, I support, uh, you know, I support giving people second chances to get back on, get back into, uh, you know, a, a secure financial uh, situation. I, I think that we need loopholes for working people actually yeah. where, you know, based on compassion, based on forgiveness, based on um, really look, it's like when you walk down a, a street and some, somebody's walking towards you and you see them trip and, and maybe fall, you get over and you, and you try to pull them back up and get them on their feet. Yeah, after I'm done laughing. Yeah. Or, or some people laugh. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, really what we should, ha we should have a system that really, uh, empowers all of us to to get back up on our feet always and so what you're talking about is we don't even have to we, we should we should design into the purpose of these laws um specific provisions for working people for everybody for all americans not the corporations there's too many corporate loopholes that they get away with because corporations have an army of lobbyists and they buy these loopholes particularly on purpose you know they're uh, we're really upset with there's always 
a corporate loophole that some lobbyist has paid for. Mm-hmm. And we see that all the time in our government. We see that in the tax code, of course. Uh, we see it in every single stimulus package. There's hundreds of billions of dollars given to corporate donors, yeah. uh, you know, under the guise of protecting people from, you know, during COVID. Right, right. Frank Pallone, who is he? Uh, he's a 32-year corporate Democrat, the chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, controls about 60% of legislation in the House. Literally, bills can live and die based on his vote in the House. Why is that? Uh, Howie Klein was telling me how, I mean, his, I always thought the House Ways and Means Committee was so important, but it turns out that he's more important than the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, so really anything that Congress does has to be done through the interstate commerce clause in the Constitution. And therefore, the Commerce Committee uh, has so much control over so many things that try and pass through the House. For, for example, the Medicare for All bill that has more support than the ACA did in the House has died on his desk because he takes millions from pharma and insurance companies. Uh, the Green New Deal and, and AOC's proposal for a climate change subcommittee last year was shot down by, by his committee as well. Um, he uses his power to, uh, to protect corporate interests. Right. You know, Frank Pallone, he's been serving for as long as you've been alive. He takes yeah. money from tobacco, from big oil, from big pharma, from big insurance. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm not too sure about tobacco, but I think, but I know for a fact. Does he get money from Steny Hoyer? Then he takes um, money from tobacco. And what does he do with this money? Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think he has a $4 million war chest. Um, you know, he really, I honestly don't know too much about what he does with the money, but it, he funds, he funds his campaigns and he, do we know um, what his kids do for a living? No, I, I'm actually not sure. I don't want to ma- make it about the, the kids or anything. But well, okay, I, but 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 that's how they make their money. I mean, you know, what Joe Biden, you know, Hunter Biden. If you don't attack their kids, it's not like they're 14 year old kids and they're off limits. Hunter Biden was making money for Burisma because his father was Joe Biden. That's how they do it. You know, Joe Biden lives frugally while everyone around him has boats and luxury homes that he gets to spend as much time as he. So you don't know anything about Frank Pallone's kids, the wife? No, 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 no. Um, really, uh, you know, I looked at his. He has a super pack called the Shore Pack. Uh, you know, I, I think a few years ago he spent like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a really expensive like dinner for. Uh, you know, for, for his donors and for his, you know, his, his inner circle. Um, but really, uh, he will he will claim nonstop that the money doesn't influence his decisions. And it's just such a blatant lie. It's just right. such a blatant lie. Like uh, he's proposing this Clean Future Act, which will make you and I, our tax dollars, pay for 
fossil fuel pipelines until 2050. Amazing. Meanwhile, I, I'm out here in this district trying to shut down new fossil fuel projects. They're going to pollute the air that my son breathes. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to shut those down. I'm trying to move all of our townships to renewable energy as soon as possible. I want 100% renewable energy by 2030. That's why we need a Green New Deal here. Our district has 37 miles of coastline, believe it or not. And to claim to represent a shoreline district for 32 years and not fight for a Green New Deal to protect our homes, it's just complete political malpractice, political failure. And it makes sense when you look at it. He takes so much fossil fuel money. Yeah, you're great. People should go to your website, Russ Sir Sioni, for Congress. Get rid of Frank Pallone. Let me spell your last name. If you're an American citizen or not just an American citizen, if you have permanent residency, you can give to Russ. Let me give your last name. Let me spell it. C-I-R-I-N-C-I-O-N-E-2020.com. Give this man yeah. money. You're not taking money from PACs, right? No, never. Uh, well, uh, not corporate PACs. Um, so people power PACs, yes. But the um, really uh, what it's about, I've, I'm committed to being loyal to only people right. for my entire career. Right. I never take lobbyist money or, or corporate PAC money. Right. And um, the, the website, russforus2020.com, that's the easiest way to get to it because honestly, Nobody can spell my, my last name on the first try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said you're you're a very nice guy, and I and I hope nice. you come back. And you should be in Congress, and you you do great work when you're not running for office. You're helping people stay in their homes and protecting the renters in this country. Let me just say something about attacking people's kids in politics. You said that uh, Frank Pallone supports big oil and is destroying the air that your son breathes. Right. He has no, yeah. The, the he, companies that he takes stone money from. Yeah. yeah. He has no problem attacking your son. God forbid your son has asthma. And we know kids who grow up in poor neighborhoods breathe poor air and they die from asthma and lung disease. So mm-hmm. the oil companies are killing our kids. And I, I, I'm just suggesting that maybe the politics of personal destruction, uh, there's something appropriate about going after their adult kids and, and their wife, because that's how they get rich. That, you know, Hunter Biden worked for Burisma. I believe that's uh, a fracking company. Isn't that oil? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're not supposed to attack Joe Biden's kids. How many Young people are dying because of Burisma. I mean, Hunter Biden is a bad guy. He's not as bad as, you know, Don Jr. and Ivanka, but he's a bad guy, you know. But the kids are off limits. No, no, I don't believe so. I think we have to, uh, if they're over the age of 22, get them. That's what I say. Well, we should should definitely hold... Definitely hold everybody accountable, you know. I say and, go um, for their kids. Well, you know, <laughs> I do because yeah. that's they yeah. hide behind their kids, but it's for that's another. Real, they hide behind their kids. Approach. 
I'm sorry. That's a scorched earth approach. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to know about Frank Pallone's kids and his wife. (laughs) I'd like to know what they do for a living. Well, you know, but what you said about the, uh, the fossil fuel companies coming after our families, you're, you're absolutely right. They don't care about destroying our air. 4 million people a year across the globe die from pollution. And, uh, they, these companies, they do not give a damn about destruction and, and polluting and, destroying our air and they're coming after us. We have to stop the fossil fuel age and we only have 10 years to do it. So if they're coming for our kids, (laughs) I say go for their kids. So I'll give that your web address that I go to. It's Circioni 2020.com. Let me spell it. C I R I N C I O N E 2020.com. There's an easier website. Yeah, Russ for us 2020com Thank it you. It works with the number four F O R. But thank you for having me. Thank you. You're it. great. You're a nice guy, and we, we need you in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. Okay. It's gonna go for landing. Retro. Go. Righto. Go. You. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom. We're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're a go for landing. Over. Roger understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. listening to the david feldman radio program you sad pathetic hump well this is really great thank you russ for doing this stick You're around welcome. if you want thank you thank you i will well this is exciting because my listeners started calling me last week saying for the past month they've been hearing fireworks inexplicably this is you know not anything to do with july 4th which is tomorrow so joining us is Professor Jay Zagorski. He teaches at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University, and he recently wrote a piece in the conversation entitled, Why Are We Hearing So Many Fireworks? Why Are So Many Fireworks Going Off? Welcome, Professor Jay Zagorski. Nice to be on your show, David. Thank you. Why are we hearing so many fireworks? Before you answer that question, you're one of the world's leading experts on fireworks? Well, I don't know. I was writing five or six articles on fireworks and talking on the radio about fireworks every 4th of July. Make me an expert? Yes, yes I am. on this show. So why are you an expert on fire? Like, how did this happen that you became an expert? Uh, I'm actually in my day job an economist. And as an economist, I spend a lot of time trying to explain why things happen in business to large numbers of people. And fireworks is just one of these things that people are really interested in. Uh, So I seem to have created sort of a sidelight on fireworks. We'll get to fireworks. We'll get to fireworks in a second. So you're an economist. When I was growing up, I grew up in New Jersey. So we got our fireworks from kids who smoked cigarettes. They were about 16 or 17. Somehow they'd go below the Mason-Dixon line to get cheap cigarettes and fireworks. You couldn't get your hands on fireworks when I was a kid. What's the legal status of fireworks in America right now? I would say what we're looking at right now is very similar to what happened when you were growing up. Um, 
I, I study economics, as I said before. So there's a whole bunch of different reasons why you're hearing so many fireworks at one in the morning. And it's not just in New York City. It's all over the country. Right, well, uh, we'll get to that know. in a second. But what is the legal status of fireworks? In other words, in New Jersey, am I allowed to own fireworks? So there's 50 states in the union. 49 states allow fireworks in some fashion. The only state that doesn't is Massachusetts. Firecrackers. Oh. Am I allowed to go buy firecrackers? In general, if I had, so you have probably have a nationwide audience, David. Yep. So in general, if you're in a major urban area, you're not allowed to use fireworks or firecrackers. If you're in Chicago, L.A., Boston, New York, no. But if you're in a rural area in the same state, you're pretty much okay. Okay, and, and that they're not going to enforce the law or it's legal for you to have fireworks? No, it's legal to have fireworks and fireworks are actually sold in rural areas. Uh, so are there limits like, to what you can buy? Like, what are they, M80s? When I was a kid, M80s were the big um, cherry so bombs. There are limits on the amount of uh, explosive material allowed in fireworks. Right. These so are, this is, we're talking about gun, pat, we're talking about explosive material. Have you been to a gun? I was, to, I went to a couple of gun shows in in Iowa. And it's, you can, I think you can buy plastique or something equal to plastique in, at a gun show. Uh, I'll be honest. I've never been to an Iowa gun show, so I can't speak about whether we can buy plastique and blow things up that way. Uh, but you can buy relatively powerful amounts. Uh, and in the United States, what's been happening is we've been reducing the number of laws preventing people from owning fireworks. But at the same time, is that the NRA doing that? No, I would say that there's just sort of a general groundswell that people really enjoy lighting off fireworks. <laughs> uh, there's something primal about hearing boom, 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 yeah. uh, knowing that I caused it. Uh, but in the United States, while there's been a relaxation of the laws, there's been also a really strong push by the uh, Consumer Protection Bureau to ensure that fireworks are safer. So we're not actually seeing a dramatic increase in the number of people injured. The Consumer Protection Bureau has actually ensured that the fuses all stay lit about the exact same amount of time because a lot of people would get blown up and they go, this, was this lit? I don't know if it's lit. Let me go walk over and investigate and blow up in their face. Uh, there's also a large number of aerial displays. So some people don't like boom, 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 but instead they like watching things go up into the sky and sort of explode into beautiful colors or beautiful patterns. A lot of them had tripods uh, to support themselves, and these tripods were not particularly sturdy, so they'd fall over and these fireworks would shoot along the ground and chase people and people would do all kind of dumb things like jump off buildings when a firework was chasing after them. So the, by making them sturdier, the tripods um, basically, so the fireworks don't fall over, by making sure that the fuses all have pretty much the same length, uh, by making basically quality control uh, and really important for the fireworks industry, the amount of danger has actually gone down while the amount we've blow up every single year has gone up dramatically. Right. In terms of a value judgment, would you agree this is something people should at least outgrow? That once you're 18, <laughs> you should no longer be turned on by. I mean, when I was a kid, blowing something up was, you know, cool. But then I um, discovered pot. Well, and alcohol. Okay. Would you agree that fireworks should not be encouraged? 
Well, let me tell you, David, that I'm married, and to your listeners, I'm married, and my wife loves firework displays. We have traveled all over the world to see various fireworks displays, and telling her that it's something she should outgrow, I think that's not very good for my marriage. Right. Uh, well, there are other ways to create fireworks in a marriage, but they're <laughs> I'm making a joke there. But professional fireworks, I'm talking about, you know, but your neighbor, Bert, you know, in the garage mixing gunpowder you know there's always in every neighborhood there's the there's the guy who puts on a fireworks display every july 4th on the middle of the street and the kids gather around and he tends to uh be an idiot he's missing a finger or two or an eye and he's harmless but he's a bad role model and nobody seems to understand why he's able to still live in that house with all the furniture. Uh, you've got all five hands. All, well, on each what, hand. what all five chat? hands. I'm sorry. All ten For those fingers. listeners, as a podcast, one of the people just said, I want to see how many fingers I have. Oh, okay. I have, I have all ten fingers. And actually, I lit off some fireworks when I was about 14 for, I don't know, about 10 minutes, and I haven't touched fireworks since. Right, I so it shouldn't be in the, the hands. Fireworks. So it shouldn't be in the hands of American citizens. We, we can't trust them, right? It shouldn't be encouraged, right? Um, well, I'll disagree. <laughs> I, I'm As an economist, my personal philosophy is if people want to blow these things up, okay, but we need to have quality control among fireworks, and we need to really make sure when people are blowing things up, they're sober. Yeah. Uh, and or they have not been smoking uh, marijuana or things like and, that. And what about like veterans who have PTSD? Uh, there's actually some real problems with fireworks. There's two groups, as you just said, veterans, especially those uh, who've been in war situations. Uh, but there's also a lot of animal lovers who are really against fireworks. Uh, fireworks going off at all hours of the day and night tend to drive dogs, especially uh, a bit crazy. Uh, they they run away. Uh, they run away. They do silly things, uh, and that. So, what about their rights? What about the rights of dog owners and 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 vets? Before we talk about these fireworks going off in the middle of the night, some tough questions. I'm going to try and avoid them as much as possible, answering them seriously. Well, seriously, th these are really huge public policy questions. You know, uh, do I have the right to blow up fireworks or not? Uh, and I would say in this country, we've decided that if you're in a rural area, you have the right. If you're in an urban area, it's too dangerous. You don't have the right. Right. Uh, is that I, you know, you're a guest on my show, and I've been told I'm rude because I ask questions that are outside the Overton window. So I'm not trying to be rude to you, but no, you no, know no. that I'm just trying to do a show no. here. But it's just, you're an economist, mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't you don't factor in. The, the financial burden when a dog runs away and you have to go look for it because your idiot neighbor is playing with M80s. I mean, that's not part of the economy, the GDP. You don't factor that into fireworks. Well, so what you're asking is you're asking to sort of make intertemporal judgment. So make a neighbor, uh, you're, you're asking us to make judgments between people. All right. So my dog runs away. And I have to go calm it down and sort of, you know, give it dog treats just because my neighbor's stupid. But the neighbor has, you know, 50 friends over and all 50 friends are really enjoying it. 
So it's really hard to make these kind of value judgments of me versus somebody else when these actions actually have an influence in the public sphere. So it's the right of the mob over. I, I, do you mind if I pursue this? I'm not trying to be rude. No, no, I don't. Go ahead, okay. Go ahead. So I have a neighbor, mm-hmm. and he invites his friends over, mm-hmm. and they decide to light off firecrackers. And it's 50 people in a backyard versus mm-hmm. me next door. I'm outvoted. Um, I would say in this country, the majority rules. And you think there aren't. And you think that's OK or you're not willing to make a value judgment? I'm not willing to make the value judgment. I mean, we can have different types of voting. You know, maybe you get more votes. But in general, I think in a participatory, participatory democracy, uh, the minority really sometimes has to listen a little bit more to the majority. Right. That's not what Madison, I mean, if you read the Federalist Papers, they had a fear of the uh, mob. They did. They did. The, the Madisonian fear of the mob. Specifically, you are, you're trying to enjoy your Saturday and a, a mob of 50 people are lighting off fireworks next door to you and you're going to go, well, it's 50 to one. I guess I should just put it. So in, in economics, there, there are no, you don't take into account morality. I will not claim to speak for all economists. This is a tougher show than I thought. <laughs> well, this is, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm an a-hole. I, I'm, I, I don't think I'm, Asking tough questions. I think this country doesn't, I I don't think there's any introspection. I think people just do their jobs without thinking about anything. I'm I'm asking, I'm not trying to be rude to you. I'm just asking a simple, you know, uh, there's no morality, no value judgments when you're, not you, I'm not trying to attack you, but your profession, when you look at numbers and you look at the effects that certain purchases have on society writ large, there's no moral judgment that's. So we have some problems here with things like fireworks, but I'd say we have the same problem with things like alcohol, right? That a number of people drink and then they go off and drive that cause destruction, not only to themselves, but to other people on the road. Uh, And even if they don't hit somebody else on the road, they might rack up somebody's car, things like that. So there's large numbers of things in society that we purchase that are not all benign. Right. And so if you, I think if you were to poll most Americans tomorrow on July 4th, they would say, we're, you know, no sobriety checkpoints. We're all going to be drinking and driving. The majority rules. The police should not stop us from drinking and driving. It's, you know, but there's this minority of mothers against drunk driving who, I don't know, let's talk... So, so let's let's keep going down this path. All right? okay. So the FBI issues a huge book on something called the Uniform Crime Report. So the FBI can track all kind of crime in this country. And uh, it has all kind of really small categories, uh, such as uh, quarantine violations is now a category for right. the FBI, all right? COVID-19. Right. It has polygamy. Uh, it has all kind of these small things that are not what you and I would sort of think of as major crimes, as well as murder, uh, robbery, car theft, these kind of right. things. It does not even list fireworks. 
violations as one of the 20 pages. I um, think because fireworks are gunpowder, and I would assume the NRA, they don't let the, until, re, until last year, the, the FBI couldn't keep track of police officers uh, shooting civilians because of the NRA. So I would assume the NRA, they, they wouldn't allow, the NRA wouldn't allow tracers inside fertilizer. Remember Timothy McVeigh mm-hmm. blew up that building Oklahoma. In, in Oklahoma and mm-hmm. they wanted to put tracers and fertilizer so we could find out where he bought the fertilizer to blow up that building. And the NRA said no tracers. So so I would say to go back to your question about four or five minutes ago, as society, a lot of people are really angry this year because the fireworks have been going off for like six weeks straight at one in the morning continuously. OK, so let's yeah, that's why I invited you. So there is an epidemic of fireworks going there, off like at one in the morning, two in the yeah. morning and three in the and morning. I, and I think society is willing to let your bozo neighbor have fun with his 50 friends the day before the 4th of July, the day after the 4th of July. And there's also fireworks around New Year's Eve. So if it's three or four days a year, I think people in society will go, all right, we can put up with that. Mm-hmm. The problem right now is it would spend probably five or six weeks, depending which city you're in. And it might can be continuing for five or six weeks after the 4th of July. And people are like, no, I don't want to listen to fireworks at one in the morning for, you know, two or three months, especially while I'm in lockdown or in COVID, whether it's required lockdown or it's a voluntary lockdown, because I want my sleep. You know, I'm stressed out enough as it is. And so so in answer to the, the question, there is now an epidemic of people lighting off firecrackers weeks before July 4th. And it's that there are news is reporting that there's basically a, I would call it, yes, an epidemic of fireworks going off okay. all across the country in urban areas. And why is that? Why, why is it? Because so the, what I looked at is a whole bunch of different reasons and a couple of could be economic. Uh, one could be legal. So let's deal with the legal one first that states or cities have actually changed the laws. Uh, and that's really not what's happening. The last time the laws were changed uh, was in 2018. Uh, was Delaware. Delaware made it more permissible to have fireworks. Before that, your birth state, New Jersey, 2017. Uh, But pretty much most states had already allowed it well around 2005, 2006. So we haven't really had any legal changes in the last two years. So we can't use legal changes as an excuse for why there's suddenly an epidemic. As an economist, I always think about price and quantity. uh, And it's not price. The price of these fireworks has not gone down. Back last year, uh, for the first four months of the year, we get most of our fireworks from China. About 95% of all fireworks come from China. And it was $2.60 a kilo imported price, not street price, but imported price. Uh, to the giant wholesalers, it was two sixty a kilo last year. This year, it's two sixty three a kilo. So it went up at $0.03. Cents. So it can't be price. Uh, the other idea is that China might be dumping huge amounts of fireworks on the market, uh, and there's just so much available. It's not that. We actually import about a third less this year than we did at the beginning of last year. Uh, and that's primarily due to the COVID-19 shutdown in China. They stopped producing fireworks for almost a month. Uh, so what's really going on, David? I don't know. I, I, what is going on? 
So my point is that there's a whole bunch of things called opportunity costs. And opportunity costs is what else could you be doing with your time? And right now you're running a show, but you could be doing something else with your time besides running a show. Uh, and a lot of people, because we have so many millions of people unemployed, there's very low opportunity cost of blowing up fireworks. <laughs> If you have nothing, you can't go to the movie theater, you can't go to the bar, you can't go to work at night. Uh -huh. You've already watched Netflix for now six weeks. <laughs> so, and there's, you know, you've seen pretty much every show you wanted to see. Uh -huh. right? So there's a lot of boredom. That's on the people who are using fireworks. But there's another thing that's going on that's just as important. There's a lot of people who are entrepreneurial in our society. right? And when you're unemployed and you have nothing to do and you need some money, drive to a rural area. So here... You're t right now talking to somebody in Boston. Right? I teach at Boston University. I live very close to the university. We have a lot of fireworks in New Hampshire. You take an hour and a half drive up to New Hampshire. You fill up your trunk. You drive <laughs> back to the city. That's a three-hour basically drive. It's a $500 investment. And if you can sell $1,000 or $1,500, you just made $1,000 pay for that day. So it's an entrepreneurial spirit. And if you have no job to go to, you're willing to take that drive. You're willing to take that chance. You're willing to have a load of fireworks that if you get rear-ended might blow your car up. Mm -hmm. It and would blow up your car. Probably. I mean, it's right over the gas tank for many cars. Right. Right. But if it's a full economy and you're earning, you know, 15 or $20 an hour and you get good pay coming in, you're not going to waste your time driving up to New Hampshire to load up your trunk with fireworks to make 500 bucks, maybe. Well, that's interesting. So you're saying this arrested. is a symptom of a larger problem. I, I believe it is. Uh, I, I see. COVID-19 has really caused a lot of people to be both bored, so the supply side and the demand side. Right, right. You also wrote about people hoarding toilet paper, which I don't mm. understand. That was a couple of months ago, too. Yeah, why, why do people? The first thing some people think is, oh, my God, I have to go get a year's worth of toilet paper. That's not the first thing that, I mean, I'm a vegan, so maybe that's part of it. But what... what Maybe we have a Freudian analyst coming up in a couple of hours on the show. I'll ask him, why do people immediately think the economy's shutting down? I better get toilet paper. Wouldn't you hoard food first before you would hoard toilet paper? So as an economist, uh, we actually look at a whole bunch of things. And one of the things is in a risky situation, people like to eliminate at least some of the risk. Well, they eliminate something. That's why they need the toilet paper. And if you can eliminate some of the risks in your life, you just feel better when life is basically getting out of control. Right. I can't control everything, but let me control a few things. Uh, and that is a very common reaction. And if I can ensure that I can go to the bathroom, well, at least I've eliminated some of the risks that's relatively cheap. And it's a storable item. If I hoard food... Uh, okay, maybe I can hoard cans of soup, and that'll last years. Uh, but any kind of fresh food, it's not going to last. You know, that's and a quick example of this is when people were hoarding toilet paper, one of the most popular things on the Internet was what to do with bananas after they spoiled. And banana bread went nuts a few months ago hmm. because everyone started hoarding bananas and then suddenly realized, wait, bananas don't last three months. Right. They only last a few days or a few weeks, depending on where you bought them. So people started making banana bread only because they were hoarding bananas. Now, we, we have Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. He's a professor of psychoanalysis and, and a Freud apologist coming on the show. He comes on every Thursday to record with us. Freud talks about the anal stage and it's about control, that if you have bad 
toilet training, according to Sigmund Freud, you tend to be greedy and you become a hoarder. I'm being serious, right? Doesn't he talk about the oral stage and the anal stage? So I would like an economist who really doesn't study a lot of Sigmund Freud. (laughs) But you you say that people are hoarding toilet paper because they feel they don't have control. So I think it's like it's it's this is a country that went through a bad anal phase when they were kids. (laughs) That's how I explain hoarding toilet paper. The the feeling of control is hoarding toilet paper. That is bizarre. I I would say not the feeling of control, but if you're going to be locked in your house for a few months and there's a chance we might be locked in our homes again, what are the things that would ensure that 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 experience was pleasant? And let me tell you that we first saw hoarding of toilet paper in Hong Kong and in Australia well before it got to this country. And let me say that Yes, I wrote about hoarding toilet paper. I watched this. And did I go out and buy some ahead of time? No. So was I caught short? Yes. So just because you notice it doesn't necessarily mean you act properly. Anyways, Australia last week had another run on toilet paper because they saw another spike in (laughs) COVID-19 infections. How do you see this? How do you see this COVID-19 affecting unemployment? How bad is unemployment? We were told the numbers went up this week. Employment numbers went up. Uh, the employment numbers went up and we picked up roughly another 5 million people who are employed. Um, many people three months ago were really concerned about unemployment. The peak of unemployment happened in the Great Depression in 1932 when basically one out of every four people were unemployed. And we never got that close. And the numbers now are around 11%, which is close, close to one out of every 10. And they seem to be coming down. But... We don't know what's going to happen in the second wave if there right. is a second wave. How bad is the economy even for the people who are working? How bad is the economy? Um, for, for people would, who have jobs. I mean, do, you know, we talk about you're an economist, so you look at numbers and we're told. All but, the time I look at numbers. So the unemployment rate is between 11 and 13 percent. Is that Depending an accurate number? It. Is that an accurate number? Hmm. Uh, Going way off topic on from fireworks to uh, is the unemployment oh, rate just, accurate? I don't know. It, like, is it? A, is it? What are we measuring when we say the economy is getting better? I mean, are these yardsticks really? Uh, so, is the unemployment number accurate? I would say it's as good a number as we're ever going to get. The government rings well. Before COVID-19, it used to ring doorbells and call people on the phone. Now it's just calling people on the phone. Right. But it calls about 55,000 households every single month. And of those households, the average household in the United States has a little over two people. So it's contacting over 100,000 people. This is not a political poll where they sampled 500 likely voters. This is they sampled over 100,000 people to come right. up with those kind of numbers. Um, and very large samples don't guarantee accuracy, but it certainly helps. Right, uh, And they asked some really detailed questions about what people were doing in the past week. And if a person says, I was at work, they're employed. I mean, I work for pay. There are a few people who are considered at work who aren't getting paid. But if you say, I was searching for work and I didn't have a job, you're considered basically unemployed. Uh, there are a few other categories. Right. These yards, maybe we need to reevaluate what these yardsticks are measuring 
who determines what is being measured inside that yardstick? Because I know that before a presidential election, there are pollsters who can walk into their candidate's office and say, you're going to win. Look at these numbers. And then they lose. I mean, you can you can make numbers. I saw that three, three years ago. Right? Yeah. I mean, you can make numbers. Uh, if you're collecting numbers, you can make your boss happy. Right. Could. Yeah. Could. But I would say the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which publishes the unemployment numbers every single month, does its darndest to be apolitical and to ensure the unemployment figures and the employment figures are as apolitical as possible. Last question about academia. (laughs) Do we encourage critical thinking in academia or do we encourage students to accept things? I, I'll, I think I think academia now trains students not to question anything. I, I'm stunned by the, the number of Americans who lack critical thinking, who just see things on the surface and accept them. Hmm. David, one of my problems is that I've been at Boston University for a very long time, so I can only tell you at Boston University, and in Boston University, I've only been in the Questrom School of Business for a very long time, so I can't even tell you about all parts of the university right. since there's about, you know, 50,000 faculty, staff, and students all at the university, but I can tell you at the Questrom School of Business, we encourage critical thinking, and just saying, yeah, 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 isn't going to get you a decent grade. Okay. As a matter of fact, last night I gave my final exam, end of the season. I'm on vacation right now. And the last question is, basically, did you disagree with the professor? And all the ones who said, oh, the professor was right, 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 right. Everything he said, uh, they didn't do very well on that exam question. Yeah. I think we have a problem in this country, though. I, I think we have, I think they've, I think they wrung out our ability to think critically. Let me ask you a harder question. Okay. If you believe that, did we ever have a moment in our history where we all thought critically? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think uh, that there was a time when you knew not to trust advertising. I think there was a time in the 60s and the 70s when celebrities, certainly musicians and people of some kind of critical stature wouldn't do commercials because they, we had a a generation trained to mistrust corporate America. So at least we, we had critical thinking when it came to what was being sold to us. And now I think we have several generations of kids who think that if somebody says something, it has to be true. And that critical thinking that lack of critical thinking manifests itself in the in the world of social media where you have people sending you stuff that they find on Twitter and Facebook that if you have an IQ above two, you would know that this is from The Onion. I mean, how many smart people, purportedly smart people, send you articles from The Onion as proof that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders shouldn't be president. I mean, I, I don't think we have the critical thinking that some generations had. That's why social media 
is such a cesspool. Well, so I'd like to, since my time seems to be up yes. uh, on my slot, what I'd like to say is use some critical thinking before letting off fireworks. Fireworks are pretty dangerous. <laughs> no, 10,000 people a year get injured by fireworks, and they really, you know, they make great colors, incredible loud noises. People really enjoy them. But use some critical thinking this July 4th before going boom, 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 especially at one in the morning, and especially if your neighbor has PTSD or dogs or cats right. that are really scared of loud noises. Thank you, Professor Jay Zagorski. How can people follow you on Twitter? How can they get in touch with you? Certainly go to the conversation and read Why Are So Many People Lighting Off Fireworks by Professor Jay Zagorski. If people want to follow you, how would they do that? So my Twitter handle is prof underscore J underscore Z. Prof J-Z. Jay-Z. Remember. Yeah. That's a good name. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. When we come back, hopefully, we will be joined by the brilliant Eddie Pepitone. I was just reading. I was just reading in your email how the one thing you won't do is argue <laughs> with the guest. <laughs> I think I owe our previous guest an apology. Wow, that's uh, hi. That's, uh, shocking, shocking coming from you. Uh, I'm good. How are you, babe? Uh, I think I'm looking for a fight. I had a really nice guy on who wanted to talk about fireworks. And I think I just proceeded to ask one difficult question after another because uh, I should probably be in the woods. <laughs> you look great. Oh, thank you. I'm making this pandemic sing. <laughs> <laughs> Are you as angry as I am? I am very angry. I'm like very in a rage, angry. and I and I know who to blame, even if they're not responsible. But I do know who to blame. What your last guest? I anybody <laughs> anybody who isn't focusing on the plight of the ninety nine percent unions. I agree. I agree. And I just like you. I I just you know it's time for baseball bats to come out. I think I I thought I felt like that long ago. I felt like that long ago, and now it's it's reached um, preposterous uh, proportions. You know, people are talking like Biden is the answer. <laughs> Look, I'm full of shit, and you're full of shit. We're all full of shit, True. but True. some people are really full of shit. Some people build their lives on a, on, a, on pillars of lies. These mm -hmm. building well, blocks you. of thank lies. You. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it starts in academia. It, it starts in corporate America. And it's spread on television. Speaking of which, you have a, a special mm -hmm. For the Masses streaming on Amazon and iTunes. Tell me about For the Masses. Okay, well, uh, it's an hour special. I'm very uh, proud of it. Um, I like playing it and looking at myself, particularly my eyes. I love my eyes. 
Um, and that's about it. No, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a, uh, you know, I, I, I hit the, you know me, I like talk about how the end of civilization is coming. And like you said, I'm full of shit, but. You're not. Uh, you are well, not. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, people are digging it and, and it seems like my apocalyptical viewpoint is gaining traction. <laughs> but you do it in a way that yeah. people can relate to. Like, you know, why don't cab drivers speak English and why does Doritos have an 800 number? You know, who's who's <laughs> who's so stupid that they have to call the that kind of stuff. So it's apocalyptic. You're really going after the powers that be in a, in a palatable way that we can all digest. Yeah. The first 40 minutes are just Uber jokes. <laughs> you know, I really I just the word Uber is funny. Uh, the concept of getting into. Uh, the concept of a gig economy, hilarious, that there's no <laughs> unions, no way to make a living. Uh, you know, Uber, very funny. Um, and and then after Uber, yes, uh, a la Seinfeld, you know, uh, cheese, <laughs> cheese and pizza crust. That has always been a staple of what I do. <laughs> there is this, this is, there's this gigantic turd. You're at a cock. This is what I see America being. You're invited to this cocktail party called America. And there is this gigantic turd that's stinking up the party. And you can't eat and you're sick to your stomach. But it's considered impolite to say what stinks and why don't we clean it up and get rid of this? Well, you're being rude to the person who threw this party and you should trust them to know that if there's a turd that's stinking up the party, it's their party. They should remove the turd. And you're you're a bad guest by talking about the turd. Uh, well, yeah, I was I was just talking to somebody. And you know what, though, the way things are going, so many people now are going to get their face rubbed in that so-called turd and people have no choice but to take action wake up and call out the turd you know it seems like it seems and i have been heartened by the protests have you yeah yeah i, yeah, I don't think I they've think, gone far enough I, i'm not talking about you know oh. I'm, I, I don't want them setting fire to you know that i don't think they're going far enough with going after I mean, they're going after the right people, but they really need mm -hmm. to start going mm -hmm. after Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, the names. I want to know. Right. I want to know right. who the head of AT&T is. <laughs> I, I, I want, I, they should be outside the homes of Warren effing Buffett, yeah. who has made his fortune in the insurance racket with his homespun right. humor. We need to be well, going after Bill Gates. Mm hmm. Well, I think I think and this is what I love about what I've seen in the protests is that, you know, young people, I think they see through this goddamn scam that is called America. You know, they see through it. They do, you know, uh, and 
you know, I mean, they were here in L.A. They were walking through Beverly Hills chanting, eat the rich. Good. um, Which is on the right track. Yeah, but that's a good way to lose weight if you just eat the rich because they're all (laughs) eating disorders. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they do. But um, I don't know. So anyway, I I do think there are silver linings uh, happening. But, you know, you're angry and I'm angry, too, man. I mean, the plague is stupidity, right? Lack of critical thinking, lack of. Lack of pointing at the the people who are creating your pain. Yes. Yes. So to me, you know, it's July 4th weekend. God bless America. Mm -hmm. I think by attacking America, you're letting Mm -hmm. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon off the hook. This has nothing to do with America. This is about Uh, the richest 1%. So when people attack America and burn the flag... You're you're letting you're letting them off the hook by making it about flag burning. You need to be burning pictures of Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Yeah. What about Gates? Why are you uh, Gates? uh, What do you I mean, besides him being an oligarch? He supposedly has this foundation, right? Mm-hmm. Is is he doing good things no. with the foundation? No. No, he's not? No. He's not? No. Yeah. Yeah. But he'll tell no. you that. I mean, do you want me to answer no, that? Or you're my guest. No. I don't want to. I do. I do. I do. He is dictating to African nations what kind of seeds to plant, what right. kind of medicine to buy to go after polio he he is making mm-hmm. deals with merck and pharmaceutical companies to get certain african countries buying medicine and seeds that mm-hmm. are actually not that good for them he's dictating uh how we educate our kids he's yeah. a proponent of homeschooling remote learning charter schools and he backs it wow. up with lots of money. What are you Googling? Me? Yeah, it looks like you're... I'm not Googling it. Why do you think I'm Googling it? You look like you're looking at the chat room. Oh, no. I I have new I have new progressive lenses. And that's not to brag. I have that kind of lifestyle. Uh, so I have to kind of look... I have to do different angles now through the progressives. I'm not Googling anything. Oh, you look, you know? you're turning up your nose on me. But I like the word yeah, progressive. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> Flo's uh, progressive. Yeah. You know, Flo, Flo from progressive. <laughs> I bet she's oh. voting for Biden with those residuals. Right. I bet she's very progressive. How long has Flo been with progressive? <laughs> Now you're getting to the heart of my act. Um, yeah, you know what's funny is is I know the woman who plays Flo out here. You know, that's the beauty of L.A. is you can walk in to a Trader Joe's and see the people who have completely sold out, who sold their souls. You know, she's um, Flo from Progressive, and she has to be making. Right. Oh, I mean, my God. Right. Yeah. She's making good money and she. Yeah. And she has to be miserable. 
I would hope. <laughs> I, you know me, I always call out like my friends for doing commercials. You know what I mean? Like, because it's part of the, you know, it's like to me, I, the one thing I can't say, like, let's take Alec fucking Baldwin. Okay. He, he says he's a liberal and he's shilling for Capital One. I'm sorry, but you cannot do that. Tina Fey, oh, my God. You know, what won't she sell? You know what I mean? Right. They all are like, oh, you know, they're the boutique liberals. Mm -hmm. They they are the the PC liberal. They are the, the liberals who, like you were talking about, do not go after the right people. Right. They do not go after the right people and they want it both ways. Oh, look at how liberal I am. Please buy Capital One. Please buy Capital One. How much do you pay your nanny? Does she have kids in Guatemala that she doesn't get to see? What do you pay your nanny? Does she have health care? Mine does not. <laughs> you don't even have kids and yet you have a nanny. What's that about? <laughs> uh, I just enjoy uh, watching. <laughs> <laughs> so 70% of Americans mm -hmm. say, this is before the pandemic, say they can't pay their yeah. bills or they're afraid they can't pay their bills. This is is it 70%? 70% of Americans. Yeah. So what the fuck are we talking about, folks? <laughs> what, what are we talking about? Why? I mean, yeah. this is the turd. There's this gigantic turd that is stinking up our party. And it's considered impolite to to talk about the turd. There's a gigantic turd. Well, that's partly because we've been raised and inculcated and indoctrinated into believing that we're very special people and also into believing that it's our fault if we're not a success. Right. It's personal, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, that that bullshit. I, I, I mean? blame myself. I keep the insanity. You've, you're, you're married, and I mean this, to one of the greatest people in the world. Aww. Kind, Aww. smart, funny. And I don't think I'm violent. I think I think you would say that all your success flows from flow from progress. No, all your all your success flows from this woman. Is that a fair statement? Yes. OK, I forgot what I was going to. You were talking. Oh, about, oh. Uh, but I blame. I went, that yeah. I, oh, yeah. But you, you've been in relationships where I don't want to brag. Where you, you're with a crazy person and, oh, and you yeah. keep thinking, well, this person, I'm going to present to this crazy person my case and they're going to change. They're going to here's my legal pad. Here are my 14 points. And this person's <laughs> not going to change. And that's, you know, I I wake up every morning, feel like a failure. I am a failure. And I keep thinking. It's my fault. And I'm just going to, I'm going to, you well, know, I'm in, in a bad relationship. Case in your case, it is. <laughs> um, 
you are an exception to what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I mean, this whole that's why the turd isn't named, though, is because we are trained to blame ourselves and people live in a fantasy world. There are so many distractions. Uh, but seriously, I, I feel like that is all coming crashing down. Right. It's, it's crashing down, isn't it? Yeah. That's why on this show, I ask people not to curse. Why? Because I want to be rude. I want to ask... We had a candidate on earlier, and okay. he's very sweet, and, and everybody mm -hmm. should vote for him. And I asked him about, he's running against this Frank Pallone. Is the guy you attacked? I think I, I'm, I'm, about, I'm about to attack you. I'm a, well, that's fine. Okay. And I asked I him, understand you. I know that you are essentially not well. <laughs> like, I, I understand um, who you are. Is that Hollywood you know calling? I mean? Do you want to answer that? That could yeah. be Hollywood. Three pictures. Three <laughs> or I don't do it. Yeah, that's right. Three picture deal. Sorry, David. But so I, I. I you want to wait till that passes? That's stupid. I'm sorry. I can't believe I'm one of the last few people who have a landline and all I get are insane robocalls, you know, insane robocalls. But go ahead. Well, let's see who it is. They don't leave messages, you know, but you know what I like to do? I pick it up and I go, who is this? And then they start um, off this script that they're reading. And I go, you sons, I am on no call list. I am calling the police, even though I am for defunding them. Do you understand? <laughs> what are you doing with your rage? Because you, you can't go on stage. So who do you take it out on? Uh, Basil? No. I, uh, I, uh, you know, that's a great question, dude. I'm now doing things like and I kid you not, sound baths. Do you know what a sound bath is? No. Yeah, well, Google it. It's beautiful stuff. It's uh, Buddhist, yeah, ASMR, stuff like ASMR. Like, just gore, like, this sound baths are a little different. They're like Buddhist singing bowls. Buddhist singing bowls. Do you know what a, a, a singing bowl is? No. See, that's why I don't respect you. Yes, you're very, yes, you're very informed no, uh, politically and about the power structures. And you, you, you did a podcast with Ralph Nader and Steve Sproven and this, this and this. But you don't know the other side, which is the inner work. You have so much inner I agree. work to do. I agree. Yes. Yes. And start with the Buddhist singing bowl. Then go to a salad bowl, whatever. David, you need to get bowls in your life. <laughs> <laughs> what is a singing bowl? Uh, it's a beautiful. Somebody wrote, grow a pair of bowls. Yeah, that's very good. So you're that's reading the chat good. room. You see now, I, what I said. I can't help but read it. It pops up. What do I do? But I asked the guest not to read the chat room. And then I learned how to read the chat room. And then all of a sudden, 
instead of focusing on my guests, I'm reading the chat room. You know what I found because I have a podcast uh, Monday through Friday, and uh, I find the chats far more interesting than what I, <laughs> I know. I and I find them far more wittier and and interesting. I don't know what that is. I think because they don't have the pressure of you know performing and uh, and they're just brighter than me. Yeah, I actually I had a I came up with a competition for them because. Somebody was talking about Bob Dylan and scatological humor. They started coming up with funny Bob Dylan titles that were scatological in nature. So I decided yeah. I, I'm trying to find it. I had an idea that you would love. I uh, love Dylan. Did you hear that Bob Dylan's getting back together? Yes. <laughs> That's a Bobby Slayton that, joke. I, I was going to mention that was a Bobby Slayton joke. Have you seen him? Uh, not for about a couple of years. And he was on his way to Italy. I think he's doing fine. <laughs> he, yeah. What, what was the competition? All right. I had a, uh, well, the idea was, you're going to love this. Are you still a vegan? Yes. Are you? Of course. And we've been going after no evil foods. Do you know about no evil foods? No. No evil foods. Two New Yorkers started it. They moved to a right to work state, North Carolina. And they're in about 5,000 retail outlets across America. Yeah. And then their workers try to unionize, and they fired some of the workers, and they crushed the union. And no, no evil foods. They gave $5,000 to the Chiapas School in Mexico because they identify with the Zapateros, and they're talking about yeah. you know, doing well, but doing good, that kind of garbage. Are you talking about the Zapatistas? The Zapatistas, Commander Zero. Yeah, don't say Zapateros. Uh, they're the opposite of the Zapatistas. The Zapateros are just, uh, they just, they're very involved with tasers and hence the word zap. Oh, I'm anyway, sorry. Anyway, bad, bad joke. But, you know, I go for it. I swing for the fences and that's the result. Babe Ruth <laughs> and Mickey Mantle led the league in strikeouts. <laughs> Absolutely. But tell me, so Maury, Mo, it's more no evil foods. What do they do? Are they, is they are they supposedly vegan while they're, breaking unions? Yeah, they're vegan, but they won't allow their workers to unionize. So I thought I would come up with a competition in the chat room to come up with dishes, union busting dishes that Ooh, we can pitch to no evil foods because we have... <laughs> One of their organized, one of the workers who was fired, we, we were having her back on the show next week. Oh, my God. And so, uh, you know, uh, I'm telling people about, to I've been telling people to boycott no evil foods. Lane came up with mo evil foods. And I thought, what about a competition to come up with dishes that we could pitch to no evil foods? So, for example, you've heard of crab cakes. They would serve scab cakes. See how the competition works? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm thinking there's got to be a dish with Taft-Hartley in it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Taft-Hartley, um, remember Marriott Hartley, Taft-Hartley's daughter? She used to do those you, great. She used to do those great commercials with James Gardner for Polaroid. Remember Marriott oh, Hartley? They were you know, those commercials were so wry. They were so wry. I miss the age of wryness. Uh -huh. You know, 
where Marianne Hartley would look at the camera and just kind of give a knowing <laughs> wink. And, and you felt like this is America. Everything is okay. Uh, we're all in on the joke mm-hmm. with Marianne Hartley and James Garner shilling for who they shill for. Polaroid. And when you found Polaroid. out, I was with you when you found out that they weren't married. You were. I remember when you discovered that James Gardner and Marion Hartley had this flirtatious relationship, selling Polaroid cameras. And when you dis, you were so disillusioned. Uh, I yeah. It took me a long time re- to recover, but with the help of a therapist and ayahuasca, I was able to uh, recover. What is ayahuasca? Is that like a hallucinogen? Look, as Louis Armstrong said, if you have to ask, you don't know. Did he say that? <laughs> he did. He was on ayahuasca at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's supposedly a uh, Native American root that when you take it, you s- experience your own death. Um, and supposedly it's supposed to lead to great liberation. But I know someone who's taken it and they're a complete fucking idiot. <laughs> It made it made them an idiot, or no, no. I I don't think it's changed them that much, you know. But seriously, that's that's what I understand it is, and it's it was very trendy uh, a while ago, and um, now it's not as trendy. But and what are you eating these days? Uh, what do you live well, on? What do I live on? I, you know, I don't go out anymore. Like I, I'm not one of the people who order out, you know, because I'm being safe with that. So we go shop. I, I don't know. You know, all the vegan stuff we do, we do, we do. Have you tried no evil food (laughs) with their John grilled unions? They're, they're delicious grilled unions. That's funny. I didn't look at the chat room. So I have to uh, hang on. I have to go back. Dan, are you keeping track of their union busting blooming union onion? Oh, that's good. Magnus that's from good. Sweden. Yes, sir. I'm watching it. Buster Thermidor. Kathy Heartless. Uh, all right. Wobbly Jello. That's funny. The wob. Oh, see. They're, they're, oh, the wobbly. The wobbly. Yeah. Uh, Big Bill Hayward something. Uh, yeah. There was power in the uh, Dude, you know, getting back to the anger thing, man, it really is a thing. Like, where do you put it? I mean, do you take it to the streets? But there's a pandemic, right? But well, it, it turns out you don't get, if you're protesting, you don't catch it. I was thinking about that. You yeah, don't, you're outside. But yes, okay, but being out is being outside like you're completely safe? No. If you're wearing a mask uh-huh and yeah. you're outdoors, you're not going to get it. Okay. Plus, Mace kills it. Mace. <laughs> they're, they're not yeah. finding any spikes. Did you Have you protested? Have you been out there? I was, I was A in one, yeah. Yes. Yes. And I was, you know, a little scared, but, uh, you know, I kept my distance. I was just watching it streaming. Right. Let's take some questions for Eddie Pepitone. His new special is For the Masses. And let's go to Andrew. You raised your hand. 
What is your question for the great Eddie Pepitone? Hi, Eddie. <clears throat> thank, hey. hey, thank you. Thank you for the laughs. Um, oh, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, you you got to work on the inside, too. Uh, yeah. So, so being in the grocery store during the uh-huh. first days of the pandemic. Uh, right. I'm looking around and I'm, I actually need some toilet paper. <laughs> and there's right. no toilet paper. And so I'm, I, I solve problems for a living. So except my uh-huh. own, except my own problem. <laughs> Isn't that then, always the way? Isn't that always the way? I'm very good at giving advice to other people. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what are these people doing with all this toilet paper? They were people with shopping carts full. But you know what it was? The, the, the paper towels were all gone. And toilet paper is easy to use to clean up as well. So they most likely were disinfecting with toilet paper rather than paper towels. That was the only thing I could come up with. Wow. Do I don't think? think so. I don't think so. I don't think thank you're you for right, that. I, Thank you, Andrew. You know why I don't? Uh, you know why I don't need a lot of toilet paper? I taught this to my kids. Yeah. I wipe before I go. <laughs> I've been trying to get a thank you. You're the only person who thinks that's funny. Well, I have cats, and so I use a cat. Use a cat. <laughs> Let's go to Toronto, where Steve is standing by. Oh, Steve from Toronto. I think I know Steve. Steve? Even though there's probably a lot of Steves in Toronto. Hey, uh, Eddie, it probably is the Steve you're thinking about. How's it going? Hey, good, man. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I couldn't resist, you know, you were, I heard you talking about the Buddhism and meditation and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Trying to get Dave to meditate and et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just curious about, so when you started to sit, to meditate, mm-hmm. um, what, uh, what changes did you notice in, in the, the quality of, uh, you, the work that you do, like a, a acting or, or stand up or writing or anything like that? What, were, were there any any big changes that you noticed? Uh, well, let me say this, Steve. First of all, I resent your question. <laughs> uh, get him. Get him, Eddie. Get him. <laughs> Mess him up. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, I, I got to tell you, and this, this hooks in to being uh, sober, because if I weren't sober, I would not be meditating. I would not be uh, a person who who uh, seeks to do that. Um, and so the the things that I notice is that I become more fearless. I become more fearless if I do that kind of thing because uh, I ju- I don't. And I'm not even sure why that is. But I and I also am able to access everything not ever, just about everything that's going on with me. So it, it really, it really does help, even though it's frustrating. And I'm, 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 I'm actually a very sporadic, uh, meditator. And now I follow, you know, there's these guided meditations and now I have this, um, meditation guru who says, okay, close your eyes. Okay, now we're going to do 30 seconds of breathing, and then we're going to do 30 seconds of checking our Facebook timeline. <laughs> and, then, 
And after we do that, I want everybody to breathe for another 45 seconds and then open the New York Times um, and see what the live updates are in COVID. And before, before you meditate today, I just want to say they have found a possible second pandemic. Here we go. Here we go. That might be a, a different type of meditation to, to bathe your brain in so much negativity that it just shuts it all out. Like, you know, you're, oh. you, you traumatize the brain to the point where it just well, can't Dave, receive are it. Are you like, like me, David, that you ferociously take in uh, and just ideas of, you know, uh, just the news, first of all, like you ferociously take that in, no matter how bad it is. It's like an addiction, is it not? To like, to all of this collapse. Well, I don't watch television. On. I find that that's if you great. sit down, if you don't watch MSNBC, you're okay. Near that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't go near that. Even though once in a while I will check up on CNN to see, quote unquote, the latest. Yeah, the latest. John, how are you? I'm fine. I assume you hear me. Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, hi, Eddie. I met you at the uh, Big Bernie rally, like I think it was two days before Super oh. Tuesday, and you gave me your cell phone number. I was, I'm was i a vegan who was trying to get you to help out with the National yes. Rights Day. Remember? I with sure, the what? Sure with the what? National, National Animal Rights Day. It's something that's been going Whatever on for happened. 10 years. Whatever well, happened. You never got The reason you never got anything from us because we had to go virtual. It was going to be a live right. event, but because of the virus situation, we had to go on. To, uh, we made a massive Zoom uh, thing out right. of it. So I guess right. I do have your cell phone number, and I'm not spam calling you. I don't have your landline. So <laughs> <laughs> I could send you a link to the uh, videos that we did. It, it was uh, pretty huge. Yeah. We had a lot of people on. On the Zoom. Well, how come you didn't ask me to be on the Zoom thing? Well, if it was a live event, we'd possibly want some comedy, but because of oh, the situation, we, yeah. No, we no, no. Things. I was yeah. just wondering if you're like every other Hollywood shit I deal with. Like, <laughs> oh, Eddie, we want you for this. We want you for that. And then I never hear a goddamn thing. I think actually one of my, um, Fellow organizers might have contacted you at some point, but anyway, yeah, as yeah, yeah, we were still thinking it might be a live event, but it didn't happen. But anyway, oh, okay. my question anyway. is, yeah, mm-hmm. did you go vegan before David? Did you know before this that yeah. David was vegan? Yeah, and how'd you feel about Bernie, uh, you know, dropping out? Well, for, let, let me do the last question first. I was really disappointed that I felt that Bernie did not take the gloves off when he had to. And I have to say now I, I have, I do not have an original thought in my head. I am kind of, I, I am kind of a disciple of Chris Hedges. Like I follow whatever he says. And he says that in 2016, Bernie should have started a third party. And, and then now it seems from the, you know, uh, the Hedges people that what we're, talking about is that bernie uh is a careerist ultimately bernie bernie wants to play ball and have a nice career uh so i i'm definitely disappointed in bernie and bernie ain't the answer i mean i really i really dug what he did uh but at the end i feel like wow bernie 
I'm a little pissed off. And then the first thing is, yes, I'm always ahead of David in anything progressive. Yeah, I was a vegan uh, before David. When did you I go vegan? Like, when did we go vegan, Kat? How long? Almost a decade ago. Almost a decade ago. I went point. vegetarian in 2004, but I didn't go vegan. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't. Uh, well, we did it a decade ago. Uh, but yeah, you were still supporting the dairy industry. Your love of cheese is legendary. Um, well, since the pandemic, you know, I since the pandemic, I've been vegan. So, oh, so you've only been vegan for for three months? I, I would be vegan part of the week. But, you know, in New York, there's pizza. So it's hard. Ooh, I know. I know. But I just think of, uh, uh, you know, the dairy farms, you know, which they rip are brutal. They, they yes, rip that. male. They rip the baby bulls from the mother. That's what veal is. Yep. And and well, yeah. And and cows, they rip the baby calf from the mother and the mother screams yeah. for for days, you know, so. So she's and, and then they just keep milking her. And the, if you continue to milk her, she'll continue to produce milk for no baby. Also, this 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 vegan. I mean, look at all the infection coming from uh, these slaughterhouses. Zoonotic. Look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at it. I mean, it's all based in animal. Well, these fucking pandemics, right? They're based in animal cruelty. Uh, talk about the turd that isn't named. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Yes. You know? yes. Yes. Let's go to San Francisco. Justin, how are you? Hey, Justin. Hi. Yeah, hi. Eddie, I just want to let you know I'm a huge fan of your pretty faces going to hell. Oh, my God. One of my favorite shows on TV. Cartoon and, uh, Network. And and I am uh, really uh, hoping that you guys, the cast, is going to be able to get together and make another season, despite uh, our our uh, pandemic. Is there any hope for that? Uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you know, Adult Swim, and this ties back into what David was talking about, you know, and we were talking about the concentration of wealth. Adult Swim, I believe, was bought by AT&T. It was part but, of, yeah, it's part of Turner. Yeah. And so so yeah. they were bought and they decided that your pretty face has uh, seen its peak and they they said they're not going to renew us. We were supposed to do a finale special. We ha they are giving us a special to do that'll wrap everything up. And uh, of course, that is shelved until a, a date to be determined if it even happens at this point. But yeah, thanks for being a fan of that, Justin. That was that that was a real fun show to do. The head of AT and T, his last name is Stanky. Did you know that? Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? And he has no background in entertainment. He comes from telecommunications. And he grew yeah. up with the last name Stanky. How <laughs> sympathetic do you think he's going to be towards comedians with the last name Stanky? <laughs> Mr. Stanky. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
by the way, what smells in here? Anyway, <laughs> please pick up your pretty face. I mean, he's just he he runs. Let's see. I guess he runs Adult Swim, the Cartoon Network, mm-hmm. TBS. That's right, AT and T. And he's just begging you. You all know Mr. Stanky. Say hello to Mr. Stanky. Hi, Mr. Stanky. Uh huh. He's just begging you to make a joke. So you go. That's it. I'm getting rid of all comedy. I'm going to wipe oh, out all God. comedy from HBO. He he runs yeah. HBO. Comedy is doomed when you have a person named Stanky running the show. Well, you know, I feel like we're in such a uh, you know decline that. And I think comedy clubs, we have to start opening up tragedy clubs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like people who just come on and, and, and tell tragic stories like, hi, folks, how are you? Um, I had to drown my child today. Because <laughs> I, Wait, I uh, thought you said have- I thought you were going to talk about tragedy. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> See, this is because you don't do spiritual work. Um, you know, you you have looked into the abyss and you enjoy it. I mean, whereas most people look into the abyss and recoil, you've looked into the abyss and said, hello, old friend. <laughs> but here's the tragedy club. It goes like this. Here's a tragedy. And. Uh, it's a stand-up tragedy. Hi, folks. I I I, uh, I had to uh, suffocate my child oh, because Jesus. we ran out. Jesus, we we ran out of food. Uh, thank you, thank you. These are the jokes, folks. These are the jokes, folks. These, no, these are the tragedies, folks. Get with it, not the jokes. Anyway, anyway, it's it's dark humor. I don't think so. I know you don't because, you know, by the way, the anger thing is a very important thing to help. Are you seeing a shrink, Dave? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, yeah, he should be let go. Oh, he yeah. is not doing. Yeah, no, I, I it's important, man, to, to have uh, some. What do you works. think I suffer from? In all seriousness, if you were to diagnose me, you've known me for a long time. What do you? Um. I think you some. I think you something. I think the technical term, and I'm not really good at psychological technical terms, but I think the technical term in your case would be just assholeism. <laughs> I think Karen Horning, you know, who was a descendant of Freud, Carl Jung talked a lot about asshole. Right. Um, Her name was Karen yeah. Horney, by the way. There was a Freud. Horning. Horning. Horny. It was pronounced okay. horny. Wasn't it? Was it? I think Karen Horney was her name. Well, I think you see things the way you like to see them. You should come back. Do you know Ethan Hershenfeld? His dad is a no. Freudian psycho. Oh, really? And he comes on the show now. Dr. Phil. He does? He, he's does, gonna, he, does he help you? Well, he's a Freudian analyst, and he's a, he's, an, a, he's a Freud apologist. And he's got me really turned on to Freud. And I've been reading. Are you serious? Yeah. And Freud got a lot of. Freud got a lot of things right. Yeah. Like cocaine. Like he was. (laughs) That is. No, no, he did. The uh, destructive impulse. The, you know. uh, Thanatos. Thanatos. The the wish to die. 
Yes. And yes, let's talk about a- Thanatos because I think mm-hmm. it's Eros and mm-hmm. Thanatos. And you can't be. A- I have avocado Thanatos toast. <laughs> Boy, I really love humor, and I I love this podcast. (laughs) Thanatos, you can't be a great comedian if all you want is arrows. You have to have Thanatos. No doubt. No doubt. Self-destructive. I'm sorry, what? We, we, our destructive impulse is very big, but comedians are there to tear down. They're there to tear down, right? Themselves themselves in society that's why you know that's why jimmy fallon is so funny jimmy fallon is so funny the way jimmy found by the way in the end of days when there's like eight people left on the planet jimmy fallon is gonna have on i don't know kira sedgwick and they're gonna be throwing a hot dog through a hole with maybe one member of the roots playing monica Uh, do you? I don't watch that stuff. No, God, God, no. And and it's really sad now uh, to see Stephen Colbert uh, and who whoever just at home doing jokes. It's really, it's really so unfunny. It's well, so unfunny. It, it, it lays bare how much of a salesperson these guys are. They're selling Absolutely. weak cheese. For the most part, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Eddie. Yes, sir. I love you and I miss you. I love you and miss you, too, David. And Karen sends her love. And um, I I just miss. Thanks for having me. I I miss L.A. And you do. Yeah. Yeah. I have not been out of the city in three months. I haven't left. Wow. I haven't left Manhattan in three months. I haven't seen. Do you? I have, I have a yeah. fly that's buzzing around, a mouse, yeah. and a cockroach. Those are my nature friends. It's the only nature I get. <laughs> oh, you don't get up. You don't get upstate. Right? I haven't. I haven't left. Man- I, I'm convinced that I shouldn't leave Manhattan for. I, I probably. I feel asymptomatic. Yeah. So I'm yeah, drinking yeah, a lot yeah. of coffee and I'm in a, in a constant rage. And I, I have mm-hmm. this fantasy of mm-hmm. uh, beating up a very good looking 25 year old. Remember Chambers, the preppy murderer? Yes. Was it Robert Chambers? Yeah. yeah. I, yes, I'm like, yes. I walk, you know, I go for a jog along, you know, up to Gracie Mansion. I just keep saying, Robert Chambers, the preppy murderer, without a mask on, and I have this fan- I have this fantasy of yeah, you know, straightening yeah. him out. Are people in New York still reading the New York Post on subways, like with headlines like "Man Beheaded by His Own Hand," mm-hmm. like just horrific headlines? Yeah, is the New York Post still doing that? Yeah, I, I always thought. You know, I found a simple way. I don't believe in supporting Rupert Murdoch. He owns the New York Post. Mm -hmm. You know what the Mm -hmm. easiest way to read the New York Post is? Just stand over a homeless person. They're usually Mm -hmm. using it as a blanket here in Manhattan. I hate New York. I really do. 
You it's do? a dead city. It really is. Is that there's nothing oh, because here. because of the money driving everybody out? Yeah, it's the prohibitive rents. Yeah, yeah. Wow, because I I romanticize the city still, you know. But it's, it's, the, it's the one who got away. Mm. It's that it's that mm. you know if only you know. Mm. Yeah. So let's plug a canceled gig. Where were you supposed to be this weekend? <laughs> Boy, I had a lot of a lot of gigs canceled. I really did. I was going to do a bunch of festivals, but uh, yeah. But buy my uh, buy my special for the masses on uh, on a lot of different platforms. Just Google it. Yeah. EddiePepitone.com. Uh, you'll find all the places to buy it. I remember seeing you my i was visiting my son in college and you were playing yeah. a club near his oh, college oh my god and rooster we, teeth feathers and and we popped in to see you oh my you're god, the best you are the best Do you, oh you're the best do you remember i think you there were like five people in the audience no 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 you know, because i no you oh, the first show you were packed Oh, okay. Okay. I, I remember you being there when it was a very empty show. Oh, no. My my that. son, just they they love you. I miss all the stuff oh. we did. I miss all the oh, stuff yeah. we did. We, me and Karen so miss going to uh, KPFK and Dooley. And you just had a cast of loonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people who were... You had that crew... Would it went from Martin Short to psychotic <laughs> homicidal maniacs, <laughs> and then I got a divorce. Eddie Pepitone, are you staying off Twitter and Facebook for the time being? Well, no, because I'm promoting stuff and I get addicted to like how great you know people have been praising me, so I like look look at it going, oh yeah yeah yeah, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. <laughs> you know. Uh, you are you, great. You, you're not a big social media dude. I, you know, I just, you? I, I use it's, it, but it, it does. Mm, Sunday night, mm. Lena Dunham yeah. was trending. <laughs> and I, I thought, oh my God, did something happen? And they just decided to uh, trash Lena Dunham for being the daughter of rich parents. And all of Twitter just decided they yeah. hated Lena Dunham. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk to American hero, Burt Ross. You should meet Burt Ross. He's an American hero. But you know what? We'll play. Hang on. We'll be be right back with with American hero, Burt Ross. We believe in democracy, not oligarchy. Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. Healthcare is a human right, not a privilege. 
together we will pass a Medicare for all single payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin was supposed to be here, and I texted her. I hope she's okay. Bert Ross joins us. Eddie, I want you to meet yeah. Bert Ross. When I was growing up, and Bert mm-hmm. is sick and tired of hearing this, when I was growing mm-hmm. up, my father bestowed upon me two heroes, Ralph Nader, and mm. I get to do the Ralph Nader Radio Hour once a week, and Bert Ross. When I was growing up, my father yeah. said, Bert Ross is an American hero, and you should worship at his feet. Mm-hmm. My sister had pictures of Bobby Sherman, David Cassidy, and Burt Ross in, in her bedroom when I was growing up. Say hello to Burt Ross. Hi, Burt. Hello, Eddie. Uh, I, I have to say I've been brought on this show under false pretense as much as I'm enjoying meeting you, I was promised the bird lady and spent a half an hour looking up all her history, and I have all these questions related to birds. <laughs> hey, let, let's wait, Eddie. Let's try it. Forget, forget, Dave. Yeah, One I always things. forget that. All right, I will. Bert, Bert, uh, filling in for Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is one of the world's leading animal behaviorists. Eddie Pepitone, and you have some questions. Bert was all excited about asking animal behavior. So you have any questions for Eddie about animals? I first want to make a statement to tell you how interesting this lady is. The last time she was on, she was talking about the male turkey masturbating. Now, I don't think you could find anything that good on any Howard Stern show. So one of the questions I wanted to ask her is, do birds mate in the air or do they have to land? And since you are both comedians, I'm going to give you the lob. If a female bird is in flight and the male bird tries to copulate and she's not interested, what does she tell him? Oh, guys, this is your, this is your test for comedy. Well, first of all, Go ahead, Eddie. Talk no, to me. You got, you got it. I always, uh, I always freeze when I'm told I'm supposed to have something very funny. I, I, I went to the bathroom, and my best thoughts are obviously there. She says to him, "I don't give a flying fuck." Thank you for taking this, <laughs> Tom. Hang on. At five at at five p.m., Tom wrote, "Go take a flying f." That's right. Tom got it. Yeah, you know, it's just jealousy. Yeah. That's all this is. Can I now, now, Bert? Let me tell you about Bert. He's a yeah. humor columnist for the Malibu Times. Ah, he's yes. That's just what I've said. But he has. <laughs> but, but he invented. I'm not making this up. You know, we should do. I did not invent. I did not invent you invented it. 
No. <laughs> Do you want to play 20 questions? Or you're, you're still mad at me about Mystery Guest? You hated Mystery Guest, Daddy. Bert, we used to oh, do a I thing. Did. We I used did, to do a thing. I don't know what happened, but I didn't like that once. We used to do a thing on the show where Eddie would come on as our mystery guest and Frank Conniffin and Andy Kindler. I go, Eddie, you ready to play mystery? Okay, Andy Kindler's our mystery guest. We'll start the questioning with Frank Conniff. And he'd go, Eddie, are you, are you a comedian? <laughs> and we would play 20 questions and they would... The joke was that mm-hmm. they knew it was Eddie, but they never, and they hated it. And I, I, anyway, would you like to guess Bert's contribution to to New Jersey? To, I thought to Joe Biden's campaign. I don't know what your contribution to my what? Take a take a wild guess what Bert mm-hmm. contributed to New Jersey. To New Jersey? Yeah, that we still do uh, today. Uh, that we still do today in Jersey. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Avoid Bayonne. <laughs> <laughs> he invented the right turn on red. I did not invent that. You I, invented. I, it's called pulling a Burt Ross. When I went down to see the Altacockas in Florida, you can make a right turn on red. And I said, why not in New Jersey? And when I got appointed by the governor, Governor Brendan Byrne at the time, I sat down with him and I suggested the idea. And he said, the attorney general, Bill Hyland, doesn't like the idea. So I thought if I had been governor, I would have said, who cares? I'm the governor, but he's the attorney general. But I met with the attorney general and he said he was for it. So I again met with the governor and you realize it's practically the only bill you could pass that doesn't have an enemy. Environmentalists like it. People who want to save money on gas like it. People who are just in a hurry like it. So finally, he approved it, and it won, if not unanimously, close to it. But that was that was not my idea. There were a number of states, and certainly Florida had it at the time. You were energy czar. Yeah, and I, I the only thing I liked about that was the word czar. <laughs> he was energy czar. Uh, no, without a czarina. <laughs> he was the energy czar of New That's Jersey. Right. Yes. And assistant people call me your royal czar. <laughs> and are you responsible for no self-service in New Jersey? I had nothing to I had nothing to do with that. Um and and you you're from California and I'm from well you were in California and I am now and uh there you have the wonderful honor of paying the highest price in the country and pumping your own gas. Yes. You don't get rained on because it never rains in Southern California. I thought that was actually a, like just a, a lyric from a song. I didn't realize it was literal. Yeah. <laughs> you can go six months without yeah. rain. But, but you in California, Bob? You're yes. in Malibu? I'm in, in uh, it's Bert. Bob Ross is I'm the painter. Bert, You're thinking sorry. of Bob Ross, the painter. Well, I know, I That's am. his brother. I, uh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, I, I but this isn't the reason you would think that mm. inventing the right turn on red would be the reason right. my father bestowed Bert <laughs> Ross on me as as a hero. But that's not the reason. Well, I was, uh, why don't I try on Eddie? I was going to ask uh, the bird doctor, the lady bird, what the, how many times when a male bird copulates, does he do it like in an hour? For instance, lions have been observed to do it a hundred times 
in an hour, which is literally. Is that right? That's 100 times more than me, actually. That's unusual. That's a very eager lion, but they have. Except for, that's true, but people in mental institutions also do it about 100, 150 times an hour. Oh, fab, fabulous. Fabulous. Yes, that's not a funny thing. That's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be in your tragedy. (laughs) That's right. She also asked, you know, she said, she asked the question, I haven't read her book yet, in the bird kingdom, does size matter in copulating? And I could, mm. I, my, I hope not. I, I, never, I never had an issue where, my issue was more like, is it in yet? So I don't know. Are you following this statement? Yes, I am. You're, but my hero is. Probably the ladybird was going to be on. I know, but you, but you have Eddie. I hope she's okay. I, I emailed her. I once dated uh, Joe Pepitone's uh, ex-wife. I hope it was. Are you serious? My my dad went. My dad went to James Monroe High School in the Bronx, and Eddie, not Eddie, but Joe Pepitone's brother. My dad went to high school with Joe Pepitone's brother. Tell everybody who Joe Pepitone was. Is first baseman, first baseman for the New York Yankees. Um, and they had a and he, got, he had a beautiful head of hair. Seventies, early. He had a beautiful head of hair, right? Wasn't he like? Well, he was yeah, like the Joe Namath. Well, he supposedly introduced the blow dryer into locker rooms. This is true. He's not making this I'm up. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding because of his hair. Yeah, and he was also at his greatest achievement was wandering through the Lincoln Tunnel in a daze after an accident, uh, mm-hmm. mumbling, I'm Joe Pepitone, without getting hit by a car. That's true. He was in some kind of drug bust accident. Uh, with He was a passenger, and he wandered through the Lincoln Tunnel, mumbling, I'm Joe Pepitone. And that's when I knew he was related. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Guys, guys, first of all, Bert, it's great meeting you. Uh, David, I've got to go. Thank you so much for having me. And um, don't you want to end on a laugh? Don't you want to leave on a laugh? I thought. Well, I thought. I thought. I'm kidding. You don't want to go another five hours, Eddie? (laughs) I love you, Eddie Pepitone. His new special is on iTunes. And Amazon for the masses. He is. I love you, Eddie. You're the funniest man in the world. Buddy. Eddie Pepitone. I see you. See you guys. You're stepping on Eddie's applause, Bert. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. You you were commenting on the name Stanky, and I, I texted you. Yeah. There was a very famous ball player, and I think his name was Eddie Stanky. Am I making that up? Yeah, and somebody said that. I got to stop reading the chat room. That came up. Yeah, there was Eddie Stanky. I, I was the one who sent it to you. Oh, okay. And uh, he uh, it was a pitcher, and they called his sinker Stanky on the hangdown. I don't think he was a pitcher, but that's a ruins the joke, I get it. Stanky on the hangdown. So you miss California, I got it. I miss you, and you look you look great. You really do. Well, I don't know. Can you see all the curls? Yes. I'm uh, 
another foot and I'll get a ponytail. Maybe somebody will think I'm a girl. Yeah. Can you sit closer to your computer? I think. Thank you. Yes. I, I think if you sit closer to the computer, there's less of an echo. You look fantastic. For somebody 77, it's, uh, people always qualify it. You know, when I was 25 years old, nobody said you look good. And then with a pause for your age. Right. I think once you get to around 60, there's, al- there's always that pause for your age. I think what it means is you look good compared to somebody who's been underground for a couple of months. <laughs> How old are you, David? I'm 62. That's exactly Joan's age. Joan is my wife. You know, We, we went to high school together. I, I know that also. Yeah. The, now, I don't see any other people. Do you have no people on this Zoom other than the two of us? It's just us and Dan. So this is a Zoomless kind of day. Well, we have people. hundreds of people on the Zoom. Well, we have people in in the chat room. We have people attending. Is there somebody from Sweden? Is there somebody from Sweden in yes. the chat room? Yes, Magnus. Let's call on Magnus. Are you there, Magnus? Magnus is he not still a Swedish in? name? Magnus is uh, not a Swedish name. Magnus listens to us in in Sweden. What are you doing for July fourth? I am doing, I'm going to speak Swedish, absoluta ingeting, which means absolutely nothing. Uh, nothing. We, we can, t- oh, there is Magnus Bellotti. That doesn't sound Swedish. Magnus, are, are you calling us? Hand. Oh, it's a man. Uh, I was expected to be invited, but I had to raise my hand like a commoner. <laughs> Where, uh, in Svenska Poika? Uh, exact. Uh, well, there's a high pitch. What is that high pitch sound coming, Magnus? What is that? It's my fan. Don't make me turn it off. It's warmer than hell in here. Turn your fan off. Hey, fine, 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 fine. My my brother's first wife, uh, the mother of my two nieces, uh, is Swedish. Was Swedish. Was she a stewardess? And no, she actually was via the concentration camps where she lost her mom. And the whole family uh, emigrated to Sweden. Uh, her uncle, Kurt Bendix, was the uh, conductor of the opera company in Sweden. Um, mm. And I've been there several times, and I think it's a great country. Yuri Geller, Kurt nice. Bendix. Hello? <laughs> Yuri Geller, Kurt Bendix. His name was Bendix? Bert's not uh, laughing. No. Um, yes, his name was Bendix. Bendix. I, that might be a German name because they all were born in Germany and, in, and got out. In German, it's where, called Peronis. Where, where it's is, called Peronis. Where, where it? in Sweden do you live, Magnus? Uh, in Solna, uh, right north of uh, Stockholm. Yeah. The, um, have you ever seen the show uh, Wallander? It's, I, mm, yeah, uh, probably once or twice yeah it's um it was a series i think it may have been on public television here um starring um oh god the famous british actor and i i always have oh right kenneth branagh yeah thank you played him in the uh, british version yes exactly and and it's filmed in sweden The, the cinematography is magnificent his acting is brilliant and there are a couple of scenes i think in episode two that are it 
just award-winning, a brilliant. There was a. Um, it's from a series of books written by a, a Swedish writer who died, I think, maybe three years ago, and the books were very, very popular in Northern Europe. And yeah, wasn't Wallander written by a duo? I'm not super familiar with these I, at all. I did not know that. Uh, it might be. I would heartily recommend uh, any of your listeners that uh, if you can get Wallander, I don't know what it's on. Um, it's really brilliant, I think. No, right. It was just uh, handing uh, Mankel. I was uh, thinking of something else. What's on your mind, Magnus? What are you doing for the 4th of July? Well, what, no, do you, what do you do in Sweden to celebrate your independence? Uh, well, other countries celebrate their independence from us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Norway, I, I think both Norway and Finland. Really? Yeah. Is this like a Viking thing? When 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 did when was Sweden? Well, we have a made update uh, June sixth, uh, which is supposedly the coronation of uh, uh, was it Vasa, Gustav Vasa. It, I don't know. I don't know uh, Swedish history, but uh, it's basically made up uh, the quote unquote true national holiday. It's uh, Midsummer's uh, Midsummer's Eve. And you just had that uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, two weeks ago. And that's the big holiday. And yeah, if you if you've been in, if you've been in Scandinavia, let's say in March, you understand why they get excited in June. Yeah. <laughs> the true story. Uh, I went to Harvard, and when I was there, uh, the Princess of Sweden was there. She was going. I think then it was called Radcliffe. Um, and I drove over. I thought. Uh, it, it was, it was my obligation to introduce her and, and introduce myself to her. And I went up to her and I said, I just want you to know that my favorite city in all of Europe is Copenhagen. Mm. That, that did not impress yeah. the lady. That's the kind of thing that Donald Trump might say. Or anybody uh, from Harvard. Would yeah, not she, groaned, she groaned. I got back on my bike and never saw her again, much to her relief. So is she queen now or... Uh, well, no, our queen is still uh, Sylvia. But the uh, one who we, went, how old the is one, the queen? Uh, how old she is? I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, okay. But it's still this the woman one. Would have been uh, in her, this the, woman would have been in her. This woman would have been You know what I love about my show, Bert? I take it over with. Sit closer to the computer if you could do that. My God. I, I love that my callers are like in a bad mood. Like Magnus is just in a bad, like he's not in the mood to talk. You see, well, you see, in a nice he, mood. He probably, it's just... pro- Magnus, why aren't you at the archipelago right now? Swimming, picking ra- picking strawberries and raspberries. Uh, well, uh, I don't know if you've heard, there's this, uh, there's this whole thing going around. It's uh, yeah. COVID, I, I think it's called. Yeah. You guys, you guys actually blew it. Yeah. Uh, not like not like the hair in America. No, no, Sweden, Sweden. Well, Sweden, we're on top of on a per capita on a per capita basis. Sweden has, I think, ten million people. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, if you take we're thirty three times that, our population mm-hmm. is about three hundred and thirty million. You people have lost six thousand. If you multiply six times thirty three thousand, you probably have on a per capita basis almost probably twice 
the laws here. They experimented with herd immunity, and it failed badly. I am experimenting with herb immunity. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That would have been better. (laughs) So does David have a big listening audience in in Sweden, in Sverige, or are you the only one? Uh, I think I'm the only one. (laughs) He's barely hanging on. As far as I know this, as for what my question is, Bert asked if you had somebody from Sweden, and then I was asked to appear. So I don't really have a question. Okay. Well, thank you. But I, I just, I, I like to talk to we... What? I've enjoyed this either way. Yeah. I, uh, I oh, right. Uh, just a quick point. Uh, since you seem to know a bit of Swedish, uh, Harvard, uh, if you do the umlaut with the ring above. It's a cheese in Sweden. No, it's a uh, hårvård. It's uh, hair care. It's what? Hair care. Health care. Hair care. Hair care. You know, David hair. doesn't need it. Um, wow. I thought I needed hair care. I used to be bald until this well, pandemic. Now, now the three hairs that I have seem to, to cover everything. <laughs> I was actually contemplating becoming uh, a Hasidic Jew to cover to wear a whole hat and cover the whole thing. But... Uh, the pandemic did it. I I save a lot of money this way, though. The pandemic uh, has I, I don't spend money on anything. It's a wonderful thing. Thank you, Magnus. Thank you. Happy Fourth of July, Magnus. You too. Thank hey, you. Magnus. Magnus is very funny. He's yeah, and he's from Sweden. So, what are you writing about over at the Malibu Times, Bert Ross? Well, I, I think I mentioned last week that I wrote about my son's surprise visit, uh, who's actually, he lives in New York City. He came to surprise me for Father's Day with his girlfriend, who's from uh, Holland. And um, I don't think he's going back. I, he's very happy. Uh, he really loves it out here. Uh, so it would be nice. He lives there. He has a job there and an apartment there. But um, uh, so he's been busy every morning on the phone with his business. Um so I wrote about that. I called it the best surprise ever. I did tell him your joke about how he was so cheap that he came all the way and didn't have a card. But yeah, he, I don't. I think it was probably in my delivery that it didn't go over that. Uh, I would have that preferred way. a gift if my kid came across country. I can I can zoom with my kids. I could well, use. I, I guess I could, but he's in the next room, so it doesn't much matter. Uh, I'm writing a humorous column I just finished that I'll submit uh, on the mask, the wearing of the mask. Uh, I met a guy outside of a supermarket, and I'm not making this stuff up. Um, He was wearing it covering his mouth, but not his nose. Hmm. So I said, sir, it might be more effective if you cover your nose also. And he said, I'm not making this up. He said, when I have it covering my nose, I have trouble seeing. <laughs> now, I, I'm i not an expert on anatomy. I'm not like the bird lady. I, mean, right. I don't even know right. the human anatomy. So I said to him, I don't think it works that way. I think you see out of your eyes, not your nose. Now, this guy was like 70 years old, so it's mm-hmm. not like... He's a two-year-old learning this stuff. And as I walked off, he was still contemplating it. 
So I, I don't know. Were you, uh, so were you afraid that. of walking up to him? Because a lot of people, you, if you criticize their mask wearing ability or lack of wearing a mask, it can get violent. He was shorter than I. Doesn't I, matter. Fear, fear, fear is not my big thing. Um, it, it's just not, I don't have the fear gene. So it is what it is. I actually just finished the piece that's serious, but they, they don't like my, my Trump bashing. They don't want to be known strictly as a Trump bashing paper because there's a lot of Trump bashing. So they would like me to be the court jester. But every once in a while, I submit a, um, uh, a more serious piece for, for either letter to the editor or an op-ed piece. Um, and this one was on uh, Black Lives Matter. I saw, you ever watch uh, Real People, uh, Real Sports with Brian Gumble on HBO? No. It's, it's really worth watching. And they had a, they rerun a piece in 2008. Uh, a guy named Robbie Tolan was uh, driving a car, 23-year-old athlete. And a police car started to follow him because they got a tip that this could be a stolen car. It was a misidentification. It wasn't. He put, it's a wealthy, uh, I think it's called something like Bel Air, in a suburb, wealthy suburb, overwhelmingly white, in, in the suburb of Houston. He pulls into his driveway, and the minute he gets out of his car, the police have their guns drawn and tell him to lie down. And he starts to explain that, you know, this is his car, this is his house. And he finally lies down, and the, his parents, who are in their 50s, well-educated, the father had been a major league baseball player, come out in their pajamas. And the mother immediately says, what are you? And she was angry. What are you doing? This is our house. We've been here for 23 years. This is our son. And this is our car. Immediately, the policeman grabs her painfully by the arm and pushes her against the wall, at which point the fellow on the ground, Robbie, stands up to protect his mother and they shoot him. They don't kill him, but they end his sports career. The police officer is tried, like all, like all the others, gets off scot-free. Uh, his defense was uh, he feared for his life. Uh, and ultimately, uh, a couple of years later, he gets promoted to lieutenant. The boy's career has been ruined. And Brian Gumbel's interviewing the very white female mayor of, the, of this city, and says, have you ever apologized to the family? And she said, no. And in that town, black people who are a very distinct minority, and this is not a slum, and not that it would be permissible in a slum. Black citizens are stopped by police 12 times more frequently than whites. And when Pence was interviewed the other day, I think a, week, a weekend ago, he couldn't cough up the words Black Lives Matter. And you listen to people, uh, the Attorney General, Dennis Prager, and they're, they're constantly making this sound like all these people are looters and anarchists, uh, refuse to recognize that there's any systemic racism in this country. And, and actually, I wish they had almost added a word, Black Lives Matter also matter. So when they give this bullshit about white lives matter, no, no black person is saying white lives don't matter. But had this been a white kid driving into his driveway, 
with your parents or my parents coming out, they wouldn't have put a hand on them. They wouldn't have shot the boy. And it's, it's just frightening. Yeah. And, and it's racism. I never realized that racism, the ignorance, the lack of, of acceptance of white privilege, of realizing how privileged we are and how how we treat them in so many ways as second class citizens is racism. Not not to acknowledge it to me as racism. And not to know. You know, Joan and I went to yeah. we were I was bused to Dwight Mara High School. I went to high school yeah. with you know, I'm I'm ashamed of it's not you know what? It's not just not knowing. The the real crime is not caring. Because not to not know is to not care. To be so wrapped up. I've talked to, to female comedians. Mm. And during the Me Too movement, I, I said to a couple of female comics, I'm really sorry. And they've said to me, well, you, you weren't, you know, you were never. I go, it doesn't matter. I didn't, mm. I didn't pay attention to it. I didn't. Mm. It, it's almost like, I hate to say I didn't care, but I was so busy in, in when I was a stand-up comic full time. I was only thinking about my jokes mm. and my show and where I was as a stand-up comic. And it never occurred to me how difficult it was for the women I was working with. I, I, I just had these blinders on. And it never occurred to me that, you know, I would leave. Well, I'd always walk people home, but... You know, it's just and, and the same thing with African-American comics. Uh, I. I hate to say not knowing means not caring. If you don't know, it means you don't care. And I was only I thinking about I was only thinking about my career and my success. And. Go well, ahead. I, sometimes it's beyond that. I when I was at college, uh there was a freshman library, a magnificent library called Lamont. And that was named open. after the, the Sanford and son Lamont, right? I don't it was named. So not, exactly. not no? exactly. Actually, there's a Lamont observatory. And I think the governor of Connecticut, although I could be making this up as a Lamont, but yes, Lamont. You, yes. He beat uh, Joe Lieberman in 2005 or 2006. And then Lieberman won. He, he, Lamont beat Lieberman in the Democratic primary in Connecticut. It was, so, it was so strange because I was in the middle of a snowstorm. I was living in Englewood, New Jersey, when Joe Lieberman was running for vice president. Yeah. And I get a phone call from a woman who says she is Mrs. Joe Lieberman. Hadassah. She's asking for money because uh, she was stuck in Englewood. And so... That's what, unfortunately, people running for office have to spend a lot of time doing with their with their family. And I spent most of the interview trying to prove that, in fact, I wasn't being scammed. And she passed the test. In fact, it was it was she. And I knew a certain number of questions so I could uh, could prove it was she. You talked to, uh, to Hadassah Lieberman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you and you cost you don't like to brag about this. Jared Kushner's father had to donate $3 million to Harvard because... Well, let me get back. Get, uh, let me get back to Harvard. I was in this beautiful library, Lamont Library, 
and it was closed to women. The Widener Library, which is, I think, the third largest library in the country, at least was at the time behind the Library of Congress and the New York Public Library, was co-ed. And I thought it was fabulous that the Lamont Library was, was open just to guys because I could sit there and actually concentrate, whereas if I went to Widener, I would be looking at the girls. And it never dawned on me. I never asked any of the girls I went to school with how they felt about it. Now, when I went to New York City and I went to an event at the Harvard Club, and this is back in the 60s, early 70s, there was a separate entrance for women. And that offended me greatly. And I, I expressed my opinion, and I don't think because of that, but they finally got rid of that relic of, of another time. But part of it was, um, so what you're saying is because I wasn't aware of it, I didn't care. And I'm not sure that's true. Uh, it just never dawned on me. Well, you wouldn't be taught to care at Harvard. Oh, yes. Harvard breeds people with no empathy. People who use sympathy as a tool to gain the upper hand. I, You see, I refuse to discuss this with you when you will not tell me where you went to college. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. No, no, it's not. There's so many questions that are, you must have been kicked out. That, break up. Right. When we break up Big Harvard, when we get rid of Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, we can become a country. But until we get rid I'm being serious. Yeah, that, would make, that will make the country. We need to stigmatize people who went to Harvard. Going to Harvard is a youthful indiscretion. It's a character flaw. And I mean that. Well, again, since you're too embarrassed, too ashamed to reveal where you went, which obviously wasn't for very long because they obviously, you you were kicked out uh, for pedophilia or something. I don't know what the, you're very serious. You're not smiling at all. How many people have been on? Are you getting to the end of the day? (laughs) No, I have Dr. Mike. I have Dr. Mike coming on, and we're going to talk about socialized medicine. You might have just been very, very depressed, because I was at the, the bird lady, wasn't I? Well, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin didn't show up. I have an email in to her. I don't know what happened. I hope she's okay. Yeah. She lives in Arizona. And I have a, yeah. and we're going to talk about socialized medicine with Dr. Mike Pappas in a second. I'm going to say goodbye to American hero, Bert Ross, who you you stood up to the the Gambino family. You gave us the right turn on red. You are an American hero. You really are. Will I see you next week? Well, if I'm on Zoom, you will. Yes. You look great, by the way. For somebody my age. Okay. I love you. I love you. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Great job. Well, Dr. Mike Pappas joins us. Hello, sir. Hello, doctor. What's up? It's good good to hear your voice. Dr. Mike Pappas is a socialist, he's a doctor, and an activist, and he has a criminal record. You, you were arrested by the NYPD for Indeed. being a street medic, violating yeah. the curfew, and it's great to see you, doctor. Nice to see you. And, and you are a contributing editor to... Uh, left voice. Left what voice. is their what is their web address? 
www.leftvoice.org. Leftvoice.org. Can you uh, lean a little closer to the computer? And, sure. Okay. Uh, it's, it's great to see you. So I was on the Ralph Nader radio. I do a radio show with Ralph Nader. And we were talking about socialized medicine, which Ralph has been fighting for his whole life. And, you know, doctors, I, I started going off on the medical community. And no offense, but I think it's time to start blaming doctors for the current state of health care in this country. Why, and why do we allow doctors to get away with saying, well, you know, our hands are tied. It's the health insurance companies and it's the politicians. And, you know, we're, we're, we're victimized just as much as the health insurance companies. It's not our fault. I call BS. I mean, if there were, if there were, if, if it costs a fortune to get your toilet repaired, I would blame the plumbers. It's the plumbers' fault. Why aren't we blaming doctors? I mean, you, you guys are like the police. You have a code of silence. You don't turn on one another. You each have your, you know, everybody's back. When you, when you screw up, not you, but when you screw up, you know, there's a meeting among the hospital grand poobas, and it's all covered up. You're, you are like the police. Your response, doctor. That's a nice argument. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, the first thing I would say is this, and I'm going to like go, I'm just going to go on a very, very far tangent just to make one quick comment, and then I'll actually answer sure, your... Sure, sure. You know, when you asked me to be on your radio show previously, I, like, I knew your name sounded familiar and your voice sounded familiar, and it wasn't actually until this very moment when you said that you were on, um, that you do the show with Nader that I realized that that's where I heard your voice like years ago. Right. And, and it wasn't until right now when I realized that. So and and now are you hanging up on me or are you going to go away? No, like, no, no, I, I listened to, I actually, I mean, I, I listened to, um, that show on podcast periodically. I used to listen to it a lot in college. Right. Um, so I'm not hanging up on you. I loved it. Oh. Uh, so I won't hang up on you or I also won't hang up on you, um, for equating me with, um, a member of the most racist, murderous gang in New York city, the NYPD. Um, I won't hang up for that either, but I would say, <laughs> I, and, a def, and a defender of capital in the capitalist economic system built on slave patrols and night watches, racist night watches, whose only purpose is to serve capital and protect the most oppressive economic system ever created. I also won't hang up on you for relating me to that organization. Um, I'll stay on, I'll even stay on for that. Um, but I would say that, so first off, I, I mean, I'm not going to deny that, that there could be some guilt given to the medical community and to physicians. I would say that in order to analyze why doctors don't do that, by and large, I think we need to 
I, you need to analyze the educational system and how that functions. So years ago, I wrote an article for Truth Out called The Hypocritical Oath, uh, Medical Schools Support for the Status Quo. And I talked about a lot of theories that um, edu- there's this educational scholar um, named, what the hell is his name, John Taylor Gatto, um, what he talks about. And, and I specifically talk about medical school, but I think we can just go to uh, our educational system in general. And I think our educational system in the United States functions to produce acquiescent workers for the capitalist class. And I think what what happens through that educational system is you are taught to submit to authority, um, do as you're told, be a a basically um, like a a factory worker, but in various capacities, pretty much. Um, And I think what there are all these different conditioning mechanisms throughout education, whether it's public education, private education, just like K through 12, those types of things that people go through to make sure that they do not question authority. They do not question the capitalist state. They do not question the military industrial complex. They do not question any oppressive systems in our society. And I think that physicians are emblematic of how that system works in that Physicians go through even more of those conditioning mechanisms, right? So we not only have to go through K through 12 in the U.S., but then we go through college where we're conditioned even more. We're told that we need to get certain test scores. We're told that we need to get um, we, we oftentimes you have to have money to be able to pay for stupid board exams, applications, all that shit. Then you need to go to medical school where you're conditioned even more to sit down and shut up. And I think that's because. The the healthcare system in our society is so efficient at extracting profit from sick wow. bodies damaged by capitalism. Wow. So you need to make sure that authority figures inside of that system do not question it whatsoever. Wow. So by the time you get physicians out working in the field, you also put them in a huge amount of debt. So they're even less likely to question the way that they're operating inside of this system. And then they end up upholding that system. Wow. So, yeah, I would say that there is. Why aren't you running for office? Seriously. Why aren't why don't you run for office? Because I think because ultimately I think that my philosophy on on electoral campaigns, if they're I mean, they can they have their place. But I think ultimately those systems function similarly where you need to mold yourself into what your donors want, what what uh, what is going to be covered on on corporate media. You need to put things in small sound bites. You can't actually analyze larger systems. And I think that personally, while I think that there might be a place for that, um, for some individuals, I personally would rather dedicate my time to trying to build mass movements to resist these oppressive systems on the street and in the workplace. Well, how do so? I'm pretty. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm pretty angry and pissed off about the state of this country. Bernie has gotten in line and completely sold out. Sold the fuck out completely. He's literally campaigning for a senile racist rapist. Like now, are you kidding me? Right. I I mean, I would argue that's why we need to break from the Democratic Party. The what I would say is has historically been the graveyard of social movements. Right. Um, and I think that the example with Bernie just supports that, but sorry to interrupt. No, I, I, fired I up cause I got on a debate with my brother-in-law for like an hour right before this. So I'm a little bit more. No, I, I, you're, you're, you're clearing my head because I'm trying to be polite. I'm trying not to be angry. And most people are 
trying to relax this weekend. I just don't think they deserve to relax. I don't I think I, I think this country doesn't deserve to celebrate their independence, especially since we're not independent. We're indebted to health insurance companies and the richest one percent. We're not free. We, mm-hmm. we do not have the liberty to to work and to choose our our life. And the idea that we have this candidate, Joe Biden, who says he would veto Medicare for all if a Democratic Mm -hmm. Senate and Congress passed it. So voting, we have to vote. But voting doesn't work, does it? No. So at some point, you have to hold doctors accountable the same way we're holding the police accountable and, and shaming them and making Americans reevaluate what it means to have police and what we spend on police. Mm-hmm. Why don't we do this with doctors? Why don't we, with all due respect, why don't we hold doctors to the same standard we hold our police? The police are supposed to keep us safe. They're not. They're, you know, they're, some would suggest they do more damage than good. Doctors? I'd suggest that. Huh? I'd suggest that. Yeah. So is it possible I mean, I that doctors should be held to the same standard? Who do you Wh- mean by we? Why don't we, when you say we, who do you mean by that? Because, because I think that there are many doctors that hold other doctors accountable. I think that there are many of people in the public that hold that, that are saying to whether it's physicians or the health industry in general, or the medical industrial complex that we need a Medicare for all system. I think like, I know colleagues that basically are like, if you're not at this point, if you're not at, advocating for healthcare as a human right, then I would argue if you're a physician, not adequate, advocating for healthcare as a human right then why are you a physician why okay but, but, but what about what are? about being a physician and saying that health insurance companies are tantamount to the tobacco industry that we have a healthcare crisis in this country and it's called health insurance that, yeah, that health I mean, insurance many... is killing more americans than traffic is that fair I to agree. say that health health insurance kills more people than car accidents that's fair i I mean i i don't know the statistics off the top of my head but if you gave me a stat and said this was the stat i would believe you because i think that's probably true um and i think that and and when we say kill what exactly do we mean by that when you when you bankrupt somebody when you destroy their entire them and their entire family's means of subsistence because they got sick and they and then they might be driven into addiction or depression or you name it. And then it spy. And then that creates a spiral for them and their family. And then their kids grow up living in poverty or economic ruin because of that, all because somebody happened to get sick from a capitalist system. Do do we count those deaths? I would say that we, I mean, I don't think those deaths are counted, but I think that they should be, I think that they should be counted, counted in this system. They're not. Um, but they should be. So I would say that if we count even those deaths, they would, I mean, that number would balloon. That number would definitely be more than traffic accidents. Right. Um, we've, I would seen, say, we've seen it today in the New York Times. They did a story about how New York City handled COVID-19. And yeah. at the height of the epidemic, people who 
were admitted into the wealthier hospitals survived. Yeah. The, the poorer hospitals that served poorer minority communities, mm-hmm. not so well. Yeah. People died. Mm-hmm. And you yeah, read that and you go, and I, we get so acclimated to this inequality. We go, well, that makes sense as opposed to that makes me really angry. And why do doctors not speak out about this? I mean, this is, you I know, mean, it's, I mean, especially it's, since they're taking our tax dollars. I mean, so much of the stimulus package, the CARES Act, went to New York City nonprofit hospitals. They made profits and, and spent $150 million on advertising telling us, all the great work that they're doing with our tax dollars and people who didn't go to the wealthy hospitals in the wealthy neighborhoods died from lack of treatment. I mean, a couple of things on that. One, that money, is that money going to doctors or is that money going to healthcare companies or healthcare corporations? I would argue that that money is going to healthcare corporations who are told to care for the public that operate like, like any other exploitative corporation that actually don't give a shit about the health of the people that come through it. And instead operate like factories trying to just extract some profit from those bodies that come through before they kick them right back out into an environment that made them sick. So I would argue that that money necessarily isn't going to doctors per se, as much as it's going to a healthcare company, the large executives, those types of things. Um, I would also say that, I mean, if we're talking about COVID and who died from COVID and those, and we go to that conversation, we also need to talk about why people died from COVID more. We live in a racist, a systemically racist white supremacist society where even if we look at New York, the bulk of essential workers who are working were, black and brown workers who are forced to work. Why? Because the country was unable to halt the gears of capital and halt the way that the capitalist economic system functions. You needed to sacrifice people at the altar of capital. You needed to force people to work. And when I say force people to work, I mean force people to work because if somebody needs to work to pay their rent, to keep food on the table, to keep their kids alive, that means they're being forced to work. So predominantly, Black and brown people are forced to work during a pandemic where they're not provided appropriate PPE or those types of things, whether we look at in the healthcare system, whether we look at, I don't know, Amazon, whether we look at transit workers, you name it. That's part of the reason why. And the other reason why is because of histories of environmental racism in our society. We have, and when I say environmental racism, I mean a number of things. But if we look at the Bronx, for example, We'll just take the Bronx as an example because that's where my clinic is. When you have a history of an area of the city where we've shoved um, incineration facilities, bus depots, highways over there, um, uh, shitty shitty options for food, all those types of things, along with chronic uh, racist policing, chronic stress from chronic poverty, all of those things combined. And then we just sprinkle a little bit of a pandemic on top of that. And you force many of those same people to expose themselves during a pandemic to the coronavirus. And you then force them basically because often they're living with or caring for 
loved ones who are at home to expose their loved ones to that who are automatically at risk for greater complications from coronavirus, this is what you fucking get. So mm-hmm. when you live, oh, sorry, I don't think I'm supposed to curse. When you live in a- Listen, you said, per se, I have a running joke. Whenever anybody says per se, I say, my name isn't per se, it's David. It's a running <laughs> gag, but I have so much respect for you. I couldn't stop you and- Correct you on the per se. How bad? No, no. Are are you? No, you're. uh, Believe me, I'm honored that you're you're here. How bad is it now in the Bronx? We're told that they have it under control here in New York City, that the spike is over and we've flattened the curve, at least when it comes to deaths. Is that true? I mean, based on some of the numbers that we're seeing now, it seems like there could be that the spike in New York could could be could have reached that peak. But that doesn't mean at any point we're not going to see another peak. I mean, when you see now, luckily, they made the decision of not having like indoor dining happening. But when I look out the street, I mean, I live in Queens and it and you go to like 30th Avenue or Astoria Boulevard where I live. And it's like a it's like a party. It's like people partying in the street with no masks on like like there weren't so many people that just died from coronavirus. And I would say that it just speaks to the level. I mean, but that can, uh, you we, can't blame the leadership. I, I, as you know, I have many quarrels with de Blasio and Cuomo, yeah. but when it, is it fair to say that when it comes to scolding the, the residents of New York, Cuomo and de Blasio have been pretty firm about the masks and social I mean, distancing. I guess if you look at the microcosm of masks and social distancing, then I could say, sure, I agree with you that de Blasio and Cuomo have said about masks and social distancing. But if you want to look at like the fact that largely the spike that we had in New York was partly at the fault of people like de Blasio and Cuomo, for example, when nurses were threatening to strike about a year ago for safer staffing ratios and to, and to not have their, the hospitals that they work in be these disgusting systems of exploitation of ill people. De Blasio was completely against them on that. Or I could also say that even if you look at, I also wouldn't say, on some ways, de Blasio, great. He's telling people to wear masks. In other ways, frankly, screw de Blasio. You know, at the when I was arrested in the Bronx and I watched cops jump off of cars and beat people and hit them in the heads with batons and pepper spray pregnant women and kettle people who were peacefully protesting, largely wearing masks. You know who wasn't wearing masks? The cops weren't wearing masks. When I was sitting in an eight by 10 cell with 16 other people, I had a mask on when I was begging the cops for masks for everybody else saying it's a pandemic. You know what? Cops laughed at us. They weren't wearing masks. So, so de Blasio, and de Blasio, the only thing that he said to that was the cops are doing their jobs. I mean, I mean, when, when cops are going around potentially running over people, de Blasio is quiet. When cops are, are um, beating people in, in uh, occupied city hall, de Blasio is quiet. When, when we have a budget that we're going to pass and it's a completely ridiculous austerity budget that doesn't hire more counselors in schools and tries to spin it like we're cutting a billion from the police. But really, it's when you actually break down the numbers, it's like more like seven 
uh, what, 675 million or something like that, not near a billion. And it's just funds that are reallocated, moved other places. And when people like Democrats like de Blasio or Democrats like um, Majority Leader Cumbo say things like, you know, I couldn't, I have to pass this budget because I see majority black women who work as resource officers in schools, aka cops in schools, terrorizing kids, and they pass a budget like this, an austerity budget that's going to kill more black and brown people. And at the same time, de Blasio sanctions cops to go break up encampments that are that are advocating and pushing for something better than this encampments that rumors have it. I heard that his daughter was part of when things like that happen. Frankly, I don't I don't really care how many times de Blasio is saying to wear masks because his policies show me that he actually doesn't care about the health of the general population. And I would say that Democratic policies continually show us time and time again that they're just the second head of a corporate hydra that ultimately doesn't care about the mass of our population and only cares about benefiting their corporate elite backers. Well, that's what de Blasio cares about. And he cares about the police union. He cares about making sure the police union isn't pissed off at him. So he can say how much he wants to wear a mask as much as he wants, but I don't find him to be an ally. Right. Right. And Rikers Island. If you you want to you want to go about how many people we cage in New York, we could talk about that too, or how many new new jails that we're trying to form and somehow spin that to be progressive. This is this is just the typical action of the Democratic Party and how it works. It will it will feign progressiveness to you until you're blue in the face. It will cover itself in pride flags or Black Lives Matter T-shirts or you name it, while at the same time. It's making sure that you're smacked over the head by racist police officers and it's passing policies to make sure that the working class is continually, continually harmed. Amen. Amen. Wow. When you were on last time, you described being in the jail cell. You had the mask. Yeah. And you had about 15 people in your jail cell and you had two little bottles of water that you had to share. Well, and you had to pay like, for it? Yeah, at the peak, at the peak, there were either somebody corrected me and said there were 16. I thought there were 15 of us besides me. So there were either a total of 17 or 16 people at the peak. And at first we did not have water bottles. We had to continually ask them for water. And and after being ignored by several officers who again came in to the small room we were in over and over and over again without masks on because they're too good to wear masks. Um, finally, one officer came in and when we asked her for water, she brought us two mini water bottles then. And when we said there are 16 of us in here, she said, that's all the water we got. If you want more, you have to give us money to get water from the vending machine. Isn't that a violation of your human rights? I mean, how... I mean, at this point, at this point, there's an investigation the DA's office is looking into specifically the crackdown that happened um, on that day when I was arrested. What was it, the fourth or whenever the hell was anymore? Um, they're they're doing an investigation into the police actions then, along with some of the other police actions that happened uh leading up to that around curfew and how the curfew, basically what I've argued is the curfew, again, a curfew instituted by a Democratic mayor and a Democratic governor, just like curfews throughout other parts of the country. The curfew was just used as a basically free ticket to brutalize people. 
so that's how they used it in our case that night. I don't, they're looking into that. Sure. If they find that there were human rights violations that day, fan great. Um, but that's just, I mean, it's just only one instance of police uh, discussing police brutality. Just the other night I was at um, a, it was a protest that was held by DSA and a number of other uh, organizations. It was a march from Washington Square Park to the occupied um, area of City Hall. And towards the end of it, one of the leaders, a young black male who's a very prominent labor leader in the city of New York, uh, was telling everybody we're going to march over to City Hall. And actually somebody came up to him we don't know who it was yet. It was a very large individual in plain clothes and actually threw him up against a car, ended up dislocating his shoulder. Uh, they, when the crowd asked for the police to arrest that individual, they let that individual go and laughed and joked with that individual. And when the crowd asked for badge number or anything like that, if they were a plain clothes cop, they refused and they just let them go. Um, and that's just one example of the many. So I'm sitting there now treating a guy's dislocated shoulder. He has to go to the hospital. He now has a medical bill because of the disgusting way that our medical system functions, all because of he was brutalized by a cop. And these are just how police function because ultimately they are repressive agents of the state that serve to protect capital and our capitalist economic system and they don't protect people. And that's been from their creation Mm -hmm. in the United States. And anybody who reads about the history of police will find that. Right. Right. Is it unraveling or is it going to be put together by the people who always put it back together again and people will disappear, be disappeared, die off, but there'll be this patina of, well, we got through you know, we survived it again. And as yeah, is, is this I mean, not, it feels like it's unraveling, doesn't it? That's what they're trying to do with Biden, right? They're trying to Biden's trying to present himself as like everything was fine before Trump. And all we need to do is come back to what it was before and everything will be great. Well, once Biden <laughs> If he gets past just trying to figure out what day it is or what time it is or where he is, he might realize that there's economic collapse. I mean, like there are some there are some reports that are like 50 percent of the population might be uh, the U.S. population might be unemployed right now. There there could be there's probably less than that, but there's a vast amount of the population that's unemployed. So there's an economic crisis along with um, a pandemic, along with pending economic collapse or uh, environmental collapse all at the same time. So I think that it's going to keep increasing that the capitalist class will, will lose legitimacy and they're not going to be, yes. I mean, I'm, I would be willing to bet that, that Biden might get elected and, and will say that people will try to say that things are smoother and things are better. But I think that, Capitalism inherently produces these crises. They are built into the bedrock of capitalism. But it, it, you, it produces the crises before it just feels like it. capitalism produces these crises right before it totally unravels. And then they it, it saves itself and then they rebuild it 
and allow just enough people to be absorbed into the system to calm calm everybody down. I mean, it depends on what you want to say. Me is it saves itself. If you want to say that it it's it slightly it's slightly stabilizes itself until the point that we just have another <laughs> we just have another crisis shortly thereafter, then I guess you can say that. But I think that these crises are building, and eventually, with I mean, you I'm sure you've saw the IPCC report and how many reports after that. Eventually, we're going to come to a point where that cannot happen. And ultimately, the choice is, do we build something that is ready for when that point happens? And we and we continue to organize and build something as those crises happen? Or do we say, we're just going to vote for the Democrat and the Democrat is going to uh, make things a little bit better? And I would argue, and I think many of my colleagues try to work towards building something new in capitalism's place. And I think that that's, in my opinion, that's the only option. Right. I want to introduce something. you to Dr. Ben Burgess, Professor hey, Ben Burgess. I think, you, I think I read a book by you. Did you write a book called Give Them an Argument? I did. I did. I like that book. This Thank is, you, book. Uh, he has a new book out, Myth and Mayhem, the leftist critique of down. Jordan Peterson. And we should get Dr. Mike Pappas uh, involved with Professor Ben Burgess. Get him on the Michael Brooks show. Professor Burgess, Mike Pappas was introduced to me by Dr. Harriet Fraud. And he is a, a doctor, a socialist, an activist. And he's one of the editors of Left Voice. He is a street medic. And he was arrested and his story, it's unbelievable the way he was treated by the New York. Well, it, it, you know what? To, to me, it's unbelievable. I know. I know. <laughs> it's yeah. very believable. <laughs> yeah. 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 You'll, uh, anyway. Th- uh, we'll have to talk. We'll have to talk. Uh, and I, it's, it's an honor to, to have you on. Dr. Thanks for having me. Thank nice you. Nice to meet you. If people want to contact you, how do you how do they contact you? Uh, they can email me at uh, Pappas, P-A-P-P-A-S-M, like Michael, 898 at gmail.com. Great. Great job. Thank you so much, doctor. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Talk with you guys later. Dr. Ben Bye-bye. Burgess joins us. I wish you could have heard Dr. Mike Pappas talking. I had said to him that socialized medicine should be, We should have it in the United States. It's time to blame the doctors. Why aren't we holding your profession accountable? You're just as bad as the police. You have a code of silence. You take care of one another. Sure, you complain, but, you know, why aren't the doctors just stopping and saying until, you know, we're going on strike. We're only going to deal with emergencies until these health insurance companies are taken out of the equation. We're not showing up to work anymore. They would do that in France, wouldn't they? What did he say? Well, he's much uh, better at this than I am. And uh, he, 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 got, he took uh, umbrage to my equating doctors to the police. He said, and then he went off on the police and, and, and the capitalists. Sure, sure. He's the real deal. I, I just don't think he's going to. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, we like, look, um, you know, we do. Well, he's back. Let's ask him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Are you there, doctor? 
Yeah, I just wanted to put my Twitter handle in this chat, but... Okay, uh, well, hang on for one second. Stay here for one second. This is how I summed up your performance on my show. Okay. Okay. To Dr. Ben Burgess, I said that I'm in a bad... You know, I was looking for a fight, so were you, but we weren't fighting. I said, why aren't we holding doctors accountable for lack of socialized medicine in this country? Why are they showing up to work? Why don't they just go on strike and say... We're only going to treat emergencies. We're not going to work until insurance companies are taken out of the equation. And then you kind of turned it. You said, are you equating doctors with the police? And then we kind of veered off and talked about the police. I don't know. So I don't think you uh, addressed the, the, the first question is, why aren't doctors going on strike? Oh, you did answer I, it. You did. Yeah, you did. That the conditioning stuff. I wish the conditioning that I could snap was brilliant. My yeah. Trust me, I wish I could snap my fingers. We. I don't want to take up um, Dr. Burgess's time, but the one thing I'd say is, at my clinic, we were in contract negotiations, and and trust me, at the beginning of contract negotiations, I was like, you know what, screw it, let's just strike, and yeah. and everybody was like, whoa, wait a second, and by the end of contract negotiations, we actually threatened strike, and we actually got everything we wanted from our contract. So I wish that I could just wave a magic wand. And that was just the resident physicians at my clinic. We're trying to organize now all staff at our clinic to do something similar. You also did it. I I, want to give you credit where credit is due. You also did a tirade about the conditioning of medical students, how it's impossible they're, they're just brainwashed from the minute they get in to be part of the system. Let me me ask, go ahead, professor. I would also say, what other difference between the two situations? I mean, look, obviously, if, uh, you know, if Mike would just snap his fingers and, and make that doctor's general strike happen, you know, I'd, I'd be for that, right? But, like, one difference between that and, like, when, when cops do the um, blue flu thing or whatever and say they won't only answer emergency calls is that we're better off when they do Right. Like if if uh, like if, if you know if the police aren't uh, aren't investigating petty nonsense that doesn't hurt anybody. Right. You know, that, that that's better for everybody. Whereas um, the doctor thing would be a very high risk thing because, you know, things that aren't an emergency at the time, you know, could kill you later. So I'm not saying it wouldn't be worth doing if you were in a position to do it at a scale where it might work. But, you know, I, I do think it would be a slightly different thing. Yeah, I mean, when police do that, I'm like, oh, thank you. Please, please keep doing your keep thing. Keep it up. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you. Please don't do it. Anything but that. <laughs> Never. Don't stop working. Please. I mean, the, the thing that doctors can also do is, you know, you, have, you can build up to a strike. You can do, we could, for example, write notes, provide all the care, but not provide the data that's needed to bill. So then all of a sudden, these healthcare corporations can't bill, but which, which harms now, them. Now you're talking. But we still provide care to people as needed. So there are different things moving up to a strike that you could potentially do. Why isn't there this kind of solidarity? Go go ahead, Professor. Oh, I was just going to say that that reminds me. um, So my friend Sean Richmond uh, used to be an organizer for the American Federation of Teachers. And he wrote this book called uh, Tell the Bosses We're Coming. I just talked to him about it on a different uh, podcast. Uh, And he gets a lot into it. there the way that uh, there are these different like things you could do like work to rule things uh little one day quickie you know unofficial strikes you know that he that 
I mean, a lot of the book is about how the framework of labor law in the United States sort of prevents some of that stuff. But I, but like it, it also in the last chapter, there's some really interesting ideas about how we could look at a lot of these tools again. And, and, you know, anyway, it, it goes, uh, it goes what Mike is saying, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's worth reading and, you know, you should, you should have them on the show sometime. Sorry. Could I say one other thing in response to that? It also, I mean, if you think about how doctors are conditioned to acquiesce to authority, right. And uh, also how I think doctors, especially, but even, I would argue a large percent of our population in general thinks about how social change occurs, right? Doctors think that change occurs just through asking for things to happen to them. And when they come from a privileged class, it oftentimes gets that when wow. they ask, wow. when they get somewhere in an ex- in a situation where they're exploited as a worker and they're asking for stuff and it's not given to them, they don't understand the tools or how they could actually resist the boss or organize or do those types of things. So a lot of the work is kind of like wow. getting people on that same You know, you're, you're yeah. gliding past that. That's really important. Professor Burgess, can you yeah, yeah, speak no, to I was that? Say, I mean, it's, it's the same. I mean, I was on the uh, board of the uh, adjunct professors you did at, uh, at Rutgers for years. And you know, it's the same thing there because, uh, you know, obviously academics are, are taught to think of themselves as, you know, middle-class professionals. So even when you're in this situation where you're like in this like Uberized you know, like Lane, where you're, um, you know, you're, you're teaching a bunch of different classes, different places to like, just to pay the bills and, and driving an Uber. Yeah, quite possibly. And driving an Uber, uh, you know, like you, you still, you still think like that. Right. So it's, it's very, uh, it's very hard to get people to make that mental adjustment that like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a worker. I should, I should think like a worker, you know, and I'm, call I'm, yourself working class as opposed to middle class. I mean, that, that's a good identity. To say I'm working class. That's why I refer to myself predominantly as a healthcare worker. Uh, When I I don't I don't even when when patients say doctor this I just say Mike I don't want that well like we call ourselves healthcare workers because we want to be in solidarity with other healthcare workers in the healthcare system. When you start to call yourself a doctor this, then all of a sudden you reinforce that hierarchy that's purposely put in the healthcare system. So you separate yourself from a nurse or a medical assistant or a custodial worker or somebody else working in the healthcare system. When you call yourself a healthcare worker, I identify myself with the other workers who are also exploited by the corporate healthcare system. Yeah, solidarity and they they do a pretty good job of dividing us. So people who were raised with privilege and are used to getting what they ask for when they don't get it, what what happens to them? What happens to people of privilege or upper middle class doctors who suddenly aren't getting what what do they do they just try to insinuate themselves deeper into the ruling class and identify with their oppressor i would say that could sometimes happen people could say i'm just gonna you know i'm gonna get on the i just gotta work my way up once i get to the top then i'm gonna change how this system functions and before you know it you've just been changed by that system and you're a part of that system and you now have become an oppressor i think that that's one thing that happens the other thing that happens is oftentimes people just disconnect they disconnect and they say, I'm just going to keep my head down, do what I can inside of this, and then do what I can outside of it. Little do they realize that that leads them to provide poor care to their patients and you can't provide good care inside of this factory-like system oftentimes. So I think a number of things can happen. Professor Burgess, you've taught me about accelerationism. Mm-hmm. And, and I, as long as we have Dr. Pappas here, 
I keep hearing people saying that Biden's going to get elected president and things are going to be so bad once he's sworn in that he's going to have no choice but to give us Medicare for all. Is that yeah. what accelerationism is? Uh, the way you like if anybody's making that argument, yeah, that basically is accelerationism. The idea that things getting really bad all by themselves are going to lead to, you know, revolution or to people, you know, organizing in more effective ways, whatever. Um, and unfortunately that's, you know, very often not the case, right? The track record, you know, the track record is not great, you know? So, um, so yeah, I mean, that would be, I mean, usually be the other direction, right? You know, we should hope for the worst, most right wing, you know, possibility in order to bring that about. But, you know, it is the same, very dubious argument. So what is going to happen in this country then? I mean, it, it feels like Bernie, it feels like Bernie, I'm a, I'm a Bernie apologist right now, but that's a whole other conversation. Bernie is not going to happen. We're going to end up with Biden. No, 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 no. he can still win here. No, just kidding. Yeah, yeah, Bernie can still win. Go out. Let's get more votes for Bernie. There's some way that he can still win. Yeah. And, and we have a, we have a system. We, we have a, a, a system that's unraveling. And yeah. what we're holding on to is that COVID-19 is, you know, we're all going to get COVID-19, but it's no longer a death sentence. They've learned how to treat it. And if it is a death sentence, you have a comorbidity that's your own fault. We're going to start blaming people for dying from COVID-19. Yeah, there's already been a lot of that. Yeah, so, and that's where we'll be a year or two from now with a... I, I have no idea what's going to happen a year or two from now. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to claim to. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that it's... I think that a lot of times, part of the problem with acceleration is a lot of times when people get, you know, things get worse. There's no audit. It's not an automatic thing that, like, people respond by saying, oh... You know, we need to, um, you know, we need to organize, we need socialism, whatever, you know, that can happen. But uh, people could also turn to all sorts of horrible right wing populist solutions. They could also, uh, you know, they could also just get demoralized. Right. I mean, I I think we've seen a lot of both of those things happen lately. What are you saying, Dr. Pappas? What what are you saying? I I agree. I agree with everything that was just said. <laughs> and and as a doctor, how do you treat people without any hope? How would you treat, I mean, we have a, a population now that's either actively in denial. I mean, just celebrating the denial by going to these maskless swimming parties and Mount Rushmore mm-hmm. and being animated by their their denial. Or you have people who are, you know, in lockdown, terrified and demoralized. How do you treat people? What do you advise them? I mean, I, if if you're just asking on a practical day, yeah, on a practical. I mean, level. I advise them like uh, first off, I even inside of the horrible, horrible medical system that we have, I try to practice as much as I can what 
some people would term like revolutionary medicine inside of that environment. So the first thing is, yeah, I might be talking to people about how they, um, how they protect themselves from COVID, wash your hands, wear a mask when you go out. If you have to work, then you have to work. You should wear a mask, those types of things, and legitimize the fact that we're actually in a pandemic and, don't, and kind of try to dispel a lot of these myths around those things and generally answer people's questions. But I also try to bridge that to a conversation of why we are in the pandemic that we're in in the first place okay so, so does Mar- you're a, is it fair to call you a, a socialist yes you're a marxist yeah. okay does yeah. marx provide wonderful diagnostic tools but no uh proven curatives i i mean i would say that that marx provides tools to diagnose symptoms of problems with capitalism and those types of things. But I think that also when we talk about worker control of workplaces and those types of things, I think that those would be prescriptives of what some of the solutions to the problems that we're seeing are. Right. Right. Dr. Ben Burgess. Thank you, Dr. Mike. Sorry for interrupting. Are you you kidding? I want to get, I want you to meet Michael Brooks. And Sam, you can, hey, introduce me to whoever you want. Yeah, to, you, I'll should talk be, to whoever. you should be doing Sam Cedar and Michael Brooks. I'll talk with you guys. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. It's always great. Uh, we're talking with Professor Ben Burgess, author of Give Them an Argument Logic for the Left. You know, I'm in a bad mood. I'm looking for a fight. And uh, <laughs> the doctor comes in and uh, he was he's not looking for a fight. He's actually fighting. And it's great. He's he's there. Are you back in Georgia? No, no. We're we're going to be in Michigan for uh, for a few more weeks. Yeah. And what is the sense you get about this country? I well, I want to give myself three days off yeah. and not pay attention, but I feel I don't. Des- I don't feel like I deserve time well, off. Take, take three days off. You. I mean, I you should do that. I mean, you're not going to. I don't know that it helps anybody for, for you to burn yourself out, but, uh, I'm already there. but well, you know, take, uh, <laughs> take a day off. I mean, I know you can't go anywhere, but, uh, right. you know, but, but do it anyway. Uh, I don't know. I mean, so uh, there's a bar about five minutes away from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, like a five minute walk away from, uh, from here, is a uh, Michigan State University student, you know, student kind of bar uh, called Harper's, uh, which uh, I've been to before. It's it's a terrible place anyway. But um, a lot of people seem to disagree because about a hundred people got COVID there in the last couple of weeks. Uh, like I was on the front page of you know CNN. Uh, so yeah, that's that seems. Uh, is it a death sentence though? Uh, well. I mean, what does that mean? Is it a death sentence? If it means that some people will die from it, then yeah. I mean, lots of people won't. Of course, that was always true. Uh, maybe fewer people are now. We're getting better at, at treating it. I mean, that would be more of a pre- you know, question for your previous guest. But, um, but you know, my understanding is that, okay, first of all, lots of people do die, even if it's a very small percentage, right? You know, that's that's why this has always been so scary that, if you have this crazy exponential growth rate, a very small percentage can still be tons of people. Uh, and also my understanding is that lots of people who don't die, um, you know, go through a very traumatic experience, maybe have permanent lung damage, you know, various kinds of issues for the rest of their lives, you know? So 
I think the way we talk about it is if, as if like either you die or you're fine, right? Mm-hmm. You know, is part of the problem in itself. But the bigger part of the problem is um, like, okay, why was that bar, you know, in uh, in East Lansing, Michigan? open in the first place because uh, Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of, of Michigan, who the thing is, Whitmer was actually as far as this goes, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not a uh, apologist for her. You know, she, she, you know, she was a, she ran against, you know, Medicare for all the democratic primary a couple of years ago. She did. I didn't she know did. that. Yeah, yep, she did. Uh, there's a, uh, yeah, her primary opponent, um, in uh, in that race, right, uh, was a guy named Abdul El Sayed, uh, who uh, was a, uh, a birdie guy. He was uh, he was the head of the health department in Detroit uh, as a doctor. Uh, he was he had this program to give poor kids glasses, and he had this very detailed, very well worked out plan to do like a state level. Uh, version of Medicare for All in, in Michigan. You could, I think, read his stuff on that in Current Affairs. Uh, it was endorsed by Bernie Sanders. He would have been the first Muslim governor of a state. Uh, you know, so I was I was extremely enthusiastic when he was running. But you know, and 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 you know, Whitmer again. She was on the wrong side of that issue. She was supported by Blue Cross Blue Shield. But that said, uh, for the first like couple months. She was actually one of the best governors in terms of her COVID response. Like she had one of the, um, like there were a lot of things that were being done that were good, like uh, like like having uh, Michigan's Medicaid program waive, you know, uh, co-pays for the stuff. But also, uh, like just in terms of the shelter-in-place orders, one of the, the toughest shelter-in-place orders, you know, the, in, in the country, and it really seemed like she was holding firm on it, right? Uh, she was always being... Um, she, uh, she was, you know, she was always being attacked, you know, by Trump for it, but even she, right. Even Gretchen Whitmer, uh, folded to political pressure and, and did a partial reopen. I mean, there are, there are bars that are open right now in Michigan, right? Like that. And that was it. That was the legislature. That was her. She had the you know, executive order, uh, for the, uh, for shelter in place, which really speaks to, the power of the business community to to chip away uh, at, at the political will of any office holder, you know, really to uh, you know to do much about this. Uh, and and one thing that you know, one thing that makes this very depressing, of course, is that the um, the counterweight to that should be right would in other circumstances be uh, the the power of organized labor. Uh, because their their members don't you know want to stay home with their families and you know not get the plague, um, but of course this is coming at the end of, of a decades long assault on unions, uh, and uh, and and it's very hard you know to uh, to organize much. I mean there are certainly people who are doing that right even at my university you know Georgia State is the uh, is a CWA affiliated you know, union that's trying to organize everybody there, uh, and they are being very active with Zoom meetings and stuff. But you know, it's it's very it's very difficult to organize a union, you know, when uh, when you can't get within six feet of anybody. Uh, so so unions, a, yeah. where, 
we've we've had uh, some uh, reporters on. One of the, yeah. one of the reporters works for the IWW International mm-hmm. Workers of the World, yep. and every Monday this summer. I'm going to devote to learning about the history of unions and how to organize. We have. Yeah, you should met- read Sean's book. I'm sorry? I said you should read Sean's book. I'm not only going to read it, I'm going to have, have him on the show. We have uh, Megan Sullivan. She works for, no, well, she worked for No Evil Foods. It's a vegan meat company in North Carolina, right to work state. She and her friends try to unionize. Some of her friends were fired. And, you know, vegan food, we're healing the world, but yeah, right. <laughs> uh, don't, no union yeah. wages. No, no, uh, no, no cruelty to animals, lots of cruelty to people. Exactly, exactly. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, in preparation for that interview, I I try to, like, learn how to unionize and try to find... Yeah. You you can't find too many lectures, even on YouTube. Well, I don't I, I know I don't know if you want to I don't know if this is something you're willing to talk about on air, but uh, but but I remember you sharing with me that you you had some experience with this from uh, one of your former employers, John Stewart. I don't talk about John Stewart on the show, threatening the writers, trying yeah. to uh, unionize. You know what? You can't get that story out. Nobody will cover it. Nobody was interested in how John Stewart fought the unions because there was a story that the media preferred about John Stewart. Print the legend, as they say. Print the legend. Because the, the, the truth about John Stewart fighting the Writers Guild is doesn't measure up with the product he's he's selling. Right. When you ask people about unions, yeah. it's considered rude. You know, Zach Ford is with us. I'm in two unions. And he, he is the press secretary for Alliance for Justice. When he was over at Think Progress, you helped organize the union over there, didn't you? I sure did. And played a small part. We have a union Alliance for Justice, too. So I'm very proud to be a union worker. And, and the, it's not rude if you want to ask me about unions. I'll talk about them. Well, near Tandon, yeah, can you talk about near? If I'm if I'm willing to talk about John Stewart, are you willing to talk about near Tandon and how they embraced unions or did? I mean, that's. Oh, I, I, OK. I'm actually excited about this because because uh, because I'm I'm I, I love stories about near Tandon being a piece of shit. Well, I don't think Zach's going to give you that. OK. Near Tandon immediately recognized our union. I'm not saying that we got everything that no. we okay. want. Right. That's good, though. That's not, I, 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 can recognize I did not come on to burn an old bridge either. Okay. Well, you're not going to get rehired at Think Progress. No, it doesn't exist anymore. I'm not I happy know. about that. Yeah. I, I, I'll say this because I. Yeah, I'm not here to start a feud with Nira Tandon, but every once in a while she'll throw out a critique about what she wishes yeah. the media was doing and how they cover things. And I just think to myself, if only there were a progressive publication <laughs> journalist that could cover things that way. That's the one like yeah. salt in the wound that still burns when I see it. Why uh, did Think Progress go under? 
I mean, it was a mostly financial decision. They tried to sell it. They tried to find another donor that wanted to uh, sustain it, and none of that materialized. So, yeah, yeah, I guess you couldn't get any of the uh, of the Saudi princes and stuff who uh, who fund the Center for American Progress to do that. But Mm. like, I, I, you know, let's put it this way: there's the you know, uh, there's a lot in the negative column for uh, for Tandon for me, but that that's a significant item in the positive column. So I guess that's I, good. To know. I'll just say this: I'm not here to defend Nira Tandon on any fronts either. <laughs> Fair enough. Do we know if Joe Biden? If what would be interesting is to find out if the Biden campaign workers were able to unionize and. Mm-hmm whether or not it's spread to the DNC. You would think the DNC would demand that all presidential campaigns now be unionized. One would think, right? Be a good story to look into. When we come back, we're going to talk to Zach Ford, who is the press secretary for Alliance for Justice. He's also an LGBTQ activist. A lot to talk about. And Professor Ben Burgess, let me give you a proper introduction as I say goodbye to you. You are the author of Give Them a... What is this, the David Feldman show? (laughs) Uh, You are the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Your latest book is Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. You can hear philosophy professor Ben Burgess every Tuesday night doing the debunk on The Michael Brooks Show and... You are a columnist for Jacobin. What is your latest piece for Jacobin? Uh, the last thing that I wrote for Jacobin uh, was uh, just came out. Uh, it was um, it. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm just having a moment of. Uh, yeah, so it was it was uh, it's about the movement to defund the police. Was, uh, the title of the piece was uh, "Defund the Police That Soak the Rich." And basically the point of it was that, um, you know, when people talk about, you know, defunding the police, in other words, like, you know, slashing the budgets of police departments to reallocate funds for, for other public services, some of which might, you know, um, might address poverty or manage the ills that come from it in, in less violent ways, you know, than, than the police. Yeah, it's a good idea, right? Like that that we shouldn't have these bloated militarized police departments. And of course, we do desperately need money for the rest of these things. But oftentimes the way that people talk about it doesn't quite add up uh, because, you know, for example, right? Like people say, oh, you know, we, sh- we should, uh, you know, we should defund the police so we can have, you know, better schools. Uh, and there was, there was, well, one of my favorite Congresswomen, you know, and, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, tweeted along these lines, that tweet is quoted in the article. But the problem is, if you actually look at the budget for the NYPD and budget for the New York public schools, uh, you could take away like half of the budget of the NYPD, uh, you know, which is $5.9 billion a year, uh, you know, close to half of that, right, $2.8 billion. And literally all that would do is keep the New York school budget exactly as is because there have already been cuts of $2.8 billion proposed to it. And let's say you were willing to take another $2 billion from the NYPD budget, which would leave them with $1 billion out of the original $5.9, uh, and put that into the schools too. Great, right? But then like that's also less than a 6% increase 
in their mm-hmm. existing funded. And the existing funded situation is pretty dire. Like there was an article in New York Daily News that said that the uh, per pupil spending gap between the richest and poorest districts in New York is approaching $10,000. So given how dire the situation is, um, this would not, you know, this would be a drop in the bucket, right? Which doesn't mean don't do it, but it does mean that where we need to keep the focus as far as, as getting these funds uh, is is on well, like the like the headline says, soaking the rich, right? Like you know, like like there's there's no we can't just like if we're just moving around the crumbs that decades of neoliberalism have given cities to work with, then we're not uh, we're not going to get uh, very far, um, you know. So so we really like the focus needs to be on on bringing in more tax money, right? Well, I'm going to read it over this weekend. Hey, you know, you don't come to office hours anymore. Professor Ben Burgess, but I, I just I, I, I've been busy. I know, I know. <laughs> but what what's happened is a lot of the listeners are meeting one another in the chat room, and we all talk. We not we they put together the COVID players: Lance Jeffries, Kathleen Ash, Tom Weber, JS, and the remotest corners of the planet come together on Zoom. And they've put uh, put a band together, and this is a song that they recorded somehow all remotely. Tom is in Milwaukee, and Lance is in Pittsburgh. Kathleen is in Los Angeles. JS is in Georgia. This is a song from the COVID players. When we come back, we will be joined by our old friend, Zach Ford. of the bosses we must pay for from the cities and the farmlands to trenches full of mud war has always been the boss's way sir the union forever defending our rights down with the black flag all workers unite with our brothers and our sisters from many far off lands there is power in a union. I long for the morning that they realize brutal unjust laws cannot defeat us. But who'll defend the workers who cannot organize with bosses in their lackeys out to cheat us? Money speaks for money, the devil for his own. Who comes to speak for the skin and the bone? What a comfort to the widow, a light to the child. There is power in a union.
the union forever defending our rights. Down with the black flag, all workers unite with our brothers and our sisters from many far off lands. There is power in a union. Zach Ford joins us. He is the press secretary for AFJ. Go to afj.org, Alliance for Justice. He's also an LGBTQ activist. We first met you when you were over at Think Progress, where you covered LGBTQ issues, as well as the White House, the Trump White House. How are things in Washington, D.C., before we talk about Mr. Barr and the 200th justice that Donald Trump has appointed? It's amazing. He's packed the lower courts. Oh, yeah. Well, D.C. itself is hot. I think we are lucky to be one of the very few places in the country where coronavirus cases are actually declining. Um, We'll see what happens with all of the Fourth of July events that might happen on the mall, thanks to Trump. But, you know, uh, status quo, pretty much uh, everything is terrible. And now it's hot and gross, too. Are they terrible? It feels like it's I mean, you look great. Then again, compared to me, I literally just hopped out of the shower, spruced myself up, put a little mousse in my hair just for you, David. That that you know, that's that's a beautiful mousse that you have in your hair, little antlers. And uh, are you enjoying lockdown? Do you go to an office or do you work at home? No, we've been working from home since uh, March thirteenth, and won't be going back till at least. September at this point. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of a homebody. I'm, I'm, I like having my sort of comfortable space at home, uh, and doesn't bother me too much. I just kind of miss people. (laughs) Right. Um, I had one friend that, uh, we agreed to sort of enter each other's bubble. Um, so we, I was now go to over his apartment sometimes to hang out, which is just nice. Like I can be in somebody else's space and enjoy their company. Right. Um, but I'm still otherwise totally social distancing and isolating. I've gone to an outdoor restaurant once. Uh, I've been out to a park a couple of times with friends, but even that makes me uncomfortable. And so everyone else is doing some crazy, crazy stuff. And I don't want to be a part of getting that coronavirus. Yeah, it's creepy. I go outside in New York and it's just it's New York already is creepy. And then you pile on the, the COVID-19 and it's now the city that sometimes sleeps. Yeah, it actually. Well, anyway, let's talk <laughs> about uh, Mr. Barr, our attorney general, Oof. Jerry Nadler, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, said that impeaching our attorney general would pretty much amount to a fool's errand before an election. It's just not going to happen. The Alliance for Justice has uh, released the following statement. Well, tell us what the Alliance for Justice believes about Bill Barr. So we... We, we totally believe that Bill Barr needs to resign, that he has not only uh, upended the rule of law and any integrity that the Department of Justice might have, but, you know, he's also 
doing Trump's bidding to roll back health care and civil rights protections. So uh, he's sort of hurting the country on, on two different fronts. He's pretty unabashed about it. Um, so it's it's a very big concern for us. And uh, what what's prompting this conversation is we put out a big new report. I think it's like 40 pages long. Yeah. We've actually been working on this report for a while because we were sort of waiting for, you know, a, a timely moment to, to share it. We were originally going to put it out when Barr was supposed to testify uh, before the House Judiciary Committee back in the spring. Of course, that got pushed off because of coronavirus. So we put it out last week when uh, the whistleblowers were testifying. And we've had to update it so much, even Mm -hmm. in that period of time, to account for unleashing federal military officials uh, on peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square, all of this effort to oust the Southern District of New York U.S. attorney. Uh, You know, the list keeps growing. And of course, uh, just this past week, the Trump administration's uh, brief to the Supreme Court calling for the Affordable Care Act to be overturned in its entirety, which would be devastating on so many fronts, not the least of which during a pandemic. Um, Is the Supreme Court, I thought Barr didn't want the Supreme Court to rule on that until after the election. We don't know if the Supreme Court's going to rule on that, right? Well, Barr doesn't get to determine what schedule they operate on. The brief was due. Uh, We were all sort of expecting it when it came down. So it's likely that uh, even oral arguments might not happen until after the election. So there's not a concern on, on that front. Um, but this is an argument that there have been so many holes poked in Obamacare. It's no longer an actual law. It's well, been, that's, that's not quite. It's actually more ludicrous than that. If you'd like a quick yeah, attempt yeah. to wrap your head around it. OK, so back in 2012, when they challenged the Affordable Care Act in, at court, they were all upset about the individual mandate, which as folks will remember was a part of the law that said, if you don't get insurance for yourself, you got to pay the government some money because the government's going to use that to offset the new costs for insurance companies since they can't manage their betting as much uh, as well as they used to. Supreme Court said, hey, that's okay. This is a tax. Now, the Republicans tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. We know that didn't work. John McCain came out, gave us thumbs down. That was the end of their efforts. But in that crazy tax bill that made things way worse for lower income people, they zeroed out the penalty tax for the individual mandate. So the individual mandate is still in there. It still says if you don't get insurance, you have to pay this tax to the government, but the tax is zero dollars. So effectively not there. So what this new argument is saying is because the tax is zero dollars, it's not actually a tax. And so the individual mandate has to be ruled unconstitutional, even though the court ruled that it was constitutional. Well, so, but it's all about this zero, right? Right. What they're saying is like, technically there's still this tax. The tax is just zero dollars. So what they're saying is since it's zero dollars, there's no money actually coming into the government. That means it's not a tax. And so even though there's no enforcement mechanism for the individual mandate, it's just a a line of text in the law that now means nothing because of this zero dollars. They're saying now it's unconstitutional and the whole law should get thrown out as a result of it. It's even a lot of conservative legal thinkers think that this is a really far-fetched attempt to just repeal the law through judicial decree. Well, theoretically, if Biden becomes president, the individual mandate, that tax can be reinstated, right? 
It would have to, again, uh, pass through Congress, but uh, presumably, yeah. So the the bill is still whole. Who were the who were the whistleblowers last week? And what were they saying about Bill Barr? So these whistleblowers were just letting folks know that all of our suspicions were correct about the kinds of political pressure that was being applied behind the scenes. You know, one of the, the biggest uh, chunks of our report is about all of these different friends of Trump that Barr is always working behind the scenes to give more lenient sentencing. You know, uh, Roger Stone, uh, Michael Flynn, folks like this, and, and a lot of other folks that were caught up in the Mueller report in the Russia investigation. And, you know, you have to keep in mind, too, Bill Barr is out there giving these speeches where he's saying, you know, we need law and order. He's, he's regurgitating a lot of the lines that the Trump says. But even before um, George Floyd's murder and the m- more recent uprisings, he was really for like fighting for strong penalties uh, for criminal uh you know, for for convictions. So it's this double edged messaging where for folks who aren't friends of the president, he's like, bring down the full book of the law. But for friends of the president, he's like, oh, you know, we we, we don't have to, to push for the full penalty on this. We can let them go. Uh, you know, even though they're they're lying to the FBI, as as uh, Michael Flynn did and, and, and whatnot. So it's it's really hypocritical and and speaks to trying to use this office not to serve the American people by upholding the rule of law, but to serve the president's personal interests. The attorney general of the United States is not the president's personal lawyer. That's Rudy Giuliani. Uh, <laughs> well, he is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bill Barr is designed to serve the American people, and that's just not what he's doing. Is there any ideology behind Bill Barr's decisions? Is is this something that the Federalist Society would Greenlight, is, is there anything other than pure, naked ambition behind this? Well, so, you know, it's I, I try not to speculate too much about people's individual motivations. You know, Barr has also given these speeches where it, it kind of has this Christian dominionist tone to it uh, about, you know, enforcing the will of God. We, we have to watch out for all of these secular forces trying to destroy our country. Hi, I'm one of those secular forces. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but also this very strong belief in, in supreme executive power. Uh, you know, this myth that the founders wanted uh, an executive who was as strong as a king. We know that that's not the point they specifically wanted co-equal branches of government with checks and balances between them so uh it, it's definitely working to try to shift that so that the president can kind of do whatever he wants you know when trump is always out there saying i've got article two it says i can do whatever i want Barr is there trying to confirm that for him right the supreme court ruled i think it was louisiana's laws on abortion were unconstitutional and so we're th- we're told that roberts now has disappointed the evangelicals <laughs> but is that true are we seeing a, a swing no no so you know what happened here was louisiana passed the exact same law that had already been ruled in te- unconstitutional in texas just like four years ago you know this isn't like roe v wade or or some of you know, Brown v. Board decisions that sort of have this much longer legacy. This was literally just four or five years ago. And the Fifth Circuit, which now has 
more Trump appointees than any other circuit also advanced this lawsuit. And so the Supreme Court had to take it up and said, you can't just totally defy this precedent that we put in place literally four years ago. Uh, So all that Roberts was doing in this decision was saying, hey, I actually think that for the Supreme Court to function, we need to actually uphold our own precedent. So I disagreed with the ruling about uh, the Texas law. And I disagree. I, I feel like if it weren't for that ruling, we should allow this Louisiana law to move forward. But I have to stick with precedent. And you can tell that Roberts is not uh, abandoning conservatives at all when you look at these other decisions um, that they did not take up this week. Uh, they said, you know, here were these pro-abortion, pro-access to abortion decisions uh, coming out of other circuits. And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 you need to go back and look and see if you ruled on that properly based on the new ruling that we put out. They're still kind of trying to chip away at it, even if they couldn't, you know, totally reverse what they had done four years ago. So anyone who tries to say, you know, Roberts is now the moderate isn't really tuned into what I think motivates Roberts. Roberts recognizes that this is the Roberts court. He's the chief justice. uh, And he has this whole belief, you know, he said during his confirmation hearing, he only calls balls and strikes. He had that big quote a couple of years ago, you know, there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges, uh, there are only judges. Uh, So he has this belief, you know, he might be personally conservative, he might interpret the law in conservative ways, but he's trying to uphold the integrity of the court. And so that's why you see him kind of as the swing vote on some of these rulings now. It doesn't reflect a a change of philosophy. He's still a conservative. Has Kavanaugh surprised anybody? No. Not at all. I mean, maybe Susan Collins, <laughs> Susan <laughs> Collins, who was so convinced that Kavanaugh wouldn't overturn Roe. You know, technically, Roe was not on the line in this case. This was specifically about access to abortion, not whether or not you can get an abortion. Why um, hasn't Roe made it to the Supreme Court yet? I mean, it's it's because conservatives have tried other strategies. You know, in a sense, Roe made it back in the uh Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision, which did shift some of the jurisprudence around how the Supreme Court uh, deals with the right to abortion. But since then, conservatives have instead tried to chip away at the access to abortion since they can't get that overturned. So the cases are about access. It's about, you know, in, in this case, the law was hospital admitting privileges, mm-hmm. this idea, which is false, that women and and other people who might obtain abortions are somehow safer if their doctor has admitting privileges. Well, abortion is one of the very safest procedures you can get. It's similar to like a colonoscopy. It's not something that, you know, requires major hospital certification for. And moreover, like if something goes wrong, a woman's going to go to the nearest hospital anyway. It doesn't matter whether or not the doctor performing the abortion has admitting privileges. But this law in, in Louisiana would have effectively reduced the number of uh, clinics that you could receive an abortion from three, which is still not very much, all the way down to one in New Orleans. And you have to remember, Louisiana is also surrounded by other states that have restrictions on abortion. So even with the three that Louisiana has, people are driving long distances. Louisiana also has a law requiring um, you 
a 24-hour waiting period, so you also have to make arrangements to stay over or do the trip twice. You know, all of these things are making it a whole lot harder for people to access abortion. And so the cases are really about that. Are are these laws uh, similar uh, or, or, or enforceable? Or are they encroaching on on the access to abortion? Do you, do you suspect perhaps that the Republicans are afraid of losing the issue of abortion the same way Jerry Falwell embraced the right to life when civil rights could no longer be fought? Once once he could no longer fight for segregation, he had to turn to abortion. Are they afraid that if abortion is outlawed? then they have to find a new cause that will galvanize the right? I, I, I don't think that's it. Because even in, in that strange hypothetical, well, maybe not strange, it's, it's certainly a real concern, but women and, and, and trans men and other people aren't going to stop getting abortions. It's just going to go underground and it's going to be much less safe uh, and, and much less available. And there will be all kinds of other economic repercussions for the people who can't access it. So the issue isn't going to go away. I think they just understand that they're going to have better headway if their goal is to stop people from getting abortions instead of trying to overturn Roe, just make it harder right. to actually access an abortion safely and legally. Right, right. Last time you were on the show, the Supreme Court ruled, just as we were going on the air, that it was illegal to fire somebody if they were a member of the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to believe, but there was a time in this country when I guess half the states, like Last month, it was legal to call somebody into your office and say, it's come to my attention that you are a transgender person or you're LGBTQ, you're fired. And it was perfectly legal. And you said when the Supreme Court finally ruled that this is a violation of the Civil Rights Act, I believe of 64. Uh, Title 7? 67. Okay. Anyway, you said it was as big or bigger than... Same-sex marriage, Ogerfeld. Do you still believe that? I, I definitely still believe that. I mean, you know, marriage had this very symbolic weight to it um, because you you see people getting married, uh, and it, it's I think viewed more as an endorsement of that same-sex connection, which you know gets into sort of all of the old arguments against homosexuality, the ick factor, and moral objections and, and all of that kind of piece. So it, it had this greater symbolic weight. Uh, and I'm not I'm not discounting that. But I think that this Title VII ruling is going to make a bigger difference in LGBTQ people's lives. Uh, because, you know, the, the line we always had before was, yeah, you can get married, but if you put the picture of your spouse on your desk, you can get fired. If you put... Uh, if, you, if your landlord knows that you're a same-sex couple living together, you can get evicted, you know, all of these other things can still fall apart. So it didn't matter if you could get married if everything else in your life uh, could be turned to ruin because of discrimination. So that's what this ruling uh, is really going to address. As I think I said, you know, this was specifically about employment, but the language in terms of saying if sex is the protected category, that includes 
sexual orientation and gender identity. So all of these other dominoes are going to fall in housing, in public accommodations, in education, in access to credit, you know, banks not uh, being willing to grant you a loan or things like that. Uh, and it has specific implications for the trans community where same-sex marriage didn't necessarily. I mean, a lot of trans people are queer uh, and, and may have same-sex, same-gender same partners, but uh, this also creates specific protections that trans people need and that they'll then be able to access and fight for in all of these other spaces. Are transgender people still forbidden from serving in the military? Yep, that is still is it being enforced? Is it being enforced? Yes. The Supreme Court gave the Trump administration the green light to enforce it. Even though they ruled you can't fire somebody. Well, it hasn't been. I mean, in a sense... The military gets to set its own policy about what qualifies somebody to serve. And so it doesn't it, it doesn't count as pure employment. Um, it, it doesn't it hasn't been relitigated and won't necessarily. Um, You're saying that serving that. in the military is not like being hired for a job. Correct. I mean, there are definitely other qualifications that you have to meet uh, to serve in the military that the military uh, lays out. And the the really sort of terrible ways that the Trump administration attempted to justify this ban, even though it was done post hoc, got into that territory of of necessary qualifications and deployability and things like that. So that case is still being litigated. Um, there, There may be slight impacts, but I suspect that um, it'll have to continue on its own course and won't necessarily be solved by the Title VII ruling. Is Clarence Thomas stepping down? (sighs) There's all kinds of rumors about possibly Justice Thomas stepping down, possibly Justice Alito stepping down. Uh, We don't know anything. Um, If it happens, it probably won't be till the end of the term, which is already being extended because of the coronavirus delays. Um, I... If they do, and we're trying to deal with uh, a Supreme Court vacancy right up against an election, which Mitch McConnell has said he is game to do, despite his own different rationale for blocking Merrick Garland, uh, it's going to be a very politically ugly next few months. So I'm kind of hoping for that reason, that they that they aren't stepping down, but uh, only Thomas and Alito know the answers to that right now. And Trump's appointments to the judiciary, they're like black mold. They will live on. They're, they're like the bedbugs at the Doral Hotel that Trump can't get rid of. Right. These the, these justices. How many 200 justices he's appointed? So, yes, there have been 200 confirmation votes. They're like two or three judges in there that have been confirmed. Twice so how much damage? Different. How much damage? Does that, how much does that, what does that mean in terms of 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now? I mean, think about it this way. Now, nearly a quarter of all federal judges were appointed by Trump and confirmed by the Senate. That includes judges who, like the the most two recent judges, Corey Wilson and Justin Walker, who totally want to overturn the Affordable Care Act, take away everyone's health insurance, take away protections for pre-existing conditions. It includes uh, judges like Kyle Duncan, who I think we talked about a long time ago, who had that really ugly ruling about refusing to recognize a transgender person's identity. Uh, Folks who want to 
take away workers' rights and and uh, financial protections and just about anything you can imagine. And a lot of these judges are also super young. So uh, Justin Walker, who was just confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, the second highest court in the land, essentially, is 37. And this is a lifetime seat. All of these seats are lifetime appointments. So we're going to be stuck with nearly a quarter of our federal judges upholding Trump ideology on the bench for some time. And if he gets another justice on there, you know, if he's replacing another, a conservative with a conservative, it won't shift the balance too much. But again, it just delays how much longer before we can actually get somebody who's even the least bit fair-minded uh, to serve on, on one of these courts. Great, great. Are any of these judges he has appointed, are any of them great legal minds? Is there anybody, I mean, even Barr, is a legal mind. Sure. I mean, there there are definitely some that, you know, have the law school training and have the, the legal experience um, to, to be a judge. But you also have to look at their their temperament. Uh, and, you know, if there's somebody who got all of their legal experience uh, helping fossil fuel companies, you know, pollute the environment or helping uh, anti-choice organizations challenge uh, abortion or what have you, like, you can't expect them to then fairly rule from the bench. You you have to take all of that into consideration. And we've already seen so many of them issuing decisions that line up perfectly with what we knew about their records before they were confirmed. Uh, in fact, just to sort of pitch the political arm uh, for my organization, the Alliance for Justin, Justice Action Campaign, uh, we set up a page called our Senate Accountability page. And if you go there, you'll see all of the 32 or so senators who are running for re-election this year. How did they vote on Trump's judges? How did they vote on the worst judges uh, on access to health care, the worst judges on LGBTQ issues, the worst judges on reproductive freedom. What were they saying before the Senate got their eyes on them? Are there Democrats like Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris who've been complicit in this? There there are a couple exceptions. Cory Booker, Uh, he's on the Justice Committee. There are, I mean, but we're not just talking about the Judiciary Committee because these all had to go to the floor. So this, every senator had to decide mm-hmm. whether or not they're going to weigh in. And so, you know, for us, we picked like the 15 worst on each of these issues. And so, you know, if if for whatever unique reasons one of the Democratic senators voted for one or two of these judges, I don't think that's nearly as damning as you know, people who voted for all of the anti-healthcare judges, for all of the anti-LGBTQ judges, um, and there are more than 15 of each. We're just trying to give, you know, uh, a digestible sample so you can understand, hey, they knew exactly who these people were when they voted for them. So if your senator is out there saying, I support healthcare, I support uh, protections for pre-existing conditions or whatnot, and they voted for... Uh, I think Susan Collins is 11 or 12 on our list of 15, but a lot of the Republicans are 15 for 15 on access to health care. You know, you can't take them at their word. You have to look at the votes. And since the Senate hasn't done much else uh, in the past two years except confirm Trump's judges, these records are sort of the deciding factor for uh, how we can hold these senators to account. Fantastic. Since 1979, the Alliance for Justice has been the leader in advocating for fair and independent justice system. 
And Zach Ford is the press secretary for the Alliance for Justice. Go to AFJ.org. There's a big fundraiser in September. Uh, yeah, we, we have several big fundraising events, like many nonprofits. We're going digital because bringing a whole lot of people into a banquet hall doesn't work quite as well in, in this era. But uh, we hope folks are, are really interested in that. Uh, I believe we have uh, Senator Shard Brown from Ohio uh, and Preet Bahara also uh, will be featuring at that event. So uh, we're really excited uh, that even in these strange times, we can still bring people together and, and keep our mission moving forward. Fantastic. When we come back, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and his son, Ethan, will join us. Professor Mike Steinel, who uh, comes on our show Mondays to talk about Bob Dylan, and he, you can find his work on Spotify. That's pretty great stuff. Thank you, Zach Ford. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, his son, Ethan. And I'm going to unmute the good doctor, and Ethan is unmuted. I'm going to do the obvious joke. It's Dr. Phil, right? <laughs> How often do people do that to you? I, I do it daily to him. So. <laughs> How's that working out for you? Good. It never gets old. <laughs> hey, I, I love this. And it's one of my favorite parts of doing this because I get to talk not just to a world-class shrink, a psychiatrist, a professor of psychoanalysis, but his son, and I get to, you know, it's 
pretty Oedipal. It's pretty amazing. I have a lot of questions. Ethan. Wait, 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 wait. Before we continue, have you gotten my bill from last month? <laughs> but David, don't forget, as he told you, it's pay what you can. What okay. You can. Either Zell or Venmo. <laughs> I always say, doctor, uh, I can't pay you. I have the money. I, I, I just can't. I just can't. I can't pay you. A uh, couple of things. First of all, Ethan Hirschenfeld is a very funny comedian and singer and actor. And his album, Thug Thug Jew, was number one on iTunes. Yeah. Oh, by the way, you mentioned Oedipal. Um, there's, some, there's actually some Oedipal mushrooms right here in this forest. <laughs> Sorry, I'll leave now. No, 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 no. Uh, you're up in Truro and the doctor yeah. is, are you in Manhattan? Where else? You look good, though. You, both of you look like you have color. You look good. Nah. You do look good. Really? But, um, yeah. Look good. I like the, uh, I like the yarmulke. It's a, it's, yeah. It's a, so we had a professor, a business professor on earlier. I, I want to talk about jokes and their relation to the unconscious in a second. But we were talking about hoarding toilet paper. This was a... Uh, a professor at a business school. And I said, why do people hoard toilet paper? And he said, well, it's a control thing that, that Americans and he says, not just Americans in Australia. We, we see the same thing that when when there is fear of the unknown, people's instinct is to go out and hoard toilet paper because it makes them feel that they're in control. And I said, well, Freud talks about the anal phase, right? There's the oral. Oh, oh I have a, a parent. I have a, my, my, my father's on the show. You're going to say words like that? <laughs> Not with you. I, I won't say the F word, Freud. I apologize. Say right. you. So uh, I'm going to ask Ethan to answer this, and then you. Let me answer. The, yes, it does. It has to do with that whole anal retentive thing. But I will say this also. Something that people overlooked through the entire March, April, when the t- whole toilet paper hoarding thing was going on, they they just completely overlooked the fact that this stuff is two-ply. It's two-ply. So however much you think you have, you have twice that much. You just have to fill it apart. <laughs> so if you think you're running low, you have twice as much. So just everyone relax. It's two-ply. That's what that means. Jesus. Okay. I now wish you could see. I wish everybody could see Dr. Hirschenfeld laughing at the his pride, son. The nachos. The laughter. Yeah. Okay, so Ethan, let me yes. you answer this, and then we'll check with your dad. By the way, that Johnsons and Johnsons check before you throw it out because they lost that lawsuit about that asbestos you were putting up your bum. A lot of it was a lot of it wasn't made from talc; it was made from cornstarch. So before you throw it out, check if you have the cornstarch stuff. Don't throw it out; that's good stuff. It's good for your butt, and it's good to cook with. It's corn, people. That's okay. what I'm saying. Okay, go on. All right. So my understanding of Freud, I was told that. Bad toilet training can result in greediness, an inability to love, and writer's block. And also a very messy house. <laughs> Especially if you live in a one-bedroom or a studio. It's the main thing they don't talk about. You really, it's a critical skill. But yeah, go on, doctor. So doctor, toilet training, how important is toilet training? It's the first, the first sense of control 
that a young child has over his body. So that when that sense of control is lost in some way, like we're all experiencing now, to some degree or another, you regress and you say, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Please, I don't understand these Latin medical terms. By the way, I can tell by the way you're laughing tonight, Dad, that you've had a drink. (laughs) I can see it. It's something about, it's a particular way you get. It's one drink. Tell the truth. One drink, yes. One glass of wine. I can see it. You have a particular thing that happens. Wait, what I mistook for fatherly pride is alcoholism? (laughs) (laughs) However you get there, however you get there. (laughs) I take it strictly for medicinal reasons. It's good for my arteries. Red wine. Okay. Okay. I think Freud said the same thing about cocaine. So, okay, so... The, the anal phase, that, does that come before? That's after the oral phase, right? Exactly, yes. Okay, and so, so your first gift to the universe is, is what's in your diaper, correct? And it's your first sense of being in control of anything. But the way your parents react to your it, gift informs true. your adult behavior, right? To some degree, if you're constantly shamed, for example, for any malfeasance, then you can grow up feeling very ashamed all the time and not know why you're feeling so ashamed. But it can have its roots there. So so your attitude towards money is often linked to exactly how you were toilet trained. Yeah. And you will also notice that the, the word cheese, you know how people call the money the cheese? Like, I want the cheese. And that's right. not a coincidence. That cheese can actually really stop you up. So, <laughs> just that, and you hold on. It's a sense of pouring. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I, I was making a very important point. Okay. Um, okay so with on. my kids, yeah. when when I would change their diaper, I'd say, Oh, my God, you're leaking parts of your body. We have to take this, put it on ice. We have to go to the emergency room. Your, your body is falling out of you. Are they permanently? I'm kidding. I didn't do that. You're doing your best to screw <laughs> them up. Yes. So, okay. So I remember, I remember once having, uh, I only have one memory of that phase. We were coming home. It was summer, and I had had an accident. I was probably four years old. And I was trying to pass it off. I was already, uh, uh, I was already, I guess, a, an actor and and thinking I could trick people. And so I remember I didn't know what to. So I got into the car with the whole family. We were driving home, and I had a full load in my shorts, and I was denying that it was me. I remember this. That was a, okay. that was a classy. Okay, back to the show. Okay, now what is the problem? I'm, I'm curious because I think Americans are not equipped for introspection and i think we're progressively dumber and bad we're becoming worse parents because we lack values not dumber just less educated okay that's that's fair the same our what 
our general IQ is the same, but we just don't learn anything. We don't learn anything. And now, you know, we have kids and I don't think we're instilling values or critical thinking. Yeah. And I hate to think about the toilet training that's going on in America right now. And it's like, you know, we don't teach sex education and I don't think we teach toilet training in, well, in this country. Some people, all extremes are no good when it comes to kids. So some people are totally permissive and you want to shit in your pants till you're six years old, go ahead, enjoy yourself. That's no good. Also, the people who say one, you're one year old and you're still messing your diaper, here's a slap in the face for you. That's no good either. What about rubbing their nose in it? With, or, That's that, Who should now, uh, what did Freud recommend? Should the father or the mother do the toilet training depending on the sex of the child? You know, we talked about a while back that Freud was a genius, just like Newton was a genius. Neither one of them knew everything. Newton didn't know anything about relativity. And there were plenty of things that Freud never got to. So I, I would not go to him to be the last word on many of these issues having to do with child development, because that came later. Okay, if you're a single parent yeah. and you're raising a child of the opposite, I don't even know if that's the right term anymore. It's not the right term to say I'm raising a child of the opposite identity. Or, or, but should a mother toilet train the son or toilet train the daughter? I mean, do they do they ever come up with a, a definitive decision as to the division of labor when it comes to the sexes and the raising of the children? The, the answer to your question, it's an important question, but the answer to the question is that either parent could do it in a sexualized or a non-sexualized manner. And obviously, to do it in a sexualized manner by either parent is no damn good. Right. And if it's not talked like, about... And just for anyone who's watching, who's not really... doesn't have a background or expertise in this, what that means is that while changing the diaper, don't... You don't want to say things like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm calling your dad's a doctor. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no yeah. I don't want to... No, 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 no. Don't do oh, that. Yeah. I'm, I'm cur- want say, <laughs> want say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. Give no, it to no. me, big boy. No, 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 no. Stop, give stop, it to stop. Me, big boy. Yeah, stop, like, stop, stop. Behave. I'm going to mute you. <laughs> I'm going to mute you. How did you discipline Ethan growing up when he was misbe- misbehaving like that? Because that was inappropriate. That's- <laughs> I'm trying to help. You're trying to. Now, if Ethan and I were alone, that would be funny. But the fact that your your father is here and he's a a doctor, it's inappropriate. So what is the proper way to discipline somebody when they're saying things that are inappropriate in public? You laugh at them. Once <laughs> <laughs> a comedian is born. Yes, that's how a comedian is born. Absolutely. Well, what does laughter signal then? When you're raising a child and he's misbehaving, and if you laugh, what does that tell the child? Well, it, it, it encourages the behavior. And if it's terrible behavior, that's bad. But if it's, you know, 
it's funny behavior or if it's cute behavior. What's the problem with laughing? Laughing is, is a very uh, Im important communication between human beings. Now, discipline. Yeah. We, we just had Zach Ford on the show. He's an LGBTQ activist. Yeah. And is it the DSM? He, he depressed me, by the way. I, I was thinking either we're not going to be able to be funny or we have to be really funny after that. Well, if you're depressed, we're going to be funny. Okay, good. Is you it mean the, it was depressing just that like, uh, like a quarter of the judges now for the rest yeah. of our lives? Yeah. yeah it's, that a is, that, that's a hor it's a horror. It's a horror show. Yeah. yeah. So up until 1972, 71, psychiatrists considered homosexuality a, a mental illness? Some did. But it, it said in the footnotes, it said, but as far as mental illnesses goes, it's the most fun among them. <laughs> so, so, like, no one, none of the other diagnoses know how to party like these guys. That's what it said. So if you got to have one, that's the one. Go on. Some, some people, because of their own issues, looked at it that way. There's a famous letter that I often tell people about who say, oh, Freud, he's anti-feminist, homo homophobic. Famous letter, still in existence, in his collected work, of his letter to the, a mother of a homosexual man who wrote, Dear Sigmund, what should I do? And he said, this is just one normal outcome of human development, and you shouldn't do anything. And so he's your son. Love him and let him do his thing. Bug off. He didn't. And, and was that his official position on homosexuality? Yes, it was. It was. Hmm. Yeah. What about hitting? We now know you're not supposed to hit a kid. What about it? Hitting a kid is completely frowned upon now? Yeah. yeah. Was it frowned upon 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 70? I mean, what did Freud say about hitting kids? I'm sure he was against it. I'm against it. I, listen, if somebody twice your size smacked you, would you hate them? Would you be terrified of them? Uh, would you carry a grudge? I know I would, and I know I did, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Is it okay if the mother hits or spanks? By the way, let me just say this. In our house, there was never any corporal punishment. They always brought in the lieutenant. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was just a lot. He was a lot more efficient with it. Okay. Uh, I hit my kids once. Not me. Not me. Three of you. I had this little Volvo sports car. Yeah. <laughs> and we were going up to Rye Beach for a swim. And there must have been a lot of traffic, and I was frustrated. And they were killing each other in the backseat, which they always did. I, I kept yelling, shut up, shut up, shut up. And all of a sudden, I just reached back and slapped them all on their knees. And they were so shocked, because this had never happened to them before, the three of them were bawling for the next half hour. And how did you feel? Terrible. 
<laughs> and you've never forgotten it. Never. Good point. I never forgot it. Has yeah. anybody ever raised a child perfectly? Is there such a thing as not making a mistake? I'm being serious. Are there any? There are three impossible professions. Teaching, parenting, and psychoanalysis. And why are they all impossible? Because to do any of them right, you have to perfectly balance gratification and frustration. You can't frustrate the kid in learning beyond his capacity, and you can't gratify him to the point where he doesn't feel that he's independent or doing it on his own. And that sweet spot, he, and the same is true in analysis and parenting, and it's impossible to hit that sweet spot. That was his point. Neural diversity, we've touched on this. We had a, a guest, she's the editor of the Bellingham Review, and she said that certain types of mental illness should have been bred out of us because of evolution, that right. you would think that psychosis or depression would be bred out of us because it does weaken us and it's survival of the, the fittest. But now we're hearing about neural or neurodiversity and there is a school of thought, I guess, this is, she was the first one to, her name is uh, Paolo Antonetta. She's the editor of the Bellingham Review. She's saying that certain types of psychosis haven't been bred out of us because they have some kind of value to them. Absolutely. And she's not the first to say it. For example, somebody wrote a book a couple of years ago about Lincoln and Churchill. And... The thesis of the book was that part of the greatness of these two guys was that they were severe depressors. So when, what's his name, came off the plane waving the white paper from Hitler, oh, peace in our times. Chamber got, Chamberlain. Chamberlain. Um, Churchill said, bullshit, we're going to war. And he was derided for that. But as a depressive, he, it, he could see things much more clearly. No pie in the sky thing. Same with Lincoln. I, I also would say with me, I've suffered from depression at various moments in my life. And uh, it has, without fail, it helps me to get laid. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like magic. I don't know. It, it's painful, but it's just, it, it never misses. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Uh, both same thing, with, same thing with ADD, David. It also, it's true. It also helps me. That helps me get laid also. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about an old episode of uh, McHale's Navy with Fuji. What were you talking about? ADD? Uh, ADD. ADD. Very funny. Okay. So I, I tell this to parents. If you were out on the savannah 100,000 years ago with a little band of hominids running around, who would you want leading your group. Some guy who can stare at a flower and count the petals <laughs> and, and be totally absorbed by this? Or would you want some twitchy guy who can't filter out any stimuli from the environment, 
who's going to hear the the saber-toothed tiger's footsteps through the bush, you know, at, at 300 yards. But now, if you suffer from depression, yeah. Lincoln suffered from depression, and yeah. Churchill called it the bear. He suffered from the bear. It, does that make you belligerent? Doesn't Isn't the side effect of depression to lash out at innocent people like... Jefferson Davis and Adolf Hitler. I mean, <laughs> I'm being somewhat serious, not about Jefferson Davis and Hitler, but it can be, it can be part of depression. It doesn't have to be. There's a lot of ag- aggression in depression. Most often it's directed at oneself. So what were they treating their own depression by sending people off to war? It's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. That maybe Lord Halifax was right, Ethan. Negotiate. Neg- Indeed. That's what I say when I don't get the reference. Well, you know, there, there were a lot of people, you know, Chamberlain, a lot of, oh, people, okay. right. a lot of uh, people said negotiate with Hitler. Right. And if we followed their advice, we would be speaking German right now. Or are we particular? Three? I am speaking German right now because my girlfriend's German. So the whole thing, it didn't work out. After all that. But war is is war always inevitable? I mean, could we have negotiated with Hitler? Could we have negotiated with the South? Without well, you got to watch watch the plot against America. You're in that. I'm in it. Yeah, you play a rabbi who's an appeaser. No, I'm not the appeaser. The other guy's the appeaser. I'm socking it to the appeaser. Wait. All right. So anger. We're all angry right now. I'm angry. Good. You should be. I should be angry. You should. Really? Why? You should say, well, look at you. <laughs> if I were you, I'd be a psychiatrist telling me to be angry. So what do you do? In all seriousness, because I'm, I'm very angry. You should be. Anger is a good motivator. If you take your anger and use it, you know, for instance, to defeat the lunatic in, in the White House... That's good anger. That's righteous anger. Did you see the the tape that Trump retweeted of the guy in the golf cart screaming white power? Yeah. Did you watch the whole tape? I I saw the whole tape, but I really couldn't hear the guy say white power. Oh, no, that was Trump who couldn't hear it. (laughs) it Because Stephen Miller was shouting it. He thought it was coming from the room and not the tape. But if you looked at those people, it's just anger for the sake of anger. It's a bunch of senior citizens. They're screaming, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi. And this guy screamed white power. And I'm not defending anybody. I'm just saying that everybody was screaming at one another. It had nothing to do with politics. Or did it? Doctor, is this politics? Has it always been this way? Does it have to be this angry or is it because we don't make it mandatory to vote? If, if everybody had to vote, then we wouldn't be this angry. We would treat voting as a responsibility. Yeah, it, you know what? It's complicated. I mean, anger is in there. Politics is a good way to discharge anger. We all, if we if we admit it, we all feel better. When we're angry. 
Yeah. Now we can also feel guilty afterwards also, but... Um, it feels good to be angry and righteous indignation feels good. That's it. That, you took the words out of my brain. That's exactly what I was thinking. Both sides get into that righteous indignation. We happen to be right, so their indignation is just indignation. Mm-hmm. But it feels, it, feels, it feels good and right. But yeah, I was going to say that that, that that level of discourse, which is lacking in, in any content other than white power, screw you, screw you, that just becomes a kind of forum, a place to act out the anger that's what that seems like that's not really about the uh for that guy in the golf cart he's just enjoying a moment to provoke someone and right, enjoy some right. reaction i mean right, that's what right. it seems like does anybody ever win an argument couples and couples when couples are fighting does anybody ever win an argument where somebody says you know what those 14 points you're absolutely you, you've convinced me i shouldn't be sleeping with your sister and i will stop has anybody ever just said, I'm wrong? If they're mature enough, yeah. If they can really get to understand what's motivating the other, if they're interested in understanding what's motivating the other person, yeah, it can happen. It, it most often doesn't. And fighting, Ethan, you have a, a, a German girlfriend. I think so. I, she might have heard what I just said, so she might be gone. But yeah, <laughs> I have for years. Yeah. And we, and uh, what 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 have you been taught about fighting? Does it does it work? And how how do you fight? Do you is no. it do you use the Marquis de Queensbury rule? Are there did Freud come up with Marquis de Queensbury rules for couples fighting? He was not a couples therapist. I. I, I then I went. <laughs> then that doctor <laughs> took my money. Wait, when did Freud die? I, I thought I saw thirty nine. Thirty nine. By the way, I don't know. Though again, that's a reference I didn't get. I don't know that guy's rules of warfare. Was that one of those guys who wrote about the uh, yeah boxing? Uh, yeah. Oh no, I was going to quote a guy I really like who says the best way to win the war, lose the war, which is sort of a, just a fancy way of saying. Just don't fight. Just back away from it. Because in couples, my girlfriend and I, we get into these things, but then they quickly diffuse into laughter. That's our approach. So, which I think is pretty. We, I think we both know you can't win a fight. Now, would you say, doctor? And I know we're out of time. There are differences. I I know that it's fluid, but there are some differences between men and women, right? Even though we're not. The fluids are definitely different. Is that what you were talking about? Well, it's, you know, the, there is a spectrum, but there are behavioral differences between men and women. Is that fair to say? But it's on the spectrum. You're absolutely right. Behavior of, you can expect certain behavior yeah. from a woman that might be a little different from a man. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. Okay. Uh, there, was a, there was a famous sex researcher, psychoanalyst. I, th- I think his name was Pancrest. Something I can look it up for you. He said, how many different sexes are there? Infinite. And is that, what does that mean? Not even Pancrest knew. <laughs> <laughs> 
but he got so much mileage out of that line at parties. He kept saying it. <laughs> Even wrote papers about it. People are still quoting him. They have no idea what. It All right, now so we have to wrap it up. I lo- this is this is just so much fun, and it's the genius of this is to do it with Ethan and Doctor Philip Hershon. That's the. This is what makes it so fantastic. It's. Um, it's, it's fantastic. Well, he, why did I laugh at what he just said? Because that wasn't a, it wasn't a, a good a, joke. It, it was, wasn't a taboo. So why was I laughing? Because it discharged some emotion in you. It touched some emotion. I think you. you both have it wrong. It's because it was just a brilliant joke. I mean, yeah. it's, well, it's David's asking on a deeper level. Oh, I see. I see. What's the hardest your son ever made you laugh? Oh, the other night you laughed your ass. Oh, we were talking. This was very cute. It was very funny. We were talking uh, on the phone and we, we ended up, for some reason I was telling about kale chips that I was failing to make. And then, he, and then he started talking about kale. And then I said, I made a comment about how, and now over to, over to cabbage news, like a kind of news joke. Let's Something about tubers. Let's and check in with the tubers. It was just a joke about how boring our conversation uh, was, and we were going to move on to tubers. We went from the weather to kale to tubers. Yeah, and then my father was like, you know what? I think this conversation is over. This is getting, you know. How many times a week do you talk to one another? couple. Yeah, maybe three, three or four. Yeah. Do, do you say I love you at the end of the conversation? Well, no, we don't do that. Do you kiss I each do. other on the cheeks? I do sometimes. I no, do. you don't. No, you come on. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Philip, we'll end on that. Oh, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and his son, Ethan Hershenfeld. What do you want to plug, Ethan? What are, where can people see you work? Yes, so get the album. Some One of your listeners said they watched it this week and loved it, so please get the album, Thug Thug Jew. It's on Amazon and Pandora and all that stuff, thug thug Jew. But also, I just found out that this TV show I got cast in, they're going to start shooting again. So look for that in a, in a, on a screen near you. And are um, you going to go to work? Yes, in L.A. for a few days at the end of August. It's a, it's a movie about the varsity blues scandal. Uh, I play uh, Gamal Aziz, one of those parents who paid $300,000 to get his kid into USC. Wow. And uh, which is already a joke. That's like paying a million bucks to get your kid into Rutgers. It's just a, it's like a weird. Is William H. Macy starring in this? (laughs) Man, how did that guy not, that guy, they should lock him up for just how annoying he is. Forget the name of the show. I can't, I can't say the name of the show. The name of the show is still called Untitled Chris Smith Project. I think for Netflix. Okay. they, They call the scandal Varsity Blues. So. Don't you think William H. Macy wore a wire and turned his wife in? I think that's what I think he cooperated with the FBI. What husband wouldn't wear a wire just so she could hear what she sounds like? You mean I can wait, I can legally tape my wife and it can be played back in a court of law and she'd be forced to listen to what she sounds like? I think William H. Macy wore a wire just for that. That's why he got away with it. Good theory. Thank you. Thank um, you, guys. Go ahead, Ethan. Yes. Um, 
I just wanted to say, yes, we're going to be apparently shooting, but the Screen Actors Guild has come up with all these protocols as far as zones that you can go into and testing who need, who can get into what zone. And they've, they've cut down the size of these uh, crews working. I think it's they're trying to make it safe. So we'll see. We'll see. Okay, when we come back, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins Thank us. You. Welcome back. Welcome back. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is about to join us. Dan, you are in the newsroom and you're going through the chat to read to us the uh, results of the competition to come up with dishes for no evil foods, but you're saying there's so much, it's an embarrassment of riches. Yes, sir. The the chat room today between the beginning of the show and now was t- over 20 pages. It's around 23 pages. And I'm hunting for uh, jokes and quips regarding no evil foods. Well, we're going to have them back on Tuesday's show, so maybe you can read the results for Tuesday's show when we record on Monday. I'm a bit of a slow reader, so it might take me that long to get through them all. But there's a secondary contest going on, too, when um, when another one of your guests brought up the idea of a female bird rejecting advances from a male bird, and there was a ton of jokes that came in. So, Okay. We'll see what happens. I'm going through it. All right. Thank you, Dan. That's Dan in our newsroom. We'll see you tonight for Office Hours. Now joining us is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. He ran Americans Separated, Americans Separated. Americans, I I have no air conditioning. Oh. So Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being an attorney, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, Christ? Yes, you I, are. I got that and, right. Uh, there is actually a competition going on now about the possibility of a change of name. So you may want to have a contest about that. Change of what name? From Jesus Christ to Jesus something else. Oh. I, we don't want to change. Well, Jewish people do change their last names. Christ is kind of Jewy, I think. I could see. Yeah, very, a lot of uh, right wing Christians forget that uh, he was Jewish. Yes. Yeah. I don't forget that. <laughs> you know, I, I used to do a radio show that preceded Larry King's when he was on uh, NBC. And uh, I saw him every day. And when I was on his television show one night, as a Christian minister, he said, Barry, I never knew you weren't a Jew. I have never <laughs> known a Barry who wasn't a Jew. Baruch would be your uh, name. Baruch. Baruch. Or Barak. 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 Why did Barack Obama change his name from Barry Obama to Barack Obama? I don't know, but if... Well, you Bar- should find out. If, uh, if Barack Obama married... Ehud Barak, the former prime minister of Israel, his name would be Ehud Obama. Yeah. That's a bad joke. Yeah, I, it's too deep. It's too me. deep. 
It's too just late an hour. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing for uh, the Fourth of July? I'm having a uh, a virtual family reunion, and uh, this could go on for days because we can't get together. We generally do. I don't have much of a family. I have no family left to speak of, but Joanne does. I have an extensive family in this country and in Canada. And, and when you say uh, you have well, no family you know, to speak of, you mean you've disowned a lot of your relatives because yeah, they didn't live up. Possibly. No, they, they've actually disowned me. <laughs> uh, they were hoping I'd change my name to Feldman. <laughs> Are you having a family reunion? Do you ever have a family reunion? I'm, uh, that. I'm sorry? Do you ever have a family reunion? Is there a Feldman family reunion? No. Ever. No, 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 it's we're at, it's Ellis Island. It's people coming from horrible, horrible places in Eastern Europe. And no, there's there's no re- no. Unfortunately, sometimes my kids call me. Yep. I had to remind my kids to call me on Father's Day. I do that. I get up at 6 a.m. on Father's Day. <laughs> I say you have exactly 18 hours to call me. I do that on my birthday, too. You have exactly 18 hours to wish me a happy birthday. Yeah. Does it work? No. 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 It's, well. It's pestering. It's, a, you know, I just, just listening to the Hershey films. And, uh, aren't they adorable? I'm sorry. Yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful segment, and I agree that they should go on the road with it. It's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. And nobody, you know that Ethan really isn't his son, and he's not really a psychiatrist. But you can't tell, right? I can't tell at all. No. Well, I was actually, with his father, when they were talking about the stages at Freud, they, they neglected, and this is a little known fact, but there's a final stage when you get very old. It, it's called a nasal stage. You, you pick your nose. And I, I didn't even talk about it, so I know he's probably conning us. Is that true, or are you making that up? <laughs> I don't know. I, you're, you're an authority figure. <laughs> no, of course it's not true. Oh, okay. But, I, I, but it's easy. You know, one of the things I enjoy is making stuff up that sounds like it's just got this kernel of credibility. Uh-huh. For a long time, I actually carried a, a uh, an identification card with me, an Elvis Presley identification card, and I'd show it to people, waitresses and stuff, and, I'd, and she'd say, oh, this is a joke. And I said, yeah, but, you know, I really was uh, in a band, an important band. I was in Jimi Hendrix's band. I was his drummer. And then... There'd be a skepticism. And then I'd say, you know, Jimmy only had white people in his band. That's much is true. But it gives you that extra credibility. That fact alone. And then he or she would believe it. Even though it was a. You were lying. Lying can lying can be fun. Representing the facts. Lying. I'm being serious. I like to lie to young people. Kids, if I if you have a child who's like two or three, I will sit down. I'm being serious, and I will just lie sure. to them. I'll say, you know, I'm a bear. I'm a bear. I, I shaved for this party, but I am a bear. And it's, do you have any salmon? Can you find me some? And I judge the kids by their ability to play along with me. 
you know, I'll walk up and say, I'm going to yell at you in exactly 45 minutes. And be prepared because I'm going to make you cry in 45 minutes. Um, let's put this down. I'll see you in 45 minutes. I'm going to scream at you. And I can judge them by their ability not to tell their parents or call the police. No, I think that kids, kids are very, the smart ones, the well-adjusted ones, just play along with me. At least that's how I, huh? It does not surprise me at all. (laughs) You know, uh, know, I'm writing this book about people that I've met over the years. And uh, let me digress a second. Um, From what? Digress means that we were on some kind of path here, that we knew where we were going. Absolutely. We're talking about wine. And I was writing a chapter about feminists and non-feminists. And there was a woman named Andrea Sheldon, who was the daughter of a very prominent right-wing political actor named Lou Sheldon, who just died a few weeks ago. But Andrea and I were on the pilot for the Chris Matthews hardball show Mm. because they wanted to do a run-through and they wanted people that they knew could, you know, speak in complete sentences. So they had the two of us on and they're about ready to start. They say to Chris, we're going to start in 20 seconds. And he goes, he looks at us and he says, I think this is really going to be great. And she says, it's going to be better than you think, because Barry is my (laughs) ex-husband. I have never seen Matthews completely speechless. He looked like he was not going to be able to continue. And we did the whole first segment. And at the break, he said, you were married? And she said, of course not. <laughs> hey, you've, now, you just celebrated your 95th wedding anniversary. <laughs> yes. Did I get 50th, that right? 50th. But you're very close because 9-5 and 5-0, you're very close. Yeah, yeah Fif- it was great. You know, we, we had planned to go to the Belmont Stakes the first time in 50 years that we could afford it. We have great grandstand uh, seats. And, of course, they then canceled it. But instead, uh, we went to the Black Lives Matter demonstration here in Washington. How much did you win? Who did you bet on? The police or the demonstrators? How much did you win? (laughs) We never win. You know, Joanne, who, of course, you've met. Yes. um, Long distance, I think. But, uh, you know, she she was actually a championship uh, rider when she was in high school and a championship marksman which is one of the many reasons I stay with her. Marksman? Yeah. Shooting, guns, guns. Really? Yeah. And now she's a doctor. How else could a marksman be, David, except someone who shoots guns? Somebody who, uh, who grades Draws papers? Well. <laughs> the possibility, but no. Okay. So do what you, do you want to talk about? Is it unraveling? It, 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 what? What is unraveling? The whole unraveling. country feels, uh, you know, we're on the it brink. Does, no, it, really, it really does. I think last night I truly felt uh, that we were possibly in, ending up with the apocalypse that people thought in the beginning. Because of COVID-19. Because of COVID-19 and because of the idiotic responses of people to it. You know, one of the things that bothers me lately is that there's a phenomenon on television where they'll have 
there are many stories about a hundred people go to a party and 95 of them get uh, COVID and they're all in their twenties. So last night they had on one of the networks, a woman who was doing a selfie, doing a, a whatever you call it. If you just talk into your telephone and she said, yes, I was there, and there were 50 other people, and we almost all of us got sick, and uh, I just didn't take it seriously. And she looks at the camera and says, but I take it seriously now, and I'm just hoping that other college kids will listen to me. Now, she's a conventionally attractive young woman, and she knows that. And I think there are a whole breed of people now who say, I got it, but I got over it. And I maybe gave it to other people, but let me tell you, I'm cute and don't do what I did. Mm-hmm. And they put that on television. Yeah. Right? And I, I think that's uh, irresponsible. I think, the time. I think it is irresponsible. It's, it's irresponsible as taking all the press releases from pharmaceutical companies about these very, uh, very small uh, groups of people who show up at 30% of them get better with this treatment or that treatment, no no peer-reviewed science, all science communication by press release. And then the networks all cover that. I guess the argument is we got to give people, uh, give them some hope. So we'll we'll tell them that 40 out of 50 people got three days better. But I think that's irresponsible too. Let's get hard science. Let's get people to know what they're talking about and put that on the air. But And, and the unraveling, it's um, not just COVID-19, but when you look at the support that Trump has, he still has an incredible percentage of people who voted for him the last time who say absolutely they will vote for him again. So they either have they've not been listening. They haven't been watching anything for three and a half years because I don't. I literally don't understand how people can look at him and say, you know, he's been a great leader because he's not a great leader. And I can't believe that people can criticize Joe Biden's occasional flubs and not realize that their president makes more of them on a regular basis than anything Joe Biden does. Mm-hmm. How important? Is it? I'm sorry. No, but I mean, what is it that gives people this sense that they must continue to support a man who obviously is unqualified, who obviously is self-interested only? An inability to admit you're wrong. Never. Uh, Wanting to be part of a team. Forgiveness. You forgive your team. It's, you know, (laughs) why are people Mets fans, you know? You know, I was a Phillies fan for a while. I think I was a huge baseball fan when I was in high school. And uh, in 1968, the Phillies almost made it to the World Series, but they lost 17, 17 games in a row. And I remember I was in the bathtub listening on my transistor radio to the very last game going, if they don't lose this, they'll get into the series. And they lost. And my mother came to the door of the bathroom, was pounding in the door. What are you doing in there? <laughs> and for the, it was an honest answer at the time. I, I said, I'm listening to the end of the game. <laughs> and I, I, I literally, I almost gave up baseball forever after that. 
and I, I gave up baseball cards and memorizing statistics and memorizing uh, the players on each team. It just it was it was a slap in the face. I went outside today and I saw people sitting outside having breakfast <laughs> without their masks on. I don't know how much longer that's going to last. You can't sit indoors, but I guess you can sit outside. And I thought, well, there's something I took for granted. And that doesn't exist anymore. And it's going to be a while before you can just meet friends in a in a restaurant and drink sure. coffee and have a muffin and laugh and talk. So much has been taken from us in a very, in many ways, a subtle way. I mean, you know, right? It, it, the idea. Absolutely. Uh, I wonder how that affects us politically. We're because we're, a year from now, things aren't going to change a year. No. Right. Things are. And, and your wife said that in one of our first office hours. Yes, this is this is going to last a lot longer than the hopeful idiots think. Exactly. And, uh, you know, it, Trump two days ago said what he said many times, which I thought maybe he wouldn't say again. Uh, you know, the virus will disappear soon. And when he was asked if he really meant that by the, it was a Fox uh, questioner, but the Fox guy goes, do you really mean it will disappear? And, and Trump goes, uh, um, yeah, I, I hope so. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's back to hoping that something will disappear because it's what, getting warmer. It's, it's getting later in the year. There's no basis for this, but he still maintains it. And I guess he thinks that if you sound like you've got an answer, even though you don't have any answer and you haven't had any answers about this for forever, other uh, people will say, we ought to not change horses in the middle of the stream. Right. It is a war, so we better vote them back in. And right. I think that there's still a possibility, notwithstanding all the polling data, that four months is a long time, four months, and he may just uh, he could squeak in again. I think four months is a very long time. Right? Yeah. You know, I, I can remember when Dukakis was leading George Herbert Walker Bush. Of course. I'll never forget reading. I bought a book. I think it was a dollar and a quarter, a paperback book uh, in 1972 called uh, How George McGovern Won the Election. It was written, produced, and sold one week before, of course, George got Massachusetts and the District of Columbia and lost every other state. But there were people... We can do this. Look, people will come out of the woodwork and they'll realize that George is great. He was great. But well, does, does Trump have certain levers of power that he can pull to get reelected? I mean, the president does have an advantage in terms of the, the machinery. Sure. No, he, he does. I mean, I'm a little surprised that, uh, you know, when everybody's so happy about what the Supreme Court has done, oh, look at this centrist that, that John Roberts is turning out to be. On something like the Dreamers Act, the DACA decision from 10 days ago, um, it's not like 
John Roberts said, you know, it'd be a terrible thing to take these young people who have been to this country, they came here with their parents, have made a life for themselves, be terrible and unconstitutional to throw them out. That's not what he said. His fifth vote was predicated solely on the idea that Trump didn't do it properly. They didn't, in a sense, file the paperwork correctly. It's like writing a roadmap for how to do it again. And I'm a little surprised that Trump didn't say to all of his lawyers, write the damn thing over again. We want to we show that we are acting quickly to keep these potential rapists out of the country, kick 623,000 people out, write up the new executive order. And he didn't do it yet, but he will before the election, I'm quite sure, because this idea of keeping people out of the country, throwing people out of the country, is still one of the core values of almost all of his supporters. Are they all going to get sick? The, the, <laughs> uh, Herman Cain, of course, uh, who ran for the presidency, one of the few African-Americans that publicly does support uh, Trump, uh, is now in the hospital in Atlanta f- for uh, their little, they, they're very coy about this, but he was at the Tulsa rally two weekends ago, obviously got sick there, uh, but his his staff said, well, it, although he was there, we don't want to necessarily connect it to the rally. Because, you know, Herman goes and he speaks to a lot of other people. Well, I think he, he, was, <laughs> he was sitting like a conjoined twin to two people uh, next to him during that rally. And uh, those photographs are just coming out uh, in the last 24 hours. But yeah, a lot of people are going to get sick. But um, what are you hopeful about? um, It's July 4th. Yep. Well, uh, if things work out well, if in fact polls that we're starting to see now do lead to a rejection of Trump, an election of Biden, and an election of a Senate that is Democratic by one or two votes, um, then there's a lot that can be done. And I guess I'm guardedly optimistic, in part because Biden's old, that if he gets to be president, he's going to say, unlike Barack Obama, um, we don't really have time to study these regulations. We're just going to assume that any regulation that Trump has put in that helps corporations, that hurts women, hurts the LBGTQ community, we're just going to repeal them. Not in five years. We're going to do it in five weeks. And I think he's capable of doing that with a Senate that will go along with him. And the Senate, do you think McConnell's days are numbered? I'm not I'm not as optimistic about Kentucky as I am about a lot of other places. Amy McGrath, who I, I, I think on this and other programs, I, I did indicate I supported her. Um, I got a lot of blowback to that. Um, Charles Booker was kind of an unknown figure until Black Lives Matter and murders in Louisville. And then he starts to maintain an he really starts to elevate. He goes out with the people. He goes to the rallies. And Amy McGrath doesn't go to the rallies and says, and it's not lunatic argument, but she said, I just, I was worried about COVID-19, so I didn't go. I have a family. But then when uh, 
when Booker actually raised enough money to go on television, uh, she did a tweet that I thought was absolutely tone deaf. She, she, she said, uh, congratulations, Charles. You have enough money now to go on television. And then she added, and you probably have enough money now to pay your staff, you know, like I've been doing from the beginning. That. You're free. That is just that is not the way. Yeah, you, you can't you, you can't do that and expect Booker, who is not as of this moment um, uh, endorsed her, uh, and maybe he won't. But I, I think it would take a, a, a big person uh, to forgive that kind of a slight. And that I really is bullshit. Oh, come on, Reverend. Yeah. <laughs> who said that? Oh, and and we have a theme song for you, by the way. You know what? What oh, Lance Jeffries! I, you know what? I apologize. I, I'm not thinking properly. Lance Jeffries put together a theme song for you. Really? Executive Director of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State from 1992 to 2017. Yes, that was the date. A member. Supreme Court bar he has been. It's the Reverend Barry W. Lynn with David Feldman. And I, I'd like to thank him personally. I don't. See, he's not here, though. No, he's not here. But they, uh, oh, the COVID please. players. Is he here? Yeah. Lance is here? Well, oh, no, he's not he here. here. No, but he'll be no, at well, office hours tonight. Yeah, well, he won't be because I'll be at the family reunion. But you but, Wait a second. Uh, You're, you, you put family before office yeah. hours? Yeah, that's why I asked you in the beginning whether you have family reunions. If you had said yes, then I'd have said, oh, well, then maybe we can merge the two family reunions and all be together. But you said, no, you don't even have them. So, yeah, but you'll have to get Pastor Conrad to uh, substitute or perhaps I think you said he was fifth. There must be the second, third and fourth winners of the America's next Greatest pastor. America's uh, next top pastor. David Feldman presents oh, America's <laughs> next top pastor. Yeah, I, I would have to. Let me look at these notes. <laughs> what uh, what movies uh, have you been watching? Well, I'm watching, obviously, only, only the ones that are streaming. Yeah. I saw two great movies. One is called The Vast of Night. And it's kind of a, a takeoff on Twilight Zone. Takes late. A place late in the 50s. And the premise is that a guy in a small radio station in New Mexico starts hearing these strange sounds in his headphones. Yeah. And, uh, he, 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 so he goes on the air and he plays them and he asks if people have ever heard this sound before. And he gets a couple of people who have been involved with certain, I don't want to give away much, but certain government experiments in the past who say that's just the sound I heard when, and then they describe events. And it's a, it's a great atmospheric uh, science fiction film. But what was appealing to me is that I went through a, a period when I was, I think, in junior high school, 
when I used to listen to shortwave radio, they, my father had a big radio that had FMs and AMs and shortwave. And I could listen to everything. I could listen to Radio Moscow. Did I you have a ham license? I just listen. I was just listening. I wasn't trying to broadcast. But if you tune to the far end of the dial, you get this crackling. <sighs> Not dissimilar to that. And I was convinced as a young lad, I was probably being spoken to by outer space aliens. Hmm. And you became yeah. a minister. <laughs> he did. And a lawyer. And a lawyer. And I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been both if it hadn't been for listening to aliens. I'm pretty sure the aliens also said, if I could have translated it, um, marry a doctor and hope one of your children becomes a dentist. Do you have a dentist for a child? No. No, no I don't. How about a mechanic? That would be good. How about a hitman? That would be better. Um, would it be, know, I wouldn't mind having a CIA hitman of course for a not. child. Why would you? But, you know, the CIA, many people in the CIA actually have a certain level of integrity. I think you'd want your child to not be in the CIA. I think you'd want them to be an organized crime figure hitman because then they would tend not to have any compunction against taking out the people you want them to take out, or her. I grew up with the children. I grew up in uh, Anglewood, near Fort Lee, and there were a lot of kids whose fathers were capos in the five families. And it was just a given not to get into fights in the schoolyard. (laughs) I was just told, if, if he punches you, you thank him for that. Do not... Do that. All right. Uh, the, actually, there's an interesting documentary I saw since you brought up organized crime. After the spaghetti westerns in Italy, uh, that phase kind of uh, dropped out. Then Italian movie companies decided to they, they watched the success of The Godfather and The French Connection here in the United States, and they started making crime movies. And the genre is called Euro crime. And on Netflix, there's a really fun documentary about this phenomenon of Eurocrime films. Most of with hundreds of them were made. Very few showed up in the United States. But that was another thing I watched. And then just last night, I watched Shirley. This is a somewhat of a fabrication of the life of Shirley Jackson, the author of the famous story, The Lottery. Uh, yeah. It's brilliantly acted. Absolutely brilliantly acted. Not uh, not the kind of movie where you, you leave and go, <laughs> I'm in such a good mood now. But if right. you're kind of in a down mood anyway, watch it. it it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. So, good. I watch. We'll see you next week, I hope. I will be here. Fantastic. And, um, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn ran... Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And besides being an attorney, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of, I hope I'm pronouncing this properly. Is it, is it, is it Christ? I guess it is, still is. Okay. And uh, as I said, there is a contest going on for the possibility of changing it. Um, this, the, the biggest competition it has now 
is that there really is a move to call it the Church of Jesus Feldman. <laughs> Jesus, that was that yes, was Jesus. that was Feldman. my original. That's my birth name. I changed it for show business. <laughs> you shouldn't. Thank you. All right, I will uh, talk Executive to you next. Director of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. From 1992 to 2017, yes, that was the date. A member of the Supreme Court bar he has been. It's the Reverend Barry W. What a beautiful song. Listener questions. Oh, hang on. Sorry, what? What? what, what? I'm sorry, Reverend, you have to unmute yourself. Oh, I am unmuted. Oh, okay. Do the clothes. Not the, I oh, that's right. Stay out of trouble, Reverend. I'm stay going out, to trouble. Stay, stay out of trouble, Reverend. Thank you. Well... We're done, believe it or not. We we did not get Bob Rubin to show up and a couple of other guests. Apparently, hey there, Dan. Dan, are you hey. there? Let's take this call. Yes, sir. We'll just wrap it up here. Nothing wrong with ending early. Hello there, John. What's on your mind? Uh, yes, Reverend Barry. You've mentioned going to horse races numerous times. Um, Uh-oh. I, I, I don't support horse racing by any means. You know those horses have been dying left and right, and it's an exploitative industry. Yet another one that exploits animals for the sake of gambling and human entertainment. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh-oh. Well, I am a, <laughs> Ooh. I am, I'm actually am aware of that, and it, it troubles me. Uh, but not enough uh, to never, ever go to a horse race. And uh, I hate dog racing. I think that's even worse, more cruel than greyhound uh, races uh, that go on in Florida and Massachusetts until recently, uh, I think, are even worse. And uh, But I, 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 I've heard these comments, and I've seen your comments on, uh, on this matter before, but I, I have not, uh, it's kind of, you know, I, I've severely reduced my consumption of meat over the last decade, but I haven't fully become a vegetarian. And it's a, I sh- but I, I think it, it is a moral issue, and I'm glad you, you raise it with me and with other people. John? Well, I'm glad you're uh, at least trying to uh, alleviate that. I went to one horse race long before I was vegan, and that was a Santa, Santa Anita racetrack out here in, in the Pasadena area. Um, I never went again, but I didn't think about it at the time. But sure. we can all change. We can all wake up more, as uh, I'm sure you're aware of. So I hope you will uh, go further down this path and just not do it you at know, all. I, I used to talk on – when I did radio, I used to have uh, Ingrid Newkirk from PETA on a, a lot. Right. And, right. uh I once said to her, you know, I just, I, I've been reducing my consumption of meat, but I, I'm not going full vegetarian, much less full vegan. And she said, if you don't eat meat three days out of the seven, you're making progress. Maybe you'll get to the fourth and the fifth day. And yes. uh, 
that's and that's when we went to the cockfights, you had almond milk, <laughs> as I recall. Yeah, cockfights. <laughs> cockfighting. So they did. I'm against roadside zoos. I mean, I'm against the, uh, a lot of these things. And I, I was uh, John uh, for several summers. Uh, I worked in the New York uh, State Park Service uh, in a nature museum, and the, the treatment. I mean, this is a good PR thing for them. They had five of these museums around the Bear Mountain State Park, and it was great publicity. And they um, and they they always promoted this as a great thing. They got a lot of money to do it. But by the second summer, I mean, I realized just how incredibly cruel they were to uh, to those of us who were trying to actually work with the animals in a healthy way. A deer had gotten stuck in the mud, and one of the camps near this museum had a camp counselor literally brought this deer to our little log cabin in in the woods and said, "What can you do?" And the um, the truth was that the, the animal was sick already. So um, we went uh, we went to the uh, the park service and said, no, "We we need to take this." Some, some other guy working in the park had a truck. He said, we really need to take this animal to the veterinarian about 20 miles away. We just need some, some money to, to do it. And this, the state wouldn't give us the money. So, of course, the deer dies. And kids had become so attached to this deer. And you can imagine most of these kids from Queens and Harlem coming up to the Bear Mountain State Park had, had never seen an animal except a rat and a dog in their life. They were becoming so attached to this deer, and the deer dies. And then, basically, you say, well, I, we, we tried to take it to the but they didn't really give us the money to do it. So I a little really scathing, little, <laughs> scathing a piece for the publication of the uh, state park service that year, and they had to publish it, and... Uh, I was not invited to come back again. For, for, but if you don't say to the people who could make a difference, make a difference, you know, you, you kind of have lost your own moral center. Yes. That's my story. Yeah. That's, that's a funny stuff. Uh, I was saying, yeah, did, I did you do that on purpose, David? Yes. Maybe Dan F. was doing it. <laughs> what they did to snapping turtles, Dave. Have you really get a kick out of that? Uh, well, are you hoping for the, you know, they're remaking all these Disney cartoons as live action, and they were going to make a, a live action Bambi. Yeah, very sad. For it. You know, well, Bambi was, first of all, Bambi was a, a boy. People don't realize that. Did you know Bam that? Boy. Huh? Bamboy? Bamboy. Bambi. Everybody thinks Bambi's a girl. I'm not talking about the baby deer. I'm talking about that stripper at uh, the Christmas party. <laughs> that was a... No, See, here's the problem, David. I, I, I was just going to go there. But, and then, but you went there, and now I feel like I'm spending enough time with you that I'm starting to mind meld with you. And this really troubles me. And I'm, I'm going to go <laughs> flagellate myself if this happens again. Opus Day. 
Hey, how about that Dan Brown, speaking of Opus Day? How about Dan Brown? Bad divorce, it turns out. He spent a lot of that Da Vinci Code money on mistresses and, yeah, you know. That's what I hear. But oh. what, did Jesus, what did Jesus say about being a vegan? What did Jesus say about horse racing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he rode racing. in on an ass, didn't he? Chariot. There was yeah. chariot racing back then. But didn't they ride in on an ass? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. But I don't. I'm not sure, uh, John. And boy, boy, was his ass sore. (laughs) Okay, just okay. Let's just come on. I don't know if John's still here. I mean, I don't think that riding a horse is necessarily an act of cruelty to the horse. Well. I just un- I'm trying to unmute John, but he. Uh, well, that's I was I was kind of hoping that was a, a subtle hint that you should. No, no, no. The, but the horses in the horse racing industry are heavily drugged and you know sure. painkillers, et cetera, like that, and they're they're exploited basically, and they're stuck in stalls or on the road most of the time instead of running free like they should. And yeah, yeah it's it's and they get whipped and all that. And yeah, the, yeah, For sure, yeah. it's and not I good. It was a good thing that uh, circuses stopped using elephants, and uh, uh, I'm behind all of those things, but I admit to certain uh, imperfections. Yeah, nobody's perfect. <laughs> and no, I, I, I don't mean to brag, but, is, but... Are you perfect, David? I, well, I'm, I'm, I negotiated uh, for points for the donkey <laughs> in Tijuana, that they get a own a piece of the show the donkeys at the time all right we're hang on let's go to bren hello bren bren where are you calling from you have to unmute and then we'll go to benji can you hear me now yes bren and then benji is up next uh i'm actually uh from portland Okay. Um, I, I wanted to uh, make a recommendation to Reverend Lynn if he hasn't uh, seen it yet. A documentary called Hail Satan. Yes, I saw Street. that. It's a great documentary. Have you seen it, it Reverend? It, yes, I have. I, I know. In fact, when I was with Americans United, we on uh, one or two occasions represented the Church of Satan and uh, won some victories uh, when they were trying, among other things, to put up a display of a fallen angel in a place in Florida in uh, someplace, I guess, in the state capitol. And they <laughs> they wanted to put up this fallen angel thing. It actually was a, kind of a nice piece of art. Um, and we did. We negotiated. We won. We didn't have to even go to court. They put it up. And then the very day after they put it up, a woman wearing a Catholic Avenger T-shirt ripped the thing down destroyed it so it was as they say a pyrrhic victory but an important one and i love what they try to do they try to make it clear that uh, there's a um if you're going to put in a public space any religious image you better be prepared to put up all of them and we've you know we've helped people put up flying spaghetti monsters <laughs> as well as more traditional religious symbols once they put a cross or a crash up Right. I used to have a neighbor, uh, Bryn, that um, every uh, holiday season would put up a nativity scene. And not only were there uh, wise men 
and shepherds looking at the baby Jesus, and I am not making this up, they, would, they had a Santa Claus looking at the baby Jesus as well. Oh. <laughs> And yeah. did did Jesus tell Santa what he wanted for his birthday? He, he said, I want you to go away. Don't commercialize my holiday in the event they ever make one for me. Just okay. don't do it. That's what he said. I well, heard him. Let's go to Florida where Benji is waiting. Hello there, Benji. Hey, David. How's it going tonight, brother? Good. Did Did you sell any advertising for your call? No new, no new advertising oh, this week. I, I did finalize the deal with the Made You Look uh, Cleaning Company, though. The, uh, <laughs> they're going to give me free six months of cleaning, and they uh, even gave me a trench coat with fake arms. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but, uh, no, actually, uh, no, man, I really dig. I, before we call it a night here, i got to say I really dig listening to Ethan and his dad, man. That's good stuff. It's I like know. Free, I know. It's like a free class from Harvard to me, yeah. bro. That's yeah. good stuff, man. I mean, you don't get that kind of you know intellectual stimulation on a construction site. You know, it's just higher learning is kind of kindly frowned upon actually. And, uh, you know, a degree from Harvard, oh, that's grounds for an ass kicking. On <laughs> it's crazy, man. But, uh, no, nah, man, but uh, that, that's good stuff, man. I really dig oh, listening to you. it. And, uh, I could listen to Ethan and his dad all night. You're yeah. right, man. They could take that to Vegas, bro. That's, that's a sellout, right? Yeah, there. I agree. I agree. They're great. They're great. But, hey, I got to man, Florida's getting crazy right now. Ron DeSantis, man. I mean, he's turning Florida into the walking dead down here, bro. I mean, he's, He's in complete denial. He's just, you know, he's using Trump's butt cheeks as earmuffs right now. <laughs> but, uh, I know it's getting late, man. I'm going to let y'all guys go, man. Dan F., man, he's really, really taking care of the business, man. I really dig what he's doing, man. He's helping out a lot, man. It's really going good. Yeah, he's the best. Thank you, Benji. Hey, you take it easy, David. Thank you. And, Dan, what do you, what do you think? What do you think? Is the chat room just, is it an embarrassment of riches or just an embarrassment? <laughs> the chat room is alive today. Yeah. I don't know if people are so excited because it's going to be a long weekend or what, but it's really good. It's really good. The whole show went well. The flow from guest to guest was amazing. The, the overlaps and the people were interested in each other is really, yeah. really good. In fact, Bren sent me a note a couple of weeks ago about that. I remember that saying that it's reminiscent of the old... Uh, Oh, I just dropped something. Uh, like are, you the, able, are you able to consider that when you're scheduling it? Or is it more like, oh, shit, how, how do I get people when they can do it? Uh, it's catch as catch can. Yeah, yeah. I, I think but you, one of the things I learned doing live television is that you just let things happen. The mistakes, right, Reverend? You did live radio for years. The mistakes okay. are where the, that's where the gold is. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I I, I could tell you, but I'm not going to. Uh, Some stories from my radio days of some of the bizarre people that I talked to and the weird things that happened. But you'll have to buy the book when I finally finish it. Or break into your home and just That's a possibility. Yeah, I could just. What about that? Yeah, you could break in, but then you'd have to worry about what's here. Oh, a Marx person. A doctor, she can not only shoot me, she can dress my wounds. Exactly. Well, or she could choose not to. Yes. See, that thing, she could, hey, you know, remember what, remember the scene of the dentist in Marathon Man? Yes. He was a dentist. He could have taken out a sore tooth, but he went a little overboard. Yes. Well, yes. good night, David. Zell, his name was. Zell. Zell. Good movie. Yeah. 
It was. Yeah. Lawrence Good Olivier, life. whatever happened to him? I don't know. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Reverend. Stay out of trouble. Dan, we're going to wrap it up. What do you think? It was, it was overall a great show. One thing I wanted to ask you, especially since uh, uh, Jim Earl and Eddie Pepitone were on today, one thing that always struck me as I'm going through the old uh, archive episodes is a quick one-liner that really made me laugh immediately was, you are an moron. Yes, Yes. I laughed so what are you, an moron? We were going to make uh, coffee it's mugs. so stupid. It's perfect. It was Eddie's catchphrase. What are you, an moron? <laughs> those things, we, we need to edit those down. Here, this is, uh, you pulled this. This is great. Hang on. David entertaining never Trumpers, parentheses, D-E-N-T. D- is that That's the headline? D-E-N-T? D-E-N-T, Dent. Oh, Dent. David, Entertain- David Entertaining Never Trumpers. Oh, that's an acronym. Dent means David Entertaining right. Never Trumpers. I see. Dent. I like it. It says, a well-balanced podcast. Oh, no, for you those- Dent. <laughs> I- Liam McEnany, whatever happened to him. By, by the way, somebody said to me, oh, you do have a dented head. I do. Oh, one have, person said. One person said that. Yeah, I do have a, a dented oh. head. <laughs> All right, let's review, shall we? I would say roll call. We had uh, Jim Earl. That went well. We had Russ Serencioni. He's running for New Jersey Sixth Congressional District. That went well. We had Professor Jay Zagorski, whose latest piece in the conversation is "Why Are So Many People Lighting Off Fireworks?" I don't think he had a good time. I think I was rude to him, perhaps. Yeah, you put a little pressure on him uh, towards the beginning. It got lighter towards the end, and it was the same for the prior guests, too. You're hitting him a little hard, but, yeah, you're asking the tough questions. I, I get, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. Eddie Pepitone, great. His new special is for the masses. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, we had a scheduling. I got a text from her. Yes, she thought it was... Uh, her time when I was really Easter time. Right. Bert Ross, Dr. Michael Pappas. He was, he gave me a bit of my own medicine. Yes. And he, he, he was really the beginning of the guests flowing into each other very well. Yeah. yeah Professor Ben awesome. Burgess. That was great. Zach Ford, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, Bob Rubin is not feeling well. Dave Cyrus, had some work to do, and that's it. It's a short show. You're going to be in bed by 9, 9.30? I'm already in bed. <laughs> All right. I will see everybody tonight at Office Hours. If you would like an invitation to Office Hours, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend a live taping, and you'll get an invita- invitation to office hours come Friday nights at nine. And if you would like to attend a live taping of our show, we tape every Monday and Thursday from about two 30 to 10 30 Eastern standard time. We're getting off early tonight. I, I'm going to say it's because of the July 4th holiday, but we're out of guests. That's the truth. So nothing wrong with it. Yeah. We'll call it a night. 
All right, everybody. I'll stick around and we'll talk, Dan. Thank you, everybody. We done ground it all down to molasses. When I come on the Brazos back in 